like to welcome you to the Queen Anne County's Planning Commission uh, meeting for Thursday, November 14th, 2019. Uh, if you all stand, as we call the meeting to order, and we'll do the Pledge of Allegiance. Perfect timing. Yeah. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Yeah, I I knew you would. So before I call, the uh, next agenda item is public comment. Before I open it up to public comment, if you are here for a specific topic, we would respectfully request that you wait until that topic come up so that we may hear your comments as they pertain to that uh, subject matter. Um, So with that being said... Uh, All public comments will be limited to three minutes. We will adhere to that as closely as possible. Um, If someone runs over just a few seconds, uh, we we will be mindful of that, but we're not going to be running on and on and on and rambling. As we anticipate most of the comments, whether for or against any particular project, will mostly um, be repetitive in nature. But we do and will hear every public comment that comes to the table. So... At this time, I'll open up to any public comment. Well, Hearing no, I, Mr. Falstead. So I just have, I guess, a clarification then. Please. Because um, both the text amendment and four seasons aren't identified on the agenda as a hearing. So will you be giving citizens the opportunity to comment on both of those, even though this isn't? Always do. Yeah, for every yes. month for 30 years. Well, not every every time, but anyway, I just want to make sure. Okay. Yes, yes. All right, thank you. <clears throat> All right, hearing no public comment, we shall move on to meeting minute review from the September 12th, 2019 uh, minutes. Chairman, I'll make a motion that we approve the minutes as written. Have a motion. Second. And a second. And a, yes, I do, Mr. Chairman, please. On page 24C, under the heading of food trucks, last sentence there states that Commissioner Lee offered to sit on the committee, and my recollection is that is Commissioner Jackson, the other Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Any other changes? Have that, Sharon? Great. No, sir. I guess the J and the L in her notes look the same. <laughs> <laughs> or it was just Tom. And I, <laughs> <laughs> it's a 50-50. <laughs> All in favor with the meeting minutes uh, as amended? Aye. 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 Any opposed? None. Thank you. Extension requests. Major site plan 04-17-12-001, Arcadia of Stevensville, proposing a 16-bed assisted living facility, an institutional residential facility, requesting a six-month extension, TMS. Good morning, um, Mr. Chairman, members of the commission. My name is Kevin Sharon with DMS and Associates. We're requesting 
a six-month extension for the Arcadia Assisted Living Facility. Um, the pools are uh, continuing to secure financing for the project. Um, their company is also growing around the shore where they're Focus right now is on some other facilities that they've purchased that are existing buildings that they're renovating. So they still are very interested in this project and would uh, request an extension while they continue to seek the financing and get this project underway. Any questions for the applicant? Is this the first extension? Request? I believe this is the second, second. one, sir. Second. Yes. So do you anticipate you're going to have financing and everything in place within the next six months? Yes. Hopefully by the end of the year. No other questions, I'll ask for a motion for the extension. Move approval of the extension. Request for Acadia. Second. I have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Hearing none, all in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? Hearing none. You have six months. Thank, Thank you for your time. You seconded that. Uh, is it David? You second that? Yeah. I just they just asked. Next we have updates, legislation, and legal matters. Mr. Wisnowski, good morning. Good morning, Mr. Good morning. Chairman. Planning Commission members, Mike Wisnowski, Director of Planning and Zoning. Uh, just a, uh, a couple of items that I'd like to bring to the board's attention. Uh, first of all, the cargo container ordinance, the ordinance that, prohib that prohibits cargo containers in residential zoning districts was approved by the county commissioners in October. So 45 days or so from that time, it, it will be enacted. We have not received any applications or requests for cargo containers in residential districts for a while. So... I think that that'll be fine. Secondly, I just wanted to bring you uh, up to date on the uh, buffer requirements on the 404 solar project, Lowen Farms, Y Mills Farms. It's we refer to it commonly as the 404 project. As as you remember, Mr. Drummond and I have been for quite some time, over well over a year, trying to um, bring that site into compliance. Um, Tesla Corporation now owns that solar facility. I've met numerous times on the site with a representative from, from Tesla. We had worked out an arrangement where the buffer was to be reestablished in the spring of uh, 2019. Uh, they did not fulfill that obligation. We met in the spring, and uh, we made a second arrangement to have the buffer installed in the fall of 2019. That did not happen again. So I really had no other choice but to engage Mr. Drummond to have him contact their representative to try to move this forward to get it complete, which Mr. Drummond has uh, done so and has reached out to their council. And we now hopefully have an agreement where the buffer will be established in the spring of 2020. I actually, Mr. Drummond, met with their representative yesterday and we talked about what you did. I did. Yeah. I'm just letting you know oh, okay. uh, what needs to be done in order to fulfill that obligation. And I'm crafting an a, a email to Mr. Drummond laying out the 
parameters upon which that will occur. Are you going to get anything done by the end of the month? Yes, this fall they they as the board knows that solar project had has a really um, uh, difficult history. Um, at that time, when that solar project was approved in 2015, all a developer needed was concept plan approval, uh, minimal landscaping, uh, and it really wasn't highly regulated as it is now with our new ordinance. So uh, as you probably remember, the topsoil was stripped off that site, which they should not have done, and it created issues with drainage along the perimeter of the project. So this fall, what they're going to do in the next month, there's four major areas where water is lying. And because water is lying there, it's prohibiting the plants to grow. And that's why a lot of those that buffer area is dead. So what they're going to do this fall is they're going to um, regrade those areas, put in some berming, put in some good topsoil, so that in the spring we can go in and, and have the landscaping reinstalled. And, and really, it makes a lot of sense because I would not want them to put plant material there now because it'll just die. So they need to they need to remediate the the problem areas which they've agreed to do this fall. So hopefully, we will not have to engage any further. Uh, uh, Another aspect of the agreement is that the uh, Tesla will be posting a surety um, by way of cash, a letter of credit, or a bond in the amount. They haven't signed this yet, but they've indicated by email that they'll agree to their lawyer in California 120% of the value of the work um, because the landscape bond, such that it was four years ago, is expired. What's the duration of the bond? Well, it'll be uh, for the, we'll, we'll make sure that it's uh, for the, the, what is it, two growing seasons? Right. Two growing and, seasons. And, and they have a, they will be required to sign a landscape maintenance agreement for the buffer as well, which is, okay. would be part of that. Two, two, two years. And this sort of uh, climate change era we're living in, we run into really dry weeks, and they're going to have to pay someone to water those plants. But, but if they have a bond, I, I'm sure they'll figure it out and and buy watering with the landscaping. So the good news is we're getting there, not as quickly as we had anticipated or they had agreed to, but we're, we're getting there. And um, I, I appreciate Chris's involvement because I think that really went a long way to getting their attention. Well, we threatened to sue them and close them down. <laughs> uh, that got their attention when I said we were going to seek a preliminary injunction to shut it down for being out of compliance with the conditional use approval. Oh, can't do that. I said, well, okay. And the last item, um, just to save time towards the end of the day, because I know we have quite, a, quite an agenda, uh, we did pass out to everyone the projects list. It's rather lengthy. It's nine pages. Uh, hopefully it uh, paints, paints a picture of each application that either is before us or is pending <coughs> or has recently been approved in a status update. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me or, or Rob or Brennan. Rob and Brennan are uh, the, the folks in the office that deal with these projects on a daily basis, so they would know much more than I about the particulars of a certain project. But uh, if you have any questions, please let us know, and, and we'll fill you in. I find it very helpful, Mike. Thank you for doing sure. that. And, uh, when will it be updated? I mean, whenever you would. I I update it. I I try to update it monthly, 
internally so I can track these projects. I can bring that information to you whenever you'd like me to. So every couple of months or so, sure. we, we probably should uh, uh, update that at least once a quarter. Sure. Be happy to do that. I find it very helpful to go back and review what's, what's been approved and what's under construction. Right. And, and, uh, right. Mr. Priest, the, the ultimate goal is to actually get it on the QAC property viewer map. Um, we have <coughs> talked to our GIS guys, and they can keep a running uh, tally, just a numbered list where you'll be able to click on it and find out some information. Um, we've been extremely busy, so that has fallen to the back burner, but the, that's the ultimate goal. So That would be helpful. Hopefully, as we start to slow down, we can pick back up with that. Yeah, I suggest before it gets all online that you, you basically email us a copy. That, that you'll be able to look real time. Oh, so before you, you can set that up, being that sounds like it might be. Yeah, a so few we months we off. did one that had a map. Um, it was very cumbersome to do because as projects came in, we tried to update it right. weekly. Well, we we based it on geography. So those on Ken Island started at number one. Those in the North County ended with number thirty three or something. Well, inevitably, a project would come in the middle and need to be number 13. So then everything would have to be renumbered and resituated, and it, it became cumbersome. So we're going to get it so that it's online and anybody can look Perfect. at it. I just meant that until it gets online, just email the, you know, a copy of the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. <clears throat> Next on the agenda is concept plan S. P nineteen dash zero four dash zero zero two three Morris Solar FFP MD Centerville Project One Forefront Power. Mr. Gunther, got it. So we we go from talking about the uh, less than stellar solar project that Mike mentioned to hopefully what these ladies hope to be will uh, be a a much better product. Um, they're proposing. Um, what turns out to be a utility-scale solar, even though it's small, a project directly adjacent to the county uh, solar field out off of Safety Road, Safety Drive. Today they're seeking concept plan approval and a favorable recommendation to the Board of Appeals for their conditional <coughs> use. Um, this is just an update of our local process for utility-scale solars. Um, we are currently in Step 2. Um, they will be able to proceed... Step three with your recommendation and concept plan approval. They will come once they achieve or conditional use. They will then have to come back to you with a formal site plan um, for your review, um, citizen review and comment one more time. And once that gets approved, um, they can proceed to permitting. So here we are in the county. If you take um, the road right out here, go across the new overpass. Um, Less than a mile down the road on the left is where we're talking about. Um, so here we are, um, kind of off the screen. Here's the overpass. This is Ruthsburg Road. This is the county solar site, and this is the 88-acre farm. And you can see I've overlaid the site plan on top of here. This is not to scale. So, um, but you can see it sits in the back of the property. Um, Unlike the last solar project you reviewed, which was 300-plus acres, this one is 4.23 actual array area, <clears throat> um, total limit of disturbance is just under 11 acres. And even though this is small, it falls into the utility scale because they're selling the power. Um, 
So once they sell the power and it's no longer an accessory use to the farm, it kicks them into this process. The property is zoned ag. It is within our utility scale um, solar overlay district. And this is just another map showing that anything in the yellow is within that district. There is no conservation land on the property. There are some environmental features. There's woodlands, there's wetlands, neither of which are proposed for any sort of disturbance. Um, there is sensitive species review area, so as they um, progress through the, the site plan process, they'll have to reach out to the Maryland Department of Natural Resources to determine what, if anything, um, endangered or threatened is on this site. Um, and they proposed forest retention to meet their forest conservation requirements. So this is the concept plan. Um, you can see it's cut off here. This inset is actually the site entrance. They're permitted 35 acres of impervious surface. They're proposing a little over one and a half. Um, no proposed floor area. Um, the noise will be uh, below the requirements at the property lines. The FAA determined there was no hazard. Uh, Maryland Historical Trust has said there's no historical properties in the area of potential effect, and they're not proposing any lighting on the site. Um, so a couple features. We have a small laydown area. It's a, it's a small project. Um, you can see the brown line is, is currently in access to the field. This will be an approved access so that the construction vehicles can get back there. Um, they're going to run underground, which is required, underground, Utility line out all the way down to the road where it's going to poke up and go across to the existing utility lines. Um, and unlike those big solar projects where citizens of Queen Anne's County may not be able to get power from that, we will be able to generate and buy power um, from this project. And I'll let them explain how that works because I'm not really sure. But um, people in the area will be able to purchase power from this should it be cheaper and they want to. The panels themselves are proposed at um, 9 feet 6 inches, which is about a foot taller than anything we've seen so far. Um, they're proposing an 8-foot black or green vinyl-coated fence. Um, here you can see the detail for the transformer, uh, roughly 8 feet 2 inches high. Stormwater is being addressed on site. DPW has and will continue to review this through the process. Um, at this point, they're proposing vegetated swales underneath the panels <clears throat> and vegetated filter strips along the driveway access area, you can see. Um, and this isn't on both sides because this is currently wooded. There's a hedgerow that's right there. Landscaping, they're required just like all utility scale, 50 feet all the way around the site unless there's established vegetation. Um, they are providing that. Um, and back here, this is the wooded area, so there's no requirement back here because this is going to remain. Even a six-acre fenced area, you can see, is a substantial amount of, of vegetation. So these are pictures of the site. Um, I took these early in the year prior to planting, obviously. What you can't really tell from this picture is I'm standing at about, or I'm parked on the side of the road, at about elevation 60 there's a rise right along here, and you can't really 
you don't really see it through these pictures, but it's roughly between 80 and 85. So there's a 20 to 25 foot elevation jump back here. Um, and this one really doesn't show it, but it's really visible if you stop right here on the side of the road um, because this is the highest spot. So what I did is I had our GIS guys provide me a LIDAR map, which obviously will color code your elevation so you can visually see it. It's not a 3D image, obviously, but you can see this white area is the highest point of the property, and it drops off on both sides. So I took those pictures roughly here at elevation 60, this little donut right here is 85. This line is 80. So roughly 20 to 25-ish feet between where the cars will be driving by and the, the highest point on the site. So then I overlaid the site plan on it to give you an idea that the solar panels themselves and all the equipment are going to be on the back side of the downward slope. So visibility from the road, even without vegetation and the required buffer is likely to be minimal, um, but then when you plant the six-foot trees in front of it, um, it should really, really screen this well. Um, so that is all I have. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer. Otherwise, I'll turn it over to the applicant to give you some details about themselves, the project, and how we purchase power from this thing. Um, I'm Kelsey Crane. I work for Forefront Power. Um, a little bit about this project and where it falls. In the, it's in the Maryland Community Solar Program, which means that the power from this will be provided to Delmarva residents. So it's not just Queen Anne's County, but anyone who gets Delmarva power. Um, and they will be offered at a discount of some percent. So anyone who subscribes to this is guaranteed a discount to their current solar um, Forefront has six projects currently either constructed or to be completed by the end of the year in Maryland in the Community Solar Program, which is, we think, the largest portfolio so far in the program. Um, so we're pretty proud of that. Um, just some, you know, a couple items I think that we commonly see people concerned about with solar. One is the height, which we talked about, is nine and a half feet at the very top. And that's just, you know, three feet off the ground plus about six feet of panels, give or take how far that post goes in the ground. Um, I did hear, you know, we were sitting here listening to the vegetation comment. We have the vegetative buffer and we would also be willing to do a letter of credit or a bond for two or three seasons. We That's very typical. We're doing that with another project um, down the shore. Um, and then, as you saw on the plans, we have the fire access. I mean, the, just the regular access, but it's going to be up to code for fire departments. I, we know that's a big concern um, for first responder safety, local safety. Um, so um, that will be up to code for all that, and there'll be access if needed. Um, we're going to be connecting to, hopefully, um, it's up to Delmarva, but as of now, our plan is to connect to the pole across the street, and then they'll have their equipment right near the road, and then we'll run underground to our project. Um, that's both for visual, you know, we don't want to have a eyesore as much as possible and then also the landowner is planning on farming the rest of this project so we want him to have as much farmland as possible with this project being set back which is was kind of another reason why we set it so far back so that, that he can utilize his property still um just a quick rundown of that i'm you know open it up to questions 
I got a I got a postcard in the mail about three weeks ago from something called Arcadia Power. We work with them. And it said I could save ten percent. Is that is that what this kind of thing is? Yes, that's the Arcadia Power is our community solar partner. So rather than they're like from New New England or something. So they actually they have an office in DC. Um, so I don't know if they have a New England office too. Maybe that's where they're, they're like our corporate is in San Francisco. What is Arcadia Power? Are they like your um, marketing side or something? So or? no, they're their own company, but we um, you know work with them to acquire customers. And like any of you got the postcard, and then they they manage the billing and customer concerns. So rather, if I said okay to Arcadia Power, would I be getting? I mean, I don't get electrons from that right you you won't get the exact electrons i kind of see it as if we're like if we have a bathtub of electrons in the system the 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 rule is if we're pouring in a cup of electrons we have to show a you know a group we have to fully subscribe those out so you know you're not getting it directly from this but you're getting a discount and you're supporting uh community solar to, fur, to further who that, the, who gets the money? That's what I've never understood. <laughs> uh, Somebody, so, somebody's making money here, and I'm always well, well. The way it normally works, if I may, is um, I think the, the very basics are the, uh, the uh, public service commission has a website that lists all available alternative electrical suppliers per and it's done, yeah. done by zip code. So basically, you could sign up for one of these suppliers. Delmarva will. Send it to you, and then and the Delmarva bill. There's one bill for actually using their wires. They charge you so much for it. Then the other is whatever this alternative electric supply company wants to charge you per kilowatt hour. Does Delmarva make any money on this, or are they? No, just, so they they're they're still getting their same for, you for the electrons. Your electrons going through their wires. Yeah, they're still getting. Say you pay ten cents a kilowatt hour, fifteen cents. They're still getting that. But we're selling the power at a lower rate because solar is becoming less and less expensive. So we're able to offer energy at a lower rate than some of the traditional energy. What do you say is a lower rate? I mean, yes. I'm buying power like for seven cents a kilowatt hour. Or so you'd get a 10% discount on that. No, so I'm buying it just you know off of someone off that website. But you're saying that what you sell would be seven seven cents a kilowatt hour or lower. So it would be the total of all your – you have your supply, charger, transmission, and distribution. So they would look at that and then give you a 10% off. So you wouldn't have that same supplier. You'd change it to Arcadia Power. Oh, I understand yeah. that, but I'm just trying to get, get an idea because when you sign up for someone, you're signing up and signing a contract mm-hmm. to buy it for so much kilowatt hour for a certain term, 6 months, 12 months, 18, 24 months. But it's at a specified kilowatt hour. Separately, and then Delmarva charges you separately for using their transmission lines. Yeah, so I believe this is consolidated, so then you get the discount of that. So we don't say you're always going to pay eight cents a kilowatt hour, or you're always going to pay ten. You're going to pay a whole lot more because Delmarva is going to charge you a healthy number for their transmission lines. So they charge you the same amount no matter what. The transmission right, but it adds, it adds up. Yeah, so then this is just guaranteeing that what you're paying now is 10% less or 5% or the whole bundle of charges goes down by 10%. Yes. 
Yeah, and then um, it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense no, really what you're saying because no, when you buy thing. it, you have to sign up and sign a contract for so much a kilowatt hour. It's, yeah, but this is a it's a dis, the you're signing up for a discounted rate. So it's a, the contract is a little different. Um, I mean, I can have someone from Arcadia. We're just curious. Yeah. No, I, I so just, yeah, the re, the reason it works out is because Forefront is able to make or you're able to. The community solar program allows companies to get full retail rate, which is all the supply charge, the distribution, and the transmission. So with that rate, we pass on discounts because that rate is allowing us to make some money, but then we pass on the discounts so people can go green and save money. Got to be the, the federal tax credits have got to be buried in here somewhere. And oh yeah, we, ITC is there. I'm not. I'm saying, but that's what um, that's the mechanism that Maryland allowed. Why this program works is because through the community solar program, um, you get the rate, and then we offer the discount. I was like, Till Marva has to take it on the chin a bit. It, yeah, it just doesn't make quite make sense. No. Pay for it. We, it we pay for like upgrade. Public policy that's putting it supposed to help us. Well. Sort of trim, we don't trimming ha- everybody else. We don't else have a to bit. offer a discount, but then no one would buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but you can probably because of the federal tax credits. Probably. So, it's just interesting, that's all. Yeah. We don't understand how it works, and we're trying <laughs> to understand how it works. <laughs> and I'm interested, I'd be interested in buying something that was really a discounted price. Yeah, and then also we, um, it's kind of going away from the concept plan, but. The contracts, I know a lot of people are worried, you know, about signing long contracts. There's contracts that are, you know, month to month, a year, two years. So there's different, and with those you get different discounts. But one thing that troubled me when I got this Arcadia Power thing was that, so I sign up. And you would like to think that you were getting the electrons from a community system in your quote-unquote community. But that's not what happens. I, we, we could be getting... You know, electrons, so to speak, from a sol- a community solar. You get it in Wisconsin. Yeah, no, you, no. With this one, you have to get it from a Delmarva project. So the Arcadia Power, unless they're working with another company, they don't they don't tell us who else they work with. We have a project that is about to hit, um, about to be energized in Snow Hill, Maryland. So that might be the Arcadia Power that you're getting. So it has to be a project within Delmarva. Okay. I have a question. First, I want to commend you on your proposal. It's the best solar proposal in terms of completeness and understandability that I've seen since I've been on the commission. Um, But I did have a question about an inconsistency, and that is uh, the life expectancy in the proposal is 30 years. And in the decommissioning report, the life expectancy is 25 years. And the assurance that you offer is based on the 25-year life expectancy. And I'm wondering whether the assurance is sufficient. You estimate in the decommissioning report, I think, a 2.5% annual interest rate. So I'm wondering whether the assurance for 25 years is actually sufficient for the project, which in your proposal you estimate to be a 30-year. Yeah, we can increase it to 30 years. That might have just been a mistake because some of our projects only last 25 years. Um, So we'll increase that, pull that out, add the 2% each year, and change that number. So you have solar arrays across the United States? Yeah. Um, I work mostly in Maryland and New York, but our company does. Okay. Have you done any solar um, array studies as they affect migratory bird patterns? Um, we 
haven't, our company has not. Um, I know that there have been some very large projects that have had some bad history of being right in the migratory bird path and they're so big they think it's water. Um, I think I've only read one case of that, but we do studies based on the location of making sure that this isn't a habitat habitat for migratory birds or that we, because we're not cutting down any trees, um, so we keep it really local. Any other questions of the applicant? I do, Mr. Chairman. Um, the legend on, looking on page, or sheet C101, and the, the stippling of the ground beneath your arrays is labeled as a vegetative filter strip, and and Mr. Gunter's report it had sort of two green arrows. Were, are they actually swale strips, or is the entirety of the land beneath the strip? Yeah, there. Is that just water sheet flow direction, or are there actual swales of concentrated flow? The fact that it's called a strip, I'm just curious as to the nomenclature. There are details in the plan for a vegetated swale. It have to be a swale because the contours are going like that. I just don't see it on the on 101. What page are you on, Rob? Uh, if you go to C102, I think it shows the, the swales. Ah, running, yeah. there they are. Okay. So the rest of that stippling is um, what what species? There's grasses? Yeah. Turf grass or? Um, we're open. I think we usually just use a native grass seed mix. Um, but some areas have... You know, sure. Well, the um, blue clover, white clover. We have had in the past um, solar projects come to us, work with our soil conservation district, and the the district has been recommending pollinator species. You know, while you're there, why not planting something other than turf or general grasses, uh, something more beneficial to habitat? I uh, would I would certainly reach out with them, and they've the the district also has guidance on order of operations with respect to planting and establishing that uh, stabilization, where many companies, or at least many of the ones that are coming in recently, have uh, come in, stabilized the site with that um, pollinator mix species um, prior to construction laydown, uh, and then sort of requiring or requesting of the contractors to tiptoe around the site rather than trying to establish those pollinator species under the panels once they're built. So I would request, please, that you at least work with the S Soil Conservation District in the county uh, as they have had, uh, certainly in recent history, uh, e exposure and experience with that kind of uh, project build-out. Right. Yeah, that's definitely something we do. We actually have a couple projects in New York that are part of a pilot program with Cornell with Pollinator Friendly, so we're, we're familiar with that. And we don't plant before. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I'm not. Yeah, no, yeah, so that's something we're that, familiar with. The Soil Conservation yeah. District, because other larger facilities, right, this is obviously relatively small on the utility scale, uh, have treated differently. And I'm, hmm. either way, uh, it, it may likely be just the establishment of the site helps because you're not then sort of sprinkling seed underneath the pre already established and compacted grounds. Um, so, but I, I would certainly suggest. Um, and, and at least put before you now, before you come back to us however many months from now with, for the uh, site plan approval, to uh, contact the SCD and work with them on, on vegetative species for underneath that panel. Sounds great. And the second question, well, I, if I may, the, um, could you help 
clarify why it's a 4.2 acre solar array yet there's 11 or 12 acres of disturbance? Um, I mean, I believe that we are including the access road update and the uh, vegetation. The vegetation, okay. Mm -hmm. It just seems... Yeah, because that's also, we're releasing a little more too, so that matches up with our total disturbance of what we're using and, and the laydown area. And there's a, on the plans, there's an eight-foot, you can see it actually in the, the map that Rob just pulled up. The, um, there's an eight-foot uh, drive path around the outside. It's actually beyond the limit of disturbance, and then it sort of turns around, goes back behind between your project and the woods. Is that Mr. Morris's? For access, yeah. So, okay. So that if he wants to use that um, for That would be outside of your, your security mm -hmm. fencing and such? So that's just to get him access to his property around that? Yeah. Right, right. Thank you. So that's already existing. Um, I believe it's just, I mean, I think there's like, you know, where you drive a truck for over sure. and over again. Right. Yeah, that's kind of the level existing. Farm, farm lane. Yeah. <laughs> Not, no gravel. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you. That's for the logging trucks. <laughs> <laughs> not funny. <laughs> funny, but not. Yeah. Uh, just a curiosity question. Um, you have a large parcel there. You're building a rather small array. It looks like it's a phase one of a larger project. Where you're yeah, I can explain the size. Um, so we went through a study with Delmarva, and this was the amount of capacity that this line could hold. So we went in with a two-megawatt proposal, which is what we do in the community solar. That's the most. And they came back and um, gave us this number. We won't, we won't be coming. So, the, so basically Delmarva's infrastructure is limiting the size of your solar arrays. Yeah, I believe they upgraded the line recently, so uh, they might be able to hold more. But this is our proposal. This is where, if we were to do a phase two, it would have had we would have to go through the community solar program through you guys again. But um, yeah, yeah, it just looks like you got a lot of open field, and it's a yeah. <laughs> a, a, a easy place to build more collectors. Not saying no. Like Hillary Clinton, I never, 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 never say never. <laughs> Are there any other questions of the applicant? All right. Thank you very much. This time we will take uh, any public comment. Public comment is now closed. I make a motion then to... Okay, so we, we have um, two motions that need to happen uh, for resolution. We need the concept plan and then a separate motion for recommendation to Board of Appeals. I'll make a motion to approve the concept plan and the recommendation to the Board of Appeals. Favorable recommendation. A favorable recommendation. Okay, so would you like to read out the resolution or... Uh, concept plan resolved that the planning commission regarding the request by FFPMD Centerville Project 1 LLC for concept plan approval to construct a 4.23 acre 700 kilowatt solar array with an approximate 88.89 acre parcel as more particularly described in planning and zoning file SP19-04-0023 hereby finds and hereby grants concept plan approval. I have a motion. Is there a second? Second that. 
have motion and a second. Any discussion? Hearing none, all in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? None. Passed unanimously. Now I entertain the motion for favorable or unfavorable recommendation to the Board of Appeals. Uh, recommendation to the Board of Appeals resolve that the Planning Commission, regarding the request by FFPMD Centerville Project 1 LLC, for a favorable recommendation to the Board of Appeals to construct a 4.23 acre 700 kilowatt solar array with an approximate 88.89 acre parcel, which is conditional use in the AG zoning district and is more particularly described in planning and zoning file SP 19 04 Hereby finds favorable recommendations to the Board of Appeals subject to the following conditions. One, if by the time of construction the panels proposed have changed from that provided in the plans, updated information must be submitted. Two, applicant must notify P&Z when ownership of the solar array changes. Three, prior to final site plan approval, provide the finalized forest conservation plan and protection documents. Four, provide an assessment from the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, Wildlife, and Heritage Service for potential impacts, rare, threatened, and potential impacts of rare, threatened, and endangered species. Five, prior to final site plan approval, provide an automatically renewable decommissioning bond that is enforceable by the county. Six, prior to final site plan approval, provide an automatically renewable landscape surety and maintenance agreement. Seven, provide documentation that connection, provide documentation of the connection to the public utility is approved. Eight, provide a finalized decommissioning plan that addresses all the requirements provided in 18 um, colon one hyphen 95 uh, period S period uh, sub five E. Any outstanding comments stemming from agency reviews are addressed during Board of Appeals submittal. Second. Uh, favorable recommendation with the second. Is there any discussion? Hearing none, all in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? Hearing none. You're all set, ladies. Thank you. Next on the agenda is Major Site Plan SP19-08-0031, Chester Storage, LLC, proposing an 11,150-square-foot expansion of an existing self-storage facility. Mr. Gunther, the floor is yours. The floor is mine again. All right. Sorry, I was just catching up. So now we're on to Chester Storage. Um, there's an existing storage facility in Chester, Maryland. Uh, the applicant is proposing to expand that um, self-storage facility by 11,150 square feet. So here we are down on Kent Island, right off of Main Street in Chester. So inside the dashed red line is the existing facility. Um, the proposed expansion will be directly adjacent to that within the solid red line. Properties are zoned town center. Um, originally, this project, the existing facility, was approved in June of 2003. Um, they did do a field revision, which was approved in August of 2004. 
Um, mini warehouse expansion is a conditional use in the town center district um, as long as it was in existence prior to September 7th of 2004, which this one was. Um, the, they have gotten their conditional use approval from the Board of Appeals. They received that on May 15th of 2019. The existing property is within the critical area designated IDA. The new expansion is outside the critical area completely. Uh, there are no steep slopes, streams, wetlands, woodlands, or endangered or threatened species. This is the uh, Google Street image of the existing facility and its uh, site entrance. This will remain the site entrance for the property even if the expansion should be approved. Um, this is the site. It's a vacant site that the expansion is being proposed on. Um, as you can see right now, it just has a truck, truck to trailer. This, I don't know if that's still there. This, this was taken a while ago. So here's the site plan overlaid on top of the aerial image just so you can get um, a reference on the building orientation. You can see it matches up with uh, what's there so it won't look out of place at all. So with this project, the floor area needs to be calculated twice. Um, they're allowed a 50% expansion of anything that existed before September 2004. So the existing square footage was 31,400 square feet. That would permit them up to 15,700 feet expansion. They are proposing 11,150, so they are clearly under um, their permitted floor area. So then we have to combine that with the existing um, to make sure that they are within the allotment of overall floor area, and they are. Um, the total floor area for the project, if approved, is 42,550. They are under their impervious um, requirements, um, clearly, but they are. They are providing the 14 spaces and parking spaces that are required. They are well under their permitted height limit. There are no new um, sewer or water proposed. Only security lighting on the building is proposed. No new signage. Um, no new office space. This is strictly just a storage building. Stormwater is going to be handled on site within the teal outlined areas. Um, there's a sidewalk existing down here along the existing site. They're going to extend that, the length of the newly proposed site. There will be another access point to the um, proposed facility, but it will be gated and for emergency use only. Um, as I mentioned, you will still access the site via the existing entranceway, which is down here. They're providing all the landscaping uh, that's required. So that's on-site parking lot and street landscaping. In addition, there's um, landscaping required between the residential property and the proposed use. Um, they're providing all of that. And this is the building renderings. Um, the building is its a storage building. It's going to match the color-wise what's there. The orientation is going to match, so it... It should look cohesive as one big site and one big project. And with that, I'll answer any questions you may have, but the applicant is here, and we will allow them to speak on behalf. Great. 
Uh, my name is Cindy Todd. I'm with Lane Engineering, uh, and we are excited to be here. Uh, with me is Mr. Jack Leone, the owner. Um, and honestly, we have been working for the last couple of years. We worked through the uh, Board of Appeals, uh, getting the conditional use for the property, and we have, over the last handful of months, worked very closely with staff uh, for the major site plan approval. And we feel we feel comfortable that our plans uh, meet code, and we've met with all the agencies, and we're in compliance with all the codes and regulations. Um, and so w any questions that you have for us, please ask. I'd like to have Mr. Uh, Leone uh, just kind of talk a little bit about his project and, and his property. Uh, good morning. I'm Jack Leone, uh, owner. I was here a year or so ago. You may or may not remember. Um, we still have a waiting list, and we still have customers who are clamoring for uh, the space, so uh, we're very interested and excited to get started if uh, provided you approve this today. I'm happy to answer any questions you may have relative to the project, if there are any. A question, Mr. Leone, regarding the renderings, uh, and perhaps this is an artifact of shading and other discoloration, but do the renderings that, that we're looking at here with the brown and blue it does does not appear that it actually matches what's existing. It's, uh, it doesn't. I was noticing that as I was looking at the drawings, but the intent is that they will match the existing buildings so as closely as possible. They don't look brown and, and tan and blue. The existing building has a, a, a yellowish siding and a blue roof and blue doors, okay. and these will have the same yellowish siding, blue roof. Okay. Mr. Lee, that's, that's why I mentioned that they will match. It, I think it's a... Um, culprit of our copy machine, right. it's scanned, then it's I emailed, it. then it's I put get into it, but a PowerPoint. we also, in our in our uh, approval commentary, often say has to match significantly what was turned in or something. I don't want it's always all of a sudden it matches, but it doesn't match what we approved. No, uh, you have to understand the existing buildings are, are faded somewhat from their existence, uh, but as closely as we can match that, that's our intention. Thank Everything you. to look uniform. Um, Mr. Gunther, did you address the uh, afforestation? That I was, didn't hear you mention that. That was done with the previous site plan, the original. Okay, because it's still mentioned in here that they need to address that uh, and do the fee and lieu. So. Right, it would be a fee and lieu. Yes. Yeah, yes. there would be a fee and lieu. I, I apologize. No, it's okay. Um, I'm just trying to get... Yes, they, they addressed forest conservation previously and were, I believe, did be in lieu. Then, too, there's really no place on the site because they're allowed 80% impervious cover. Um, and in forest conservation, you want contiguous forest or build forest-like conditions. So that would be why the only reason we would allow them fee in lieu. That, that'll have to be one of our findings. That, yeah. Are there any other questions of the applicant at, at this time? Hearing none, we will take public comment at this time. No public comment. We'll entertain a recommendation uh, to grant major site plan approval. Or deny. Or deny. 
Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, resolved that the planning commission regarding the request by Chester Storage LLC for a major state plan approval for an 11,150 square foot one-story climate-controlled storage building as an expansion of an existing self-storage facility along Main Street and is more particularly described in planning zoning file SP number 19-08-0031 hereby grants major site plan approval for the following conditions. One, the buildings are constructed consistent with the architectural elevations not provided for approval, but at the existing site. Number two, any outstanding comments stemming from agency reviews are addressed prior to final signatures. Three, any required legal documents approved, signed, and recorded. Before all required estimates, bond sureties, review, and inspection fees must be submitted to the Department of Public Works, Department of Planning and Zoning. As appropriate, five, the applicant must complete and have recorded the administrative subdivision prior to final signature on the site plan. And last but not least, the catch-all, all requirements and signatures must be obtained. Second. I have a motion and a second. Any other discussion? Hearing none, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Hearing none, congratulations. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Good luck. I'll ask the commissioner, are we okay to continue or would you like a break? The applicant is Steve Cahoon need? Steve might need. Well, yeah. No, if he's not here, he's that we just remove him from the agenda. <laughs> we call him once and he's gone. <laughs> you walk right over him. <laughs> Hold on, we we got a our uh, now on break. Our sergeant at arms is no. not here. <laughs> All right, and then um, we'll give Mr. Calhoun a minute to set up. Yes, our um, architect's going to need to load up some information. Okay, we'll give you a minute. Get Great. get set. Thank you very much. Yeah, Mr. Calhoun, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much. Steve Calhoun with the Department of Public Works here today to review the concept plan for the Kent Island Library expansion. Um, there's two requests before the Planning Commission today. One is a shore buffer reduction, um, and the other is concept plan approval. Um, I'll run through a couple, an overview of the presentation. Um, we have the architect here today, Craig Williams uh, with Becker Morgan Group. Um, we also have uh, Tom Davis with DMS and Associates here today um, who provided the site uh, concept plan. And then uh, we also have Janet Salazar here with us today, the director of the Queen Anne's County Library, if we have any questions about the function and, of, the, of the library and how it operates. Um, but the, I think everybody's familiar with the location of the library. It's north of Maryland 18. It's on the west side of um, Cox Creek. It is a, um, adjacent to the Kent Island Elementary School and the Bayside Elementary School complex. The property is 16 acres in size. It's zoned suburban estate. Um, suburban estate's an older zoning district. We don't have very many pockets of suburban estate. Um, this one is definitely characterized by uh, county parkland and institutional uses. Um, and uh, um, so it also allows for, for residential development in the suburban estate zoning district. Uh, the property is entirely within the critical area and designated LDA, limited development area. And 
Um, we are proposing, uh, the county is, is um, proposing an 11,900 square foot expansion. And as I mentioned, we're requesting a shore buffer reduction from 100 feet or from 300 feet down to 100 feet in the area of construction um, and concept plan approval today. Uh, there, there's the 16 acre site. As you can see, most of it is wooded. Um, the current uh, library design is, is compact with the building and the parking and the access out to 18. Um, there is uh, an existing stormwater management facility uh, that's located just to the uh, east of the access drive. There's one only a small area, the portion that's cleared, and that's the area where the proposed addition um, is, is to go. Uh, you can see the headwaters of Cox Creek there that run up the entire uh, east side of the property. Um, and the length and the configuration of the property makes, uh, makes it so that uh, most of the property is within the 300-foot shore buffer. The concept plan shows the 300-foot shore buffer um, as, as it comes down and then uh, hits the area of the proposed addition, but it also sh uh, shows that the existing portions of the existing library fall within the 300-foot shore buffer and areas of existing parking, the, uh, most of the area of the existing parking lot falls within the 300-foot shore buffer. Um, this is just an um, air photo showing a little bit more detail. Um, the proposed addition would go on the east side of the building, um, and the parking would be expanded to the east as well. Um, the existing building is 9,530 square feet. We're proposing an 11,900 square foot addition for a total of 21,430 square foot uh, library facility. Currently, there's 71 parking spaces, and they're proposing 121. Um, that is above the required parking based on the square footage of the building. The required parking based on the square footage of the building would be 96 parking spaces, but in co consultation with the library and the fact that there's going to be meeting space um, and how the programming uh, is done at the library, it is a very heavily used facility, and it's felt like the additional parking is required. Um, the property with the LDA uh, limitations is limited to 15% lot coverage, and the concept plan meets that uh, with uh, only 13.3% lot coverage. So um, we're within the critical area uh, lot coverage limitations, within the forest clearing limitations, um, and fully comply with all critical area regulations. Um, Steve, before you get on to the shore buffer reduction, maybe you should explain we don't hear about the 300-foot shore buffer much anymore. It's sort of a vestige of 30 years ago. So maybe you could explain why there's a 300-foot shore buffer here, which we sure. rarely deal with anymore. Sure. Um, so back when critical area laws were first adopted, um, the county adopted a 300-foot shore buffer, which is more restrictive than the critical area law. And or political that, reasons for that. At, at time. that time, um, it was uncertain how critical area laws, regulations would be incorporated into the local ordinances, and the county tried to put more restrictive uh, provisions in place to implement critical area in the hopes we would not have to do a full-blown critical area ordinance. Um, that did not come to fruition. What ended up happening is we put the 300-foot shore buffer in place for non-residential uses and high 
density residential uses and then had to adopt the full critical area program as prescribed by the state anyway. So, But it's a vestige of 30-year-ago efforts to uh, resist, let's put it that way, uh, the uh, full implementation of the critical area mandates. It didn't work, and it's unfortunately still floating around in these few zoning districts that it may not make sense to continue with, but it's still there. So um, in this zoning district, the standard critical area shore buffer is 100 feet, um, and we're asking that that be the the set regulation for um, this property and not the 300-foot as prescribed only in our zoning ordinance. This is permissible because more than 50% of the project, of the property, is within the shore buffer, the the 300-foot shore buffer. So um, along with the 300-foot shore buffer, there's a provision that if the majority of the property, more than 50%, is within the shore buffer, the 300-foot shore buffer, the Planning Commission has the ability to grant a reduction in that shore buffer for reasonable use of the property. Um, At one point um, back in the 80s, that was a variance before the Board of Appeals. Um, But as the code got updated, as we – as the critical area ordinance and program uh, was put in place, it it became a planning commission review and and reduction as opposed to a Board of Appeals variance. So on this site um, and with this shore buffer reduction – uh, the 300-foot shore buffer covers 75% of the property. Um, uh, it's po- the new uh, building will be within between 300-foot and 100-foot, as well as the proposed parking. Um, portions of the existing building were are in the 300-foot buffer. Um, as mo- um, much of the shore buffer will remain um, as it is today. You know, there's uh, many acres of the shore buffer that will not be impacted with this reduction. It's only in the area where construction will occur around the building um, and where the parking is expanded. Um, And, as I said, we comply with with the critical area, um, all the current critical area regulations. This is just a blow-up showing um, where the extent of the parking uh, and this is to tie it into the existing parking lot in an efficient manner. Um, the proposed addition is to tie into the existing building, um, and for the function of the building, it's a uh, um, that's the best location to put the addition. Um, and the our, our architect will speak to that in just a minute. So uh, the architect's going to review the um, Craig Williams will review the interior of the building and the elevations a little bit. Um, we're requesting planning commission feedback on that uh, on the elevations, um, and this is concept plan. We're looking at a concept plan approval and a shore buffer reduction so that we can move into engineering. Um, but this will have this project will return to the planning commission for a site plan approval in the future. So, it's, I think it's important to point out, uh, given what the elevations look like, that the design guidelines that we often um, uh, are asked to review in the TC and the other zoning districts. The, those design guidelines do not apply to the SE district. I need to connect you up. Unfortunately. Oh. roofs apparently are okay in the SE district. 
Uh, Mr. Cahoon, before we go further, can I question the, your comment about mitigation for the tree removal? Can you expand upon that since, you know, we just talked about fees in lieu and does the county pay itself for fee in lieu or what are your... So with, with critical area tree removal in the LDA, it's one-to-one -one replacement and we will have to replace that tree clearing. Um, if we, if It's not likely on this site because of the amount of woodlands that already exists. Um, it'll need to be replaced on another county site. You're not proposing a fee in lieu. You're applying direct one-to-one -one mitigation yes, sir. in another critical area location. On county-owned property. Right, right. Okay. Correct. Has that property been identified? Uh, not at this point. Um, we have, um, no, we, we have not selected the, the property. That's a conversation we have to have with parks. Is the, um, is the area of woodland that's being removed a designated woodland? And, and does the removal comply with section, with chapter 18, section 166 that provides that no more than 20% of a um, can't read my own writing of an area designated woodland can be disturbed. Yes. Is that pertinent in this case, and how? Uh, yes, it is. So the the um, twenty percent woodland clearing on the property within the critical area applies to the total amount of woodlands that exist on the property, and I think the um, proposed clearing is four tenths of an acre out of the. Um, uh, don't have the, of the size of the site. Eight and a half. It, it's not the size. It's, it's the amount of the existing woodlands. Right. So twenty percent of the existing woodlands, which make up an estimated uh, twelve acres of the site. Um, There's twelve acres of woodlands. Oh, I have to refer to the concept okay. plan to answer that <laughs> okay. question. Um, and we just switched over to the architect. So, um, Mr. Davis might be able to help me with the, that. The entire back part of the property is wooded. Uh -huh. uh, and it's, I don't know, it's at least 10 acres. I don't, I don't have the exact square footage, but we're within that 20% clearing. You are. Okay. Good morning. Um, I can walk you through just to kind of Can brief. you identify yourself? Oh, Craig Williams with Beck and Morgan Group. I can walk you through a brief narrative of the building and how we uh, developed this, uh, the addition and um, its connection to the existing building. Um, you may be able to see on here the existing and new. Uh, I can trace it out quickly. The existing building follows this line down here, picks up. So everything to the right is new and everything to the left is existing. Um, one of the big challenges with this building is that they wanted to remain open during construction. So we uh, had to develop a, a phasing um, uh, sort of concept that that could happen. So the central core, which is where the workroom is located and where all the staff is located, um, has its mechanical mezzanine above that. So when this new building is complete, It'll have all the, the restrooms required for a library use, uh, for individual um, use toilets and a staff toilet. Um, mechanical room will be up and running to supply everything that's required for this new addition. At that time, the entire facility will move over into the new addition. We'll close off the old, renovate the existing building, connect into the mechanical systems, 
and then once that once that complete, it will all be open up again as one facility. So basically, everything to the right is the library. What we think of as books and um, program spaces, very small ones, and, and toilet rooms. To the left are all the meeting rooms and classrooms. So that all of that can be done somewhere else um, if they have programs during the during the construction phase. Um, but the library should be day-to-day use should be able to continue. Um, the woods that we the current uh, forest is about we're really close into that uh, cleared area now. So to um, really respect that, we've created this really sort of a glass box that allows a lot of outdoor views into that into that nature. It's uh, we've done a lot of libraries, and this is just a trend that we are seeing continuing to grow, which is this um, you know bringing the outside in. It's, it's if you, it's a term. It's called biophilia. Um, it creates a better space, creating natural lighting views to outside. Much different than the existing facility, which uh, was the old way libraries were done, which is you know you're sort of centered on looking at the books. Um, very small meeting rooms. It really wasn't about program spaces. So what we what we've done here is create a more modern facility that will shows a 50-year future of technology growth, um, which is we're seeing for libraries as well, maker spaces and innovation centers. Uh, they're really technology hubs for the future. Um, we have a children's area with a breakout space to an outdoor, um, we don't want to call it a playground, but it's really an outdoor classroom. Um, some small, uh, some stroller parking, which is a requirement for the uh, uh, library staff. The main adult stacks is where most of the books are going to be. A teen area, and some breakout study rooms that also take in those exterior views to really sort of enjoy that view. And they're almost like pods in this glass box. And we have some additional ones over here for study, history, uh, room. And as we notice, this is the circulation. Right directly in the middle of the building. Um, the old entrance is here. We've shifted that over to here, central to the, between the new and the old. Um, as most of the patrons enter, they have complete view of the main circulation space. The staff can monitor the main entrance. They can monitor teen uh, children's and the adult. Our concept usually for libraries, we like to see if we can get the entire facility to run with basically one employee if it has to. Um, and really that's one person could stand in this area and monitor pretty much 90% of the library. After hours use, um, there's a glass wall here and another door here into the main library. That shuts down and the entire meeting room facility in the existing building can be used for after hours use. We'll be using card access, temporary uh, control, so someone could rent that classroom right there. <coughs> they have access to the toilet rooms and just that classroom. Or an event can use everything, uh, all six meeting rooms. Uh, we have a very large uh, meeting, room with, meeting room with a dividing wall, uh, holds about 250 people, um, small kitchenette, catering kitchen, uh, f- with its own separate entrance so the caterers can come in from a back parking lot here and serve any of the functions going on there. 
kind of a really good brief um, description of the building. Again, we, oh, we actually have an outdoor patio out here. Again, trying to bring the inside outside so we can have outdoor reading areas on nice days, outdoor program space. So right now that um, green space is very beautiful, but you can't access it. It's really treated like the back of the building. We have, our hope is to completely change that and to make this really almost like it's a front yard for the building. Uh, so I'm going to go quickly here to the updated outdoor views. So this is at the the existing building from the left. The mechanical mezzanine that sort of stretches between those two buildings, and we've tried to hide that back with a darker material, keep the ceilings as low as possible. Um, very large volume of space in here, but we're still actually keeping the roof lines similar to the existing building. Uh, the existing building will get all new windows to bring it up to the new energy code. Uh, all the interior walls will be replaced with new um, insulation to bring it up to the energy code. So picking up some of those lines and the materials, we're, we're bringing our, our concept with this was not to replicate every detail of the existing building, but really to pull the new elements into the existing building. So we're pulling, we have a, a composite wood material here, which is, you know, it has at least a 50-year warranty. Um, it's, a, it's a wood material that's impregnated with acrylic on a composite material, very stable, um, lasts a very long time. We'll be putting some elements on the existing building to pull that across. And then we have some uh, site walls that will, be, that will pull some of the brick into that as well. It's showing some, a night view of it. Again, glowing, more inviting to pull people into it, something that we're not seeing in the current facility. And with our new windows we're putting in the, in the old facility, there'll be large areas of glass, very few mullions, again, so you can have those views into the, into the building. Looking from the back, this is a little bit of an exaggeration because we've removed some trees just so you can see the building, but the tree line is really going to be right up onto this patio. So it's going to be a great shaded space for reading and enjoying outdoor space. This is the children's area with its breakout um, play area. This is a teen area which, uh, with tables along that window so the teens can, they can see out and have a study, an area to study. Uh, outdoor seating. One of the study rooms. Or there's actually two study rooms in there, very low windows. And you'll notice these little windows we've placed around <coughs> throughout the building. This is again, it's, it's seeing the ground. If you're seated, you have a nice view that you can see out. Um, but it's limiting that view a little bit, so you still feel some privacy, but you have that connection to outside. We have the same composite wood soffits, pulling large overhangs to shade the building to help meet our energy code requirements and daylighting requirements. Side patio, possibility of a fire pit and some outdoor seating, study rooms. And again, the main entrance, vestibule here, the wood composite, 
and looking into the teen area, it's very natural landscaping, um, eastern shore sort of um, native grasses, things like that. I don't know if I have... Again. So that's what I've got here. Comments? What is the exterior building um, material? Is that concrete on the, ba- on the new portion? Uh, the gray? Yes. That is a um, cementitious siding. It's a, a rain plank. screen system. It's not hardy. <laughs> um, we are actually trying to avoid doing anything that's inexpensive like that. This is actually called Oco Skin. It is a um, 5 eighths inch thick um, cementitious siding with a 50-year warranty applied on a rain screen system, which will be um, a composite, non-conductive um, type of rain screen so we can keep our thermal barrier. Behind that, we will have rock wall and then an exterior sheathing, waterproofing. So there will be about a two-inch gap between that siding and the insulation. So it's definitely a modern um, meets and exceeds the energy code requirements. Um, the wood composite is applied exactly the same way. Uh, it's just a different material finish. What is semi-titious? You've taught me I mean, a new it's word. Like hardy. That's what it's we like see most of board. the places. Um, but this is actually where if you've ever seen hardy and you break it, it's a different color inside because it's painted, even if it's painted at the factory. The oco skin is the same color all the way through. So it's a concrete panel, really, is what it's made of. Um, and it kind of really kind of harks back to the, to the brick. Um, it's, it's very similar as far as clay-like material. So how close to you are, is this going to be a lead? No, we're not no. doing lead, but we will, it will definitely be green. How, how close to net zero would you say the project is? Um, we would like to be better. Um, but that, unfortunately, we do have some, some budget uh, constraints that we aren't able to do. You know, well, I, I've heard based off the design, you're already significantly over budget. And by going net zero, the county can recoup a lot of funding. The initial cost may come up uh, a little bit higher, but you recoup your costs a lot faster uh, for the operation of the building. Have you looked at that concept? We have. Um, the entire team has. And um, I think multiple times, actually, we revisited many times. And I think at the end, we really just, the challenge of the initial budget has proved um, impossible to, to really follow that as a net zero. Um, unfortunately, with, with some of our choices that we have here, we are providing alternates for other architectural elements. You know, if we can afford it, we'll build the, the metal roof. If we can afford it, we'll do a, you know, a better siding. We'll, but when it comes to our HVAC, we had to make that decision at this point. We couldn't design two systems simultaneously and hope to choose one if we had enough money um, once the final bids came in. So what was your cost per square foot versus a traditional brick-and-mortar type construction versus all the glazing and steel? Um, I that's, We've kind of gone back and forth. I think we're somewhere around four, a little over $400 a square foot, which is significantly less than what we're seeing in library trends. Um, most of our libraries are running around 500 to 550 a square foot. Um, so we've done a, we've, I mean, I feel our team has done a great job of reducing that cost as much as possible, but still creating an efficient building. 
Um, we haven't skimped on the insulation um, thermal requirements at all. Our HVAC is it's not the most efficient system, but it is a, it's a good system. Um, to keep the cost down as much as possible, we're doing VRFs. Um, we're doing uh, two package units on, a, on the rooftop in the back, so we're hiding that. Um, trying I to thought all the mechanical systems were in the mezzanine. Now you're incorporating rooftop equipment, yeah, which isn't shown in your concept plan, which now adds additional height. Uh, no, it's actually it should it's on the concept plan. Uh, let me bring that up for you. That's I guess that's a good thing that you didn't notice it because that was our hope. <laughs> uh, this is on the second floor mezzanine. Everything in here is inside, and then this is a outside area that is at the same height as this. We have a wall that's blocking it, so you don't it's see it. It's a screen it. wall. Yeah, so really it's just open to the air. And then we have the two package units and then uh, two parts for a split system for a VRF. So these two are pro providing our fresh air to the building. And these two are supplying all the individual VRFs throughout the building for the heating and cooling. Everything else then is inside. Because we do, we really like to keep as much inside the building as possible, which is why we really like geothermal. Um, we wish we could afford it for this one, but we just, we looked at the option life cycle costs. It just it was not affordable. Can we go back to renderings or leave it on this? Okay. I I just, I guess, I'll share with you two design comments. Would you like me to go to the renderings, or? Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, the first one is um, the, the front entrance of the building. Um, the, obviously, the, the area that's the yellow part of the elevation is the, the new main entrance. Mm -hmm. And I would just suggest uh, looking at some more of the site work before the, you get to the entrance that, that helps guide someone towards that. In other words, the, the way the a parking lot is for the existing building, it, it brings you all the way up into and, and it seems to emphasize those doors of, of the existing building. Whereas you want to really emphasize the doors of the new addition as being the main entrance. And, and therefore, I, I think you um, possibly could use some more asphalt or something right in front of the main entrance to, to point that out as being more of the entrance that people should focus on when they come in. I agree. Okay. So yeah, that, we can definitely look at that. that that's one thing. And, and the second thing is... What, what you what you show in the monitors is 20% better than what shows here. Uh, uh, well, with, when uh, we got that uh, preview for the presentation, I'm like, oh, no, no, that's, 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 that's older, yeah. Well, a, a area always of concern is, is when you have a existing building of a certain style, you have an addition of a totally different architectural style, and how do you meld those two together so that there's a seamless transition, and it's within that area now, the fact that you have a, a yellow entrance of vestibule helps stand it off. But I still think you, you, you need to focus on just that indentation, which I think is great that, you ind that everything's indented, but in, in that so that the average person, when they look at it, can clearly see that they're, they're two different you know, sort of buildings that don't... What you, I guess what you want to avoid is a new addition feeling like it was shoved up against an existing building. Exactly. 
and, and that's what you need to focus on so that it reads as a separate addition that is meant to be there. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Okay. These are not concerns or issues that we um, are new to us. <laughs> For this, we, it was definitely from the beginning was um, how to integrate this new um, to the old and um, we looked at several options. Um, we had looked at one point of trying to pull the brick more over, and I think we we just it, it did it wasn't working. And sometimes it doesn't work. What, right. what you need to do is you have an, a new addition, and it's just the way how you break from one to another without shoving them together. And you don't necessarily need to have the same materials or the same anything, but the transitions got to read separately as you know two separate sort of buildings. <coughs> not shoved together. Great. Thank you. Yeah. We'll, we'll, look at, yeah. We'll, look, we'll look at that and see. Um, I mean, we feel like that was successful, but um, we can definitely talk with our team and see if, you know, um, if there's ways to improve it. Yeah, you just want to make sure that it totally reads as two separate buildings and that the break is complementary. It's taller. Um, I think you've probably answered this in, uh, through your cost discussion, but um, I understand from a programmatic perspective why you would want the extra parking more than required. Um, but I'm a little concerned that we have so much asphalt in, a, in the buffer area, and I'm wondering whether you have considered an impervious surf surface of some type for that parking. Actually, some of the spaces, uh, there was some spaces that are being proposed on the access drive coming in, and we're considering that as pervious uh, pavers. So some of that pervious will be pervious. pavers. That's yes. what I meant. I'm yeah. sorry. I and then uh, the, the main parking lot, though, because we figure that's going to have the most wear and tear, will be at Petumas uh, Concrete uh, parking lot to match the existing. And then stormwater management will be provided all on the outside of the, the new parking lot. Whereas those pervious pavers in themselves are addressed stormwater management by the volume of water that right. can trickle down through the stone reservoir. And you, do, and you did, didn't consider pervious concrete for the back? We did not. For the new parking? Point. So the, 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 the 10 or 11 spaces there on the entrance road coming in, uh -huh. those, are, those will be pervious. But, um, and we can talk with the Department of Public Works, maybe this outer bay of spaces uh, to the, the bottom of the parking lot, maybe some of those can be pervious. Uh, we're just getting into the design right, okay. right now. We'll, we'll take a look at where we can add that. I mean, we did it here at this building and other places. We want to incorporate those types of practices. Right, particularly since it's so close to the in Considering the buffer. similar system that's out here in the parking lot. Uh -huh. I, I think it's a great opportunity for the county to lead by example. Obviously, with the critical area uh, intrusion slash in, um, expansion. And while I may, Mr. Davis, while you're here. Um, so I'm looking at the uh, floodplain lines, right, the Zone X and Zone AE. I guess that's the it's a annual designation or an elevation, right? And you have significant parking uh, in those areas and driveways. I'm sort of wondering where your stormwater practices would be placed yeah. and how you're going to, you know, how you're going to park cars in a flooded parking lot. Well, I mean, that's. I think that line is like a, a elevation seven or so. And our one of them's five. five. Okay. The, the, the intent is, is that the parking lot grading on the corner will be at least above the uh, the floodplain elevation of the hundred-year okay. flood. You'll bring that up. Yes, that corner will be brought up, 
And then our intent is to have a, a stormwater system that treats the back of the building, down the side, and the outfall will actually tie into the existing stormwater management system. And on this lower corner, about where uh, he has the cursor right now, that'll be a submerged gravel wetland. But the elevation of the parking lot will be brought up to at least the 100-year flood elevation of five. But have you looked to see whether you need a variance for that under the floodplain ordinance? No, there's no... There's 600 no, square, isn't it 600 cubic no, feet? No, they took that out years ago. Yeah. Okay. There's, no, there's no limit on filling the floodplain anymore. So. And have, have these elevations and, the, and these sort of content plans understood at this stage taken into consideration sea level rise and increased precipitation levels and just you know we're here we're we're treading up against the uh increasingly soggy ground and with this project and others i and being recently appointed to the county's resiliency planning work group we were in this very room for six hours yesterday talking about not the not the if but the when um and the predictions are, are downright scary. And this, this panel received a briefing from Eastern Shore Land Conservancy six months ago, let's say, plus or minus. And all of us sort of went into the back room for lunch and went, wow, that was a bit sobering. Um, and I, I, I want to be obviously careful and sensitive and, and protective of the downstream environments. Um, and at the same time, lead by example for the county. Therefore, let's not show the wrong way to do things when we've got time and planning in front, and in front of us. Mr. Wisnowski, you were coming up to say something, I see. But not on the site plan. Okay. But I agree with what you said, Mr. Lee. Um, I don't know, Tom. Mr. Davis, I just, I'm, I, I'm not, I didn't lose sleep over this, but I, I'm looking at these flood lines and I see concerns and problems, um, especially if, you know, stormwater retention and, and your outfalls and the submerged gravel wetlands, which need to be wet, but they don't like salt water. And Cox Creek is a is a is a uh, impacted water body, severely polluted, um, and this is the headwaters, and it's county property. And when we're talking about budgets and and over budgets and constraints, these aren't expensive. They are not inexpensive practices, right? Stormwater management um, over time, especially if they're flooded and have fish swimming in them. <laughs> With, uh, with storm surge and, and increased sea level rise and, and greater precipitation rates, uh, that, that causes concern. So while you're working through this, I would request, please, that that is taken into consideration and we look at those impacts as we move forward in our planning, especially in these areas that have been known to flood already, and they're only going to get more so impacted. That the intent right now was to bring that corner up to at least a hundred year flood elevation of five, but we can take a look at bringing it up and I just yeah, on. you would mention you're putting other your submerged gravel wetlands in that buffer and it, it just I don't know it's not clear to me at this point because obviously we're conceptual level of, of investigation here um, but you're asking for feedback and I'm providing it. I appreciate <laughs> it um, you know topographically that's the way the, the ground slopes so. I mean, it's logical to put the stormwater there. Um, and we have another system up that would treat the rooftop water. It's at a higher elevation. That would be a bioretention system. So the two systems would feed together and then ultimately drain into the existing pond, which already has an outfall into the non-tidal wetlands there. So. so architecturally, have you looked at capturing some of that rainwater into cisterns to be used as non-potable um, to help with sewage and things of that nature? Which... 
could have a few areas that we could easily which do could that. be cost effective mm -hmm. um, increase our our zero or carbon foot decrease the carbon footprint um, and be cost effective so I, I I have some concerns with the concept um, honestly I share mr. Uh, Douglas's you know we're abutting a, a new versus old it's in my opinion it's very urban um, in a rural env rural environment um, and as even though this is a concept plan I'm not real pleased with the concept you know uh, I understand we have cost overruns um, that won't even allow the project to go forward so there's going to be significant changes that I think that have to be made I'm in support of the library addition but I just think maybe it's a little premature, in my opinion, uh, to to be receiving all this information, uh, considering we don't, you know, there's way too many things out there to, to be addressed. Was there a conscious decision made to not apply, frankly, any of the design guidelines from the adjacent zoning districts that have mandatory design guidelines? Well, let, let, let me jump in here. So uh, it's a shame uh, Ms. Dobson's not here because I'm going to preference my comments with a story. When I first came here four and a half years ago, um, it was right when the Denny's restaurant was, was coming in for approval. And Salmon colored tie. They laid out the architecture, and I thought, wow, this is nice. This is fresh. This is new. And Mrs. Dobson said, don't you know we have something called Eastern Shore Vernacular? And it's brick and peak roofs. So I learned a bit of a lesson. My point is this is a far cry from what we traditionally have seen on the Eastern Shore. Uh, and as uh, a previous partner in a landscape architecture planning and architecture firm, we've done libraries. And we've done them more in the traditional sense which this is not. This is, this is a deviation from that. I'm, I'm not suggesting it's, it's wrong or incorrect. All I'm saying, it's not what we traditionally have seen here on the Eastern Shore, nor is it traditionally what we have seen for libraries. So I just want to make sure it's well vetted and everyone's comfortable with this concept, which is a deviation from what we, what we normally see here on the Eastern Shore. I think... Uh, what Mr. Reese said and what Mr. Douglas said are, are valid points, that uh, maybe the architecture should be a bit more in tune with a more traditional type of, uh, of architecture and something that, that we've seen here on the Eastern Shore, if, if that's possible. That was all. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Uh, actually, I like the clean-cut uh, appearance of it, quite frankly. Uh, and that's fine. I just want to make sure we have all those questions answered because it, it's it, once you begin to redesign or redesign architecture, it's an expense. It's a cost. And we want to be as, as efficient as possible. So I guess the point is, if you, if you have some real issues or concern, let's address them now so... So the architect gets a clear direction on, on coming back to us with something that we think we can embrace. We have something that's uh, somewhere between Eastern Shore Vernacular and Brutalist. <laughs> that's his word. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen Brutalist. That's not Brutalist. <laughs> Pretty close. Um, um, agree to disagree. Um, 
the um, I, I think that's where we are actually. These are we've done many libraries that are meet that go from very traditional um, to Lewis Library being one of them um, to extremely modern. And I think we've hit a sweet spot with this one. Um, the existing building built in the, in the 80s is, was a very modern building when it was built. Um, you know, there's the, the schools next to it also. These are modern buildings. Um, you know, every building is modern when it's built. So, you know, this isn't a historic building, so we don't need to match it historically. Um, and we don't, you know, we are in a historic district, so what we did is we took all the important aspects, which were the proportions, the, the roof lines, the, all those, those areas, and pulled it across into a, mo- a building that says to the public, we are a new facility. We would like you to, you know, to enjoy all the new things that we have to offer for the next 50 years, possibly the next 100 years. And that's what this building says. It does not say we are the same old library, we're just larger. It says we are a new library. Please come and try all our new our new things that we have to offer. And when people walk into any new facility, any new library that's been redesigned, they are always shocked at what libraries can offer now. And this building needs to be modernized from 40 years old to what libraries are being done today. Yep. Um, my, I have another suggestion. You know, if, if you take into account the two suggestions I made earlier, Yes. The third su- suggestion I have is this presentation. If you could do like a, a 3D isometric of it, which shows it, because then it will show how the building breaks up a bit, how to reads. Now it's the, the different planes of the building all come together, whereas if you could see it a, a bit like looking down a bit and they'll rotate it a bit and see the building, I think it would read a lot better and come across a lot better if you could see it on those terms. Actually, I agree because I brought a. Um, I was intending to do a 3D walkthrough with you today, but technology-wise, it wouldn't work out. So, <laughs> um, I luckily had some like renderings a 3D, on here. You no, know, but uh, uh, isometric that shows all the massing. Shows. Well, so, I mean, colors. I was going to be able to show you that yeah. today, but unfortunately, because otherwise, yeah, I would have liked to have had that. Right. So you can because the the way the mezzanine reaches out into the building, there is definitely a crossing over. Um, you can really sort of pick it up here, but um, can't really get the full um, you know, impact of that. But the building does blend in massing. Um, we but don't this, with this rendering. You know, the, the I just want to touch on what Mike said. This rendering, it, you know, I've had some feedback on, and um, the, what's on the screen right now shows a, uh, just a, a portion of the old library. When you see the whole library that exists today in the context with the new library. Some of the comments I've heard in, over the last week is the um, the very different architectural style, styles between the existing and the new. So, I mean, if that's a concern, then I think what Mike was saying is... That's one of the, the other two items I mentioned, though, too, is to also look at, again, about uh, joining the two different styles together um, and also the at the the front entrance making that more pronounced that this is the front entrance and the easy way to, to get there. Mr. Egg, you join the table. Please I identify yourself for the record. And- Thank you. Uh, good morning, Commissioners. Uh, Lee Edgar with the Department of Public Works. I, if, if I may, I want to speak to a few of the items that were brought up, all very good uh, points. 
Um, the Department of Public Works has the uh, unique position of working on this project not only from the regulatory standpoint as it relates to stormwater management floodplain, but also in representing the owner, working with library staff and the architect in preparing a design that meets the needs of the library, conforms with modern stormwater and floodplain requirements, and keeping it within the financial uh, constraints that we have, and uh, we have been working with the commissioners on that. Uh, a few different things uh, regarding stormwater, as Tom had alluded, it is somewhat conceptual. We have spoken with Tom, and we have uh, he has tentatively identified permeable pavement, probably permeable pavers, which would match some of the colors in the building that would go in there. The submerged gravel wetlands seem very appropriate with its adjacency to some of the wetlands. So. Some of the ESD practices that are proposed are, are very much uh, consistent and proper. Um, there, there was a good point on the floodplain and fill that would relate to non-tidal floodplain. In this case, it's tidal. So elevating some of those areas with the parking lots is, is not so much of an issue. Um, the project, as you see it, is within budget. And this project has probably been one of the more fulfilling and challenging projects we've had to work with in that trying to keep it within the budget and the constraints of we're looking at receiving a sizable grant from the state as well as the commissioners matching that 50%. So we have had to work very closely to keep the costs down. And as such, some of the things we talked about, lead certification and such, just are not opportunities because we don't have the financial ability to do that. However, there are very many different energy saving uh, things that are being incorporated into the project. One of the things I want to make sure that you had an opportunity to do is to speak with uh, Janet, uh, who is the director for the library, and she can speak to some of the uses and designs. One of the unique things, years ago when I first walked into the Center of the Library about 15 years ago, I was very surprised by how noisy it was. And I guess that shows it had been a while since I walked into a library because I remembered it, shh, quiet. But that's, libraries are different today. And one of the unique aspects that we found is letting that light in. They are, they are social areas. They are places where programs and things are held. And that's where... The program space is a critical component of this, and the vast expanses of glass and things with the idea they could bring in light, tie it into the adjacent surroundings, the woodlands and all that, and then those open spaces. And the parking also addresses some of the parking concerns that Julie, our branch librarian, is here as well, and she can speak to some of the concerns. Even though it provides enough parking per code, we want to make sure that there's sufficient parking for some of the events. So anyway, that's my long-winded way of saying that uh, you've raised some very concern, very good concerns. Those are things that we have looked at. And if, if it pleases the commission, because we are on a tight schedule for it, we would be delighted to um, sit down and, and discuss that complementary transition between the buildings and things as the project proceeds from concept plan to site plan where, where most of the detailed site engineering will go. Thank you. Mr. Edgar, if I may, while you're here, um, you obviously are fully aware, and you're actually on the uh, workshop, the resilience workshop, as is Mr. Cahoon with me, so I appreciate the county's involvement and investment in that. And sort of going back, I've, I've, I've already said what I wanted to say on, on the sea level rise concerns, but obviously this is in the heart of our MS4, pending MS4 jurisdictional permit, right, the stormwater, urban stormwater and 
that excess of parking, although it sounds like it's relatively justified or it's premeditated to be something to, to look for the future of expansion and, and increased use of the facility, uh, how does this, would this impact that MS4 and how would that, right, do you understand that we're, yes. we're paving and we should be paving less because we're going to have to come back and treat that pavement at some point. So it makes sense to me that we should address that now and, and, and how do you see that besides the pervious pavement uh, option, you know, or could there be shared parking, yeah. right? The, the schools are across the street next door. Are there other more creative ways we could look at reducing, because you're exceeding the, the required by 24, 25 spaces. That's very, 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 very expensive to put down previous pavers on. Um, so I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that, or at least now that I've said it, it's, it's sort of in your, on your plate to sort of address moving forward. Absolutely, and it's a relatively easy one to answer. Of course, parking is unique. Either people provide too much or not enough. In this case, the initiative behind providing enough parking is ensuring that there is enough there to support the events and activities that will be going on at the library. And there is tremendous demand for the meeting rooms. Uh, Julie, the branch librarian, she can speak to that. It's, it's, it's very difficult to get it reserved because there's so much need. So this design does provide for that. On the parking, excellent question. For the MS4, any new development that goes in, or even some existing, provided that stormwater management practices, specifically ESD to the MEP, if the ESD to the MEP is provided, that area effectively, what MS4 does is it, it um, you're looking at providing management for untreated surfaces. So in this case, it would be all treated because all the parking that's proposed here will need to meet ESD to the MEP. That may be through a combination of the submerged gravel wetlands or the permeable pavement. In the case of the permeable pavement, where those spots are permeable, from a stormwater perspective, the, the pavement effectively doesn't exist. So all the permeable stalls, from a stormwater perspective, effectively won't be there. The areas that are traditional payment would need to be treated with ESD practices, and they would be such that MS4 would not have this would not have any implications on MS4. And to, sorry to keep monopolizing the conversation, but uh, back to Mr. Davis, that corner of the uh, at the southeast corner of the parking lot there, where the your um, the flood zone uh, you know crosses the newly uh, proposed uh, parking spaces. Would you would that be a retaining wall on that back edge to bring that elevation up? No, it would just slope off to so the be, surface of the uh, submerged gravel wetland. Okay. This, this is my proposal. So I've graded it out right now. Okay. Yeah, it just, it's just, it doesn't come, obviously doesn't, no, doesn't I, show it's here. Not, it's not on these. Just plans. trying to mentally wrap my head around the, what the that would look like. The purpose of these like. plans, honestly, was just for the shore buffer on, from our aspect of it, the shore buffer reduction, so right. specific to that. Yeah, just we're, in, the, in this rendering. Go, sorry, go ahead. We're actively working on the design. Okay. So. Yeah, just in the rendering here, it looks like there's trees that you could Pull a few leaves off from your parking, you know, from your parking lot space, but that's not to be the case, not to that extreme. In this rendering here, no. Back to the site plan, the elevation. We're actually clearing some trees to build the stormwater system. Yeah. So here, right. So you've got. Yeah. So there'll be a margin of trees that'll be cleared on this lower side, but we're still. In, in compliance with the 20% that Ms. Tolliver had mentioned. Okay, and also, Mr. Davis, if you don't mind, sort of right here, you've got uh, your non-tidal wetlands buffer. Can you 
We've modified Explain that. Explain why that looks like it's in that, the, that was originally drawn from the stormwater pond tilt slope, and that's not a regulated wetland. So that'll be addressed on the final construction. I see. Okay. That, that wetland buffer came from the uh, till of the slope of the stormwater system, which is not regulated as a wetland. Right. So that's mislabeled. Yes. That's a big mislabel. Yeah, that's a big mislabel. Okay. All right. Any Thank other you. questions? Just to clarify, um, I pulled up the concept plan, and to answer Ms. Tolliver's question, it's 0.34 acres of clearing, which is 4% of the existing woodlands on site. So it is a Mr. Cahoon, you have to speak up. We I'm really sorry. can't hear you. The, the, um, the woodland clearing is 0.34 acres on the site, which is 4% of the existing woodlands, which is in compliance with that 20% limit you were asked about. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you, gentlemen. This time we'll entertain any public comment. Yeah, let me get out of the way. Wow. So if you would please identify yourself um, and where you're from. Good morning. My name is Ellie Bassett. I am your Miles Wide Riverkeeper. I work with Shore Rivers, which works to protect the waterways of the eastern shore including Queen Anne's County. So particularly, I focus on Eastern Bay, the Wye River, and the Miles River. So I share a lot of the concerns that were brought up today. Um, I just wanted to come and give a bit more background on this watershed in particular. I think you could say that I am favorable with amendments. Um, the parking lot is concerning to me in particular. Uh, Cox Creek, well, Eastern Bay itself is actually, has predominantly better water quality than any other rivers on the eastern shore. However, Cox Creek over the past few years has seen a decline trend in water quality, which is unique. All of the neighboring water quality tributaries have actually seen an in improvement. So Crab Alley, Prospect Bay, Shipping Creek have seen upward trends of water quality. Cox Creek is declining. Um, what we also know is as we go upstream while testing, uh, we tend to see our water quality decline as we go further upstream. So that means that the pollution is coming from our land. It's not what's coming from the Chesapeake Bay. That also means that we have an opportunity to improve this water quality. Um, the county has recently invested in dollars to work to identify best management practices in Old Love Point Park, uh, which is even further upstream in the headwaters of Cox Creek. I think that putting in additional parking, which is not required, putting in pavement and removing mature forest within the critical area buffer will threaten and jeopardize and that project that the county is investing in upstream. Um, again, I think also according to, I know that sea level rise was brought up by Mr. Lee, but just to give some more facts, according to Maryland's Environmental Resource and Land Information Network, which is an online tool that Maryland DNR um, operates, this portion, the parking lot portion in particular, is at threat to a 5 to 10 foot inundation sea level rise vulnerability. So I think that, again, this concept plan doesn't adequately provide enough stormwater management, in my opinion. Uh, to justify the impacts to the already impaired Cox Creek. I understand it's a concept plan, and with that, I'm excited at the opportunity to see some better ESD to the MEP. 
I know that the MS-4 was brought up, and I'd just like to also point out that the MS-4 also requires education and outreach. So I think this is an opportunity to kind of check two boxes at once, um, considering this is an institutional building that gets many residents from the county. Um, this is an opportunity to showcase what storm water management can be. Not only that, but incorporate some signage and education with that storm water management. I personally liked the renderings. Um, the only thing that I was disappointed in is that I didn't see any native plantings added to that. So we talked a lot about bringing the outdoors inside, but we didn't necessarily talk about how we can enhance the outside. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity, again, to enhance this in a way that benefits Cox Creek, because right now all I see are more impairments. Thank you very much, Ms. Bassett. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. Any other public comment? Good morning. I'm Janet Salazar. I'm the director for the Queen Anne's County Library, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me this morning. Salazar, um, can you pull the mic closer oh, to sure. you and speak I'm up sorry. a little? Thank you. Is this, is this better? With all the noise we have out here. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. That's I'm Janet better. Salazar. I'm the director for the Queen Anne's County Library System. Um, and thank you for looking at our concept today, and I appreciate all the feedback. I just wanted to speak a little bit to the modern concept because public libraries in the 21st century are not the book warehouses they used to be where we were concerned about light getting to the books and deteriorating. They're really more community centers, and we do a lot of programming. Yes, there will always be books in libraries. That's not, I'm not saying that there wouldn't be. Um, and we will always be on the forefront of literacy, but we are also on the forefront of STEM programming and making sure that we have um, educational opportunities for all of our community to supplement what the schools do, to supplement what the community college does. It's really self-directed learning at the library. And having an open concept and having light come in invites people to come in and stay and do their learning. And that's why we have so much light in our building. And that's why we asked for so much light in our building, so that people feel welcome when they come into the library. It used to be you walked into the library and you didn't want to stay very long because we had uncomfortable seating and people would tell you to be quiet. And that is not the way it is now. And that's why our concept is what the concept is. And I'm sure that by the time we get done, we will have married those two buildings together, and people will be very impressed with the final concept. So I appreciate you listening to me, and I just wanted to speak to that part of it. I'm happy to answer any good questions you might have for me. So. Thank Hearing none, thank you. I've got an uh, interesting request of you, Mr. Chairman. Just by... Uh, those of you in the audience, by show of hands, and you've been watching and listening and seeing these renderings, can I just, this is not scientific by any means, it's just a public snapshot. By show of hands, how many of you like this project? Uh, the, the appearance of the rendering. Well, well, okay. What question are you asking, Mr. Lee? Do you, I, I just asked my question. Do you, is that uh, something that the public... Just with your exposure today, you you could see that as an attractive building in your community. All right, and then not so much. All right, not not quite 50-50, 60-40 maybe, but okay. Just for what it's worth. Moving forward. This reminds me of a of a discussion that um, we had when I was on the city council in Annapolis, and the developer came to us and wanted to develop the Park Place property, 
And those of you who've been to Annapolis, which is probably everybody know, everything Sheila, in Annapolis Sheila, is brick, can you do the same thing in brick federalist. <laughs> and, and the developer of Park Place wanted to fashion his building after the Naval Academy, which is granite and limestone. And um, there was a great architectural debate about the appropriateness of granite and limestone in the city of Annapolis, which is brick federalist. Even the mansion that the governor lives in was really originally Victorian and was reconverted to be brick federalist so that it would fit in. And um, so I think the, um, and obviously if you've been to Annapolis since part place has been built, which I'm sure you have, it's, um, it's an attractive and desirable uh, development. And... Um, I think the um, I, I especially like the light and the the rear rendering of this building. I'm always concerned a little bit about flat roofs, not for not for their appearance, but for their utility. It seems like they leak a lot. I don't know how you're how you deal with that these days. Maybe maybe that's an old problem. Um, but I, I'm wondering, and I'm not an architect by training, although I had a class in architectural drawing. Um, I'm wondering if there isn't some way to bring to better marry the brick with the concrete by bringing the brick as a trim of some sort across the front or a, a wall that's brick that somehow makes them look like they're just not two pieces that were stuck together but um, two pieces that were designed to be functionally um, appropriate and also visually connected. That's... Um, for what it's worth, that's, that's my observation. I, I think that sometimes things that um, aren't so great on the drawing can turn out to be pretty good, even though they're not brick federalist or Eastern Shore vernacular. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Thank you. Uh-huh. Sir, please identify um, yourself and where you're from. Josh Willis. I'm a lifelong resident of Kent Island. I'm a local business owner and musician. Um, I'm going to start off by saying I love the library. I spent my whole life going into the library, so nothing against the library. In fact, I, I also love the idea of having, having additional space there to do more meetings and everything else that you guys need to move forward on in the future. But with that said, I also love the surrounding waters of Kent Island. I grew up on them. My, most of my family are watermen, and I'll admit I don't understand the history of the 300-foot buffer zone, but I'm sure it was put into place for some reason. And I'm sure it had something to do with protecting the water. So if it still exists, being able to willy-nilly change it to 100 feet without changing the overall 300-foot buffer for everyone seems kind of contradictory to setting up policies. So just wanted to put that out there, that I'm all for protecting the waters. I'm all for having a better library, though I don't like the way it looks because I feel like if you live on the eastern shore, you like the way the eastern shore beauty is. (laughs) If I wanted to live on the western shore and see modern buildings, I would do that. But I just wanted to put it out there that I feel like although the 300-foot buffer zone may be outdated, I don't think it should be changed just for one building. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Willis. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Julie Ranelli. I'm the branch manager at the Kent Island Library. And as a librarian, I deal in stories, but today I wanted to share a few numbers with you In fiscal year 19, we saw over 155,000 visitors to our library through our meeting room doors and our library doors. Currently, we have 71 parking spaces for a meeting room that holds 122 people. And at times of peak usage, the parking lot is full to the point of being dangerous. 
Um, that's particularly true um, during early voting when the Board of Elections uses our space for upwards of two weeks. Um, and at times when we're doing wonderful things for children's programming, one that's very popular is Reptile Wonders. Um, we, we fill the parking lot and then we're parking on the grass. We're asking the schools or Ram's Head to assist us with parking. And so we want to be sure that as we are adding space, that we're also meeting the parking needs because the parking lot is not something I ever want to have to be worried about. Um, we are proposing 121 parking spaces because we will still have this meeting room that seats 122, but we will be adding an additional meeting room that holds approximately 250 people. Um, so we just want to be mindful of the actual usage needs as we go forward, and we do not want to have safety concerns for the people who are trying to access our building. So I thank you for your consideration and your time. Thank you. Public comment. Oh, I'm going to close it. Judy Schultz, Chester, I don't have a horse in the race at all. I just have a comment that I think if myself or another local developer had proposed something that looked like that in town center, I'm not sure we'd even make it to the Planning Commission with that look. I, I think you could do a lot better with the way this looks and ties into our community. I mean, we're all for the library, but I think, you know, making that look like everything else is you require to look like the area probably should needs a little bit more scrutiny than, than that. And that doesn't mean I'm not for the library. We're all for that. But I think it needs to fall in line with how, how, you, how you make everything else kind of look in the area. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Hello, I'm Pat Rockwell. I grew up on Kent Island. You speak up, please. I'm Pat Rockwell. I live on, used to live on Kent Island. I live in Churchill now. Um, just wanted to speak and kind of add on to Mr. Willis and Mr. Schultz and Ms. Tolliver. Um, I'm fine with expanding the library. I think that's a great idea. Um, the flat roof next to the peak roof. I would rather see the peak roof continue, and um, I don't know. I'm not in, into the budget and stuff, um, but the cement, cementaceous board that they're speaking of, I mean, it, to be able to put a, a brick fascia on the front, I'd like to see, you know, maybe what the numbers are, if it would benefit it more, putting the brick fascia on it and continuing the brick look, um, you know, maybe help, help out with the budget a little bit. So that's all. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Any other public comment? This time we will close public comment. We will bring it back to the commission at this time. Pardon me? You want a motion? So um, we have two items to resolve. Uh, number one is the concept plan, and one is the sure buffer reduction. Um, I don't know if we put the cart before the horse or the horse before the cart. Sure buffer goes first. Sure buffer goes first. That reduction, the concept Can't plan. The concept. Okay. So um, with guidance from council, uh, I will entertain a motion for the shore buffer reduction. I didn't do it. Uh, resolved that the Planning Commission regarding the request by Queen Anne's County Commissioners to reduce the 300-foot shore buffer on parcel 321 to 100 feet under section 18-1-67, subsection B3, and as more particularly described in Planning and Zoning File SB-2-1-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-
19-09-0036-C hereby finds the proposal is entirely within a growth area as identified by a 2010 comprehensive plan at Chesterville-Stevensville Community Plan. Two, the SE permits expansion of institutional uses. Three, more than 50% of the site is within the 300-foot buffer. Four, the reduction in the buffer is to allow for reasonable use of the site while protecting the majority of the buffer and hereby grants the requested reduction. Second. Of a motion and a second. Is there any discussion? So I'll just share my thoughts. Um, I have concerns with the buffer reduction and the fact that the paving constraints or increased paving, um, the plans that were presented before us showed things in non-tidal wetlands. Um, so not that they were misrepresented, but we didn't have a true concept of what exists. Um, I support the library in everything it needs to do. We've also heard testimony that the Coxnet Creek, the headwaters um, by land, have created more problems for us, and yet we intend to provide additional paving. I don't, in my opinion, I don't think that we've provided enough thought towards uh, pervious paving, um, and we're just trying to be impervious, which is not <coughs> the goal and objective. I think that maybe with some additional thought and design, we can uh, address some of those as we reduce the shore buffer to make things more amenable for, for all parties involved. So that's my discussion. Any other comment? Hearing none, all in favor say aye. 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 All opposed, aye. So that's uh, five, Wait, two. Who's in favor? Everyone, uh, everyone in favor uh, except for me. Yeah. So, all right. Move on to the concept plan. Uh, resolve that the Planning Commission regarding the request by Queen Anne's County Commissioners for accept concept plan approval for an additional, excuse me, for an addition and additional parking to the existing Ken Island Library as more particularly described in the Department of Planning and Zoning file SP19-09-0036-C hereby finds. One, the concept plan is consistent with the 2010 comprehensive plan and the 2007 Chester Stevensville Community Plan. And two, do you want to modify that with your concerns? That's just your motion. Your motion. Amend oh. <laughs> it. Okay, I, I can so I, I su suggest then that we add another amendment that has to do with um, trying to, to increase the pervious parking within the uh, critical area. I, th I think the guidance has been given. Well, if you want to include it in the in the motion, that would be fine, but I think we hear the guidance and we will certainly work to, to work that into the concept as it moves forward. I would like, yeah, it's, I think we need to address several issues here, really. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of between the uh, devil and the deep blue sea here. I, uh, I'm in favor of it. I like the concept, like the building, actually. But I, I also appreciate the concerns that other people have, and that probably need to be addressed engineering-wise. And uh, uh, so, how do we address that? 
council. Uh, if we approve it, I don't know what the next par I don't know what the next section says that you haven't read yet. That's what prompted. No, I'm saving them at the end. He's adding. I'm adding it at the very end. This is just concept. No, this is just concept. Well, um, I think it's a legitimate concern because by the time this comes back around for site plan approval, some, all, or none of you it's may too, be it's too late. the planning commission and may, and without identifying your concerns at the concept plan level, future members of this planning commission may not have the, the institutional history regarding it. So I think it's appropriate to put it in. It also is a fair warning to the applicant. So can we just add it as, um, and hereby grants concept plan approval with the following recommendations yes. and then consider ways to reduce impervious surface, um, consider ways to improve stormwater management to and result in improved water quality. Impacts of the floodplain. consider design alterations that will be more harmonious with the existing structure and the... Um, um, style of the region, something to that effect. I mean, that's David's motion, I but <laughs> I, I, I like to adopt just what you said. <laughs> Can you repeat it? Yeah. No, I, I never. Think, <laughs> but Ms. Princeton, you got all those, didn't you? Um, well, so, let me just clarify one thing. If we if we approve this, based on the amendment or the addition. Ms. Tolliver just stated. Uh, the next time they come before us will be for site plan approval. Is this correct? Yes. So those changes would be made. The recommendations. The recommendations. Um, and then um, assuming, for example, that none of the recommendations are incorporated in a final site plan, the applicant will have to explain why um, and justify why those recommendations were not followed, okay. and they may be successful. I would caution you that, as I mentioned before, there are no design guidelines for the structure in, uh, applicable in the SE district. Um, so, understand. In other words, I'm not sure you could say no to a site plan approval on the basis of dissatisfaction with the architecture. Though we hope the applicant certainly understands that what we've said today. We've gone to court for less, right? <laughs> we've gone to court for less. <laughs> I will second David's motion. <laughs> so we have a motion and a second. Uh, is there any further discussion? So um, I will say, Ms. Salazar. Um, Mr. Edgar, um, Mr. Calhoun, since DPW is assuming some kind of construction management role, it appears, um, I hope that you speak to your architect and encourage him to listen to our recommendations and incorporate. Um, we know that the county is strong advocates to keep our waters clean, um, parking, buffers, Things of those nature are very important to us, as are, you know, native grasses and things of that nature, which weren't really part of this concept in which you brought us. Um, 
we hope that you can grow and improve upon that for the site plan approval. So, no other discussion. Well, all in favor say aye. 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 All opposed say aye. Aye. Five, one. Thank you very much. We'll have a break, Mr. Yes. Chairman, before the so, um, <laughs> We would like to take a five-minute break so we can refresh our coffee, please. So we will resume at uh, 11.04. We'll now resume the Queen Anne County Planning Commission meeting Thursday, November 14th. Next item on the agenda is Major Subdivision and Site Plan SP18-09-0014-C, Four Seasons at Kent Island, Phase 2. I will respectfully request with the large volume of people in the room that we be mindful and respectful to those presenting. Um, when we get to public comment, we'll address that uh, in a little bit. Uh, but please, I'm asking everyone to be quiet. If not, we will ask you to leave. So, thank you very much. That, Mr. Cahoon. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. The floor is Steve Cahoon with uh, Queen Anne's County Department of Public Works. Um, with this project, um, there's an awful lot to it, um, an awful lot of history as well as uh, the presentation of Phase 2. Um, I plan on doing an overview of some of the previous approvals, some of some orientation to the property, and then the applicant will present the details of, of phase two. So expeditiously, I'm sure. I certainly will. Um, so the overall project, um, phase one, um, the overall project received preliminary approval for 1,350 units in a clubhouse. Phase one was 162 units. Phase two before the planning commission today is 249 units. Future phase three and four will be 668 units. Um, so that comes to a total of 1,079 dwelling units, and that's a mix of single-family homes and, homes and condominiums. There was a phase five originally proposed with the project on the Tanner property, um, but that is no longer um, a portion of the project. Phase five um, required the, uh, the applicant to secure a wetland license to build a bridge across Cox Creek in order to get what to what was known as the Tanner property, and I'll show you some more detail on that. Um, when the applicant couldn't secure the wetland license, um, it turned into a donation, a parkland donation parcel of 136 acres to the county, which reduced the overall project by 271 units. Just to orient everybody, I think if people are familiar, but phase one is on the east side of Castle Marina Road um, between the new traffic circle and um, Maycomb Creek. The, uh, this is um, under construction now. Uh, approximately 60 units have been built and sold, and the condominium buildings are, are, have been permitted. Um, at least one condominium building has been permitted, um, and that totals 106. That's uh, units, um, lots, and 56 condos. Phase one. Phase two, three, and four are located on what's known as parcel number seven, tax parcel number seven. Um, it totals 338 acres, and that's going to be the focus of, of our conversation today and, and our review of this project. Um, 
phase two is what's before the planning commission phase three and four um are has been submitted for review and the planning commission may see it in about a year after it gets through the development (laughs) review process Um, the parkland donation is across cox creek Um, it's 136 acres it's on the north and south side of the cross island trail it abuts to adjacent county parkland um, and along the headwaters of uh, cox creek and you can see the 300 foot shore buffer um, on that property has been established and will remain and um, that is a passive park it's not uh, it was not donated for active recreation it was donated for passive recreation um, and conservation um, the zoning on the properties, uh, the different properties uh, are zoned suburban or Stevensville Master Plan Development and Chester Master Plan Development. In the 1990s, um, the county went through a community planning process and designated these areas for plan development, um, understanding that they would be uh, connected to public utilities um, and and developed in in a residential or institutional fashion. Parcel 7 has 245 acres in the SMPD district. That's the northern half of the site, so everything north of Castle Marina Road. And CMPD, it has 93 acres. Um, These zoning districts uh, generally allow uh, anywhere from 3.5 to 6 dwelling units per acre, um, and this project comes in far below that. The CMPD and SMPD zoning districts were um, created to allow master plan development. The uh, locations were specifically identified in the community plans, um, and it was a a plan development where the planning commission um, would have a lot of discretion in setting setbacks, design standards, um, to get good site design, have consistent architecture throughout the project, um, have functional open spaces that could be used and connected to public facilities, which would include water, sewer, roads, trails, walkways. Um, it, it, these these properties were identified because they could easily connect to the to existing infrastructure and be served. Um, there were a series of approvals for this project: um, concept plan approval, um, amending it into the master water and sewer plan developers' rights and responsibilities agreement, preliminary subdivision approval, and all these approvals build on each other to get us to where we are today. Um, The critical area growth allocation was a big um, public process that uh, where the critical area um, designations were changed from RCA to IDA on large portions of the property. Um, that was vetted through public hearings at the Planning Commission, the County Commissioners, and the Critical Area Commission. And this is the existing critical area designations for the property. The red is the IDA, Intense Development Area, and on Parcel 7, that includes 267 acres and 54 acres of RCA, Resource Conservation Area, shown in the green. Um, as, as you'll notice, the green area is the 300-foot shore buffer along Cox Creek, which is a protected area. Um, the IDA is the center of the property where the development is occurring all the way out to the Chester River. However, it's important to note that the, uh, the shore buffer along the Chester River uh, is to be protected as well. The growth allocation had a series of conditions. The conditions were included in the Planning Commission staff report in a memo from Lane Engineering where it identified what the actual 
condition of growth allocation was and how it was addressed on the plan set that was submitted. Um, the major things that came out of the growth allocation process was 300-foot shore buffers along Cox Creek, 100-foot shore buffers along the Chester River, uh, forest planting in the shore buffers and in areas where there wasn't um, a forest existing, and preservation in the shore buffers where, where forest existed. No waterfront lots, uh, building lots are being created. The condominium parcels and the clubhouse parcels as community open space will front on some of the, on the um, um, buffers, but all the buffer and uh, shoreline areas will be in community open space and no waterfront building lots. Um, and the project was limited to one pier um, overall. The, um, at the time, you know, this was some time ago before uh, uh, ESD to the MEP was required, It was, um, but there were practices that were required for this through the uh, growth allocation process. And the subdivision, uh, as approved during the growth allocation process, remains consistent as it's moved through uh, approvals for fa preliminary in Phase 1 and 2. The DRRA is a contractual agreement um, that basically um, holds the 2002 development standards in place while um, a pro the project is getting approvals and under construction, but it also guarantees infrastructure requirements to the county um, throughout the build-out of the project. Um, APFO was addressed during preliminary approval, um, and it was addressed for the entire build-out of the 1,350 um, units uh, that were granted approval during preliminary. Um, there were also... So the APFO required the developer to build all the water sewer infrastructure improvements and then also a number of road improvements to, uh, to secure their APFO approval. Um, the improvements are consistent with what was represented in the DRRA. Um, this is the preliminary plan approval, um, very similar to um, phase one was built, um, very consistent with the, the preliminary approval. Phase two, um, I'll, I'll get into it in just a second. But the overall, the design was a major boulevard section going back to the clubhouse uh, that would front on the Chester River or have views of the Chester River. Um, the, along Four Seasons Boulevard, there would be uh, roads where the lots, um, the new lots being created would take access. No lots would access off of Four Seasons Boulevard. Um, there were two main areas of multifamily or, or condominium buildings. One uh, was just north of Bayside Condominiums or Bayside uh, Development and further up, uh, all up near the uh, Cloverfield subdivision. Um, this is the section that um, you'll be looking at today for Phase 2 approval. This is the preliminary <laughs> approval, and you'll see it's going to be very, shown as very consistent. Um, what's before the Planning Commission today is Phase 2 approval of a major subdivision to create 179 single-family lots, a parcel for multifamily lots, and a parcel for the community clubhouse. Um, the clubhouse and the condominium, condominium buildings require major site plan approval. Um, the clubhouse is proposed at 20, the clubhouse facility, clubhouse and accessory buildings, is proposed at 26,566 square feet. Um, this is um, an overall of, uh, exhibit of parcel seven. The shaded areas are the buffers and protection. The subdivision area of phase two is just the area 
uh, west of Castle Marina Road. Um, the multifamily parcel is at the end of Castle Marina Road, a little bit towards the Chester River. And the clubhouse lot is all the way at the end of Four Seasons Boulevard um, that will look out at the Chester River, as, as mentioned. Um, this is a, a blow-up of the lots uh, or the section of Phase 2 where the um, single-family lots are proposed. And the multifamily parcel is right here um, at the end of Castle Marina Road to the right. Um, the community parcel, 16 acre, 16.409 acres. Um, that's the um, community parcel is shown in the subdivision set. The condominium site plan uh, shows five buildings in total. The five buildings are four stories tall and have 14 units each. Um, they have parking for each of the buildings as well, and the parking is provided in a garage unit under the building, um, surface parking, um, and then there's additional parking for visitors and guests. Um, each section of the project has an extensive landscaping plan that goes along with it. Um, you, you, as, as you received your packets, you noticed the size of them. <laughs> There's a large set of engineering plans, landscaping plans um, that go along with this project that have been reviewed. Um, but within the uh, condominium site plan section, the condominium building section, there's uh, landscaping proposed along the streets and the roads uh, and the parking areas, as well as um, foundation landscaping around the building. This, this is a, a view looking down on top of one of the uh, uh, condominium buildings, and it represents the foundation landscaping uh, that goes along with each, each of them, as well as screening of mechanical equipment, and, um, um, as, as, a, as an example. The clubhouse facility um, includes a parking area uh, for cars and golf carts. Um, it includes a, a clubhouse, a, a full clubhouse building with indoor pool, dining facilities, meeting spaces, an outdoor pool. There's also um, uh, outdoor courts, tennis courts, basketball courts, pickleball courts that go along with it. Um, the stormwater management uh, to address uh, the, the uh, stormwater quality and quantity is done uh, within the parcel as well and shown on the site plan. Um, and then uh, also a variety of walking trails that connect into the, um, the remainder of the site. Um, also, there's an extensive landscaping plan that goes along with the clubhouse building, the, cl the parking lot area, and, um, and the walking trails for the clubhouse facility. And um, you know, that, that's really an overview of, of what we're looking at today, the subdivision site plan and, um, uh, for the clubhouse and condominiums. So. Thank you, Mr. Cohn. Are there any questions of Mr. Cahoon before we bring up the applicant? Hearing none, Mr. Stevens. Mr. Chairman, I do oh, have one question. Yeah, please. You mentioned that um, the um, agreement provides that the development uh, regulations that were in effect in 2004 are binding on us. Um, what about changes in state regulation, state law, that sort of thing? I, we can't bind. We've, we've learned a lot about that. Um, <laughs> so that's a very, very good question. And 
um, throughout the t- throughout the time period of uh, from Hold two thousand. Um, I don't think this end of the planning commission heard Ms. Tolliver's question. So Mrs. Tolliver uh, asked the question of if. The DRA holds in place development regulations at the county level. How do we address it um, for regulations that come down from the state level? So there's a number of things, uh, like, for example, stormwater management regs. Um, The plan was originally designed under the stormwater regs in place at the time, but due to the change in state regulations that required um, environmental site design to the maximum extent practicable, the project had to be redesigned to comply with them. Um, also, changes in um, other state regulations, the, the, they had to demonstrate compliance. Really, the areas that ultimately um, were frozen were the zoning districts, SMPD, CMPD. Um, they're, they're really what stayed in place, and those zoning districts and the regulations associated with them really have not um, changed very much during the lifetime of this project. But uh, Adjustments have been had to made to comply with state laws. The DRA did not freeze them. Okay. I just wanted to be sure of that. <laughs> Thank you, Planning Commission members. Uh, Joe Stevens, I'm the attorney for uh, KF Nanny and Four Seasons and have been since its inception in the beginning back when Mr. Cahoon and I think Mr. Drummond uh, were involved uh, for the county at their level. Um, and so what I'm going to do is there's a lot of people here that I know that want to address you, and I've got a, a few speakers because I think it's important that the people who worked on this project uh, present you with the highlights of information um, in that regard. So th- I'll just give you an overview of who's going to be addressing you. Lane Engineering, Barry Griffith will talk about the land plan, critical area compliance, buffers, um, and um, pathways and things of that nature. We've heard Barry speak many times before. We've re- received all critical area approvals, um, you know, speaking of state laws. So not just the growth allocation back years ago, but they have been involved in every step and every plan we've put forward during the review process. They've been on site dozens of times, so they've been involved in the thick of this uh, right from the beginning to just the other day. Um, then... Um, from Lane, Tim Glass will talk about stormwater management. We meet the current ESD to the MEP requirements. Um, we agreed to do that even though we're entitled to administrative waiver because of the DRRA that we received from the Department of Public Works in 2013. Um, but we agreed as part of the conveyance of the Tanner property when we worked that out with the county contractually that we're going to do ESD to the MEP for the entire site. We've done that. Public Works has reviewed that, um, and those plans are complete, almost ready for signature. Um, And then um, we're going to ask the traffic consultant to give you an overview. We received um, uh, APF approval in 2004, which included traffic for 1,350 units. Um, that locked in the improvements that we were going to be required to do. Steve put them up on the the board for you. What the traffic consultant did was every phase the county has asked and given us scoping what they want done um, to do an updated traffic impact study and show if the findings back in 2004 remain consistent and where they do and where they don't, what might impact them. So we've done that every step of the way to show that that continues what we what we projected in 2004 actually was was high and conservative to what's actually happened, of course, taking the anomalies like the bridge issue into, into effect. Um, so he'll speak briefly to that. 
and then um, Mike Irons and the land, and the uh, land design planner Lisa Biddle will address you. So I'm going to try. We've tried when we met yesterday to go through all this. We said eight minutes for everybody a piece. We'll try to do it even quicker than that. But if you have questions, if we're glossing over something, then just stop us and we'll go from there. So with that, I'll ask Barry to start. Thank you, Barry Griffith, Lane Engineering. We were retained. Um, uh, January 2018 to assist with uh, proceeding with phases two and then ultimately phases three and four, which are the final phases of the project. And as Steve Coon did mention, but I'd want to reiterate, there is a very large set of site infrastructure plans, landscape plans, center road control plans. They're all available to you, but they weren't in your packet. So know that basically everything has been designed on this site so that it's ready to construct. Um, we've been through the review and approval process with the county now for about a year, going through the details of those plans and getting them up to par. Um, I'm going to start with this slide you see in front of you in an overall project location and uh, phasing. And you can see, as Steve indicated earlier, where phase two is, where phase one is, where the future phases are. I just want to focus a little bit more on what is around us. So you see uh, the Tanner Farm that Steve spoke to at 136 acres that was deeded to the county as open space. So immediately opposite Cox Creek, we have uh, this 130-acre open space parcel. If you look at uh, also on that same side of Cox Creek, we have the clover fields and the Mallard Run communities. And just to give you some reference in terms of... Uh, Density, uh, the average density of that with a, about 1,150 homes on 577 acres is 2.1 dwelling units per acre. You also see that we sort of wrap around the, bay, the, uh, the Bayside, Queens Landing, and Castle Marina communities. That's uh, 732 homes on about 131 acres. That's an average density of 5.6 dwelling units per acre. If you look at our project in total, uh, with 1,079 homes on 405 acres, we're at 2.6 dwelling units per acre. And if you, uh, uh, while we can't account for it in our calculations, if you include the open space that was deeded to the county, we're uh, right at or under two dwelling units per acre. So this is what this is the context of the community that we're in. We're, we're adjacent to some areas that are much higher density than us and some that are about the same as us. And on the other side of Cox Creek, we have a large amount of land in preservation, including the Davidson Farm, which is adjacent to the Tanner Farm, which the county acquired in 2007 as an open space uh, uh, property for the county. Um, moving on, this is the preliminary plat that Steve showed you. Uh, we are very consistent with this plat. We do have a few minor changes. Well, one major, the Tanner Farm came out, um, so that was about 130 acres and about 271 homes. But within phase two, some slight differences. The clubhouse, as you've seen its location, is adjacent to what uh, were some old dredge spool basins used by the state, I think back when the bridge was being constructed. Kent Narrow Stredging. The Kent Narrow Stredging. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Ultimately, uh, in 2015, the, uh, the state decided those were going to be taken as jurisdictional non-title wetlands. They weren't back at the time this was originally planned. So we had to move the clubhouse uh, uh, building and parcels and facilities away from those dredge spool basins 
to keep them protected as non-titles. We also made a few minor internal sort of block changes of lots within a block uh, to make things fit. Another example, we had a, a large specimen oak tree that was smack dab in the middle of a lot that we knew if we could shift some things here or there, we could save that tree. So some little things like that occurred. Um, and those are the major changes from the, from the original plat. As far as uh, phase two, um, you know, we sit on parcel seven, as Steve said. Um, you can see we've got the 300-foot and the 150-foot buffers. We, in total, we have about 28% of our site in protected buffers. Uh, that's about 97 acres. And that is uh, the legal documents are in place. They've been signed by K. Hubnanian. They've been signed uh, by the county attorneys. And the, the open spaces and the forest, uh, especially the forest protection, which I'll talk about in a minute, we're doing that for the entire parcel seven this phase as well as the future phases that will be before you. So we're protecting these forested buffers uh, now with phase two. Um, this is a, this is just a, a, a what, what, what parcel seven is. Again, this is our, our plat, our subdivision plat where we have the single family, multifamily. <coughs> One thing Steve um, didn't mention is that you'll notice none of these lots back up to another lot. There's open space interspersed uh, between the backs of all these lots and throughout the community. Um, in addition to the open space contained in the buffers and with the community parcel. So all in all with phase one or phase two we have about 101 acres of open space that will be protected through covenants. This is just a typical of, of one of the plat sheets to show you what I was just speaking to in terms of how the open space uh, intertwines uh, between, between the lots. Um, and this is a, a, a diagram that shows kind of where all the, all the open space is that's in the buffers as well. Lisa Biddle from Land Design is here, and she's going to talk to you at much greater length about the details and the amenities included with this incredible uh, clubhouse area. Um, so I'm not going to speak a whole lot to that other than to tell you that it does have all the required parking to meet county requirements as well as K. Hobnanian's needs for this type of active adult community. This is the condominium exhibit. Again, um, Steve's talked, Lisa will talk about this. What I'd like to point out here is that we do have a bermed landscape buffer and a sidewalk um, in, in between the Bayside property line uh, and a road and, and these condominium buildings. The closest condominium building to the Bayside property line is 131 feet, and there'll be a landscape berm in between. Um, and the highest uh, point of this building is similar to what they are in phase one is 54 feet to the peak of the roof. This slide is here to show you the forest protection that's going on with phases two, three, and four. There is, um, as you've heard, a lot of the buffers were left to start to naturally regenerate in a forest many, many years ago. And quite frankly, they're, they're in a forest condition now. Um, but there are some additional areas that we need to allow to go to afforestation um, and we are going to be clearing some mostly in the IDA portion uh, so there's still some woods to be cleared about 54 acres 
We've got about 68 acres of already established and protected uh, forest uh, conservation areas. There's going to be another 13 acres that need to be protected. There's the only forest that's being cleared that's not in the IDA is for some stormwater outfalls so that we can get our stormwater to get to tidal waters. Uh, all of this has been reviewed and approved very closely by the Critical Area Commission, and I know that plat sheet has a lot of complicated calculations on it, but um, we're 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 basically at about 95 acres of forest protection on the project, which is about a fourth of the site overall. This is an example of some of the, uh, what the buffer's starting to look like. There, in some ways, it's, it's kind of monoculture, but there's a 2004 um, uh, buffer management plan that's still in force that allows to go in and take out some invasives, do some thinning, replant to get some diversity in there, and that'll be ongoing throughout the project. But it's going to be in, in a multi-diverse, multi-canopy diverse forest condition forever. It's protected. Pathways are very important in pedestrian access in an active adult community, which is what Four Seasons is. So in addition to uh, the five-foot sidewalks that run along every street, we also have an eight-foot sidewalk between a landscape berm and Castle Marina Road to connect from the traffic circle directly uh, up into the street system of phase two. We also have about 11,550, so over two miles of paved six foot wide paths along Cox Creek and along the Chester River that are outside of the 100 foot buffer. So these are walking paths around the perimeter of the community. They're gonna actually be in the, in the 300 foot buffer and in the 150 foot buffer and in a wooded condition most of the time, but they're, they're going to basically loop the perimeter of the community. We also have about 1,400 linear feet of spur trails, I'll call them, that'll come off that paved path on the Chester River side to go to some very prominent scenic points. Uh, and they, that will be within the 100-foot buffer and also a path to the future pier. The Critical Area Commission, we've worked extensively with them on this path system, what materials would work, how wide they can be, how it should be constructed, and they're in agreement with this plan. Um, so that's, that's kind of an overall that I can give you. Uh, I'm the one that wrote the letter about growth allocation consistency uh, that's attached in your package. If you have any questions about that, I can help answer that. And if you have any other questions about the layout of the project, I'd be happy to explain it to you as well. Yes, Ms. This Tyler. may be a problem of scale on the plats, but you mentioned, and I noticed in the, in the report, that all lots back to the community open space. And when I looked at the plat, it looks like um, several of them back up to other lots, like lot 432, 433, 434, 410, 409, 215, 216, 218, 219, and, and there are others. I didn't write them all down. But it looked like on the plat that they back up to another property. Well, I'd have to pull that sheet out, Ms. Tolliver. I can't tell at this scale either. It might There might be a situation that you're talking about. What, what, what lots were those? Um, well, 432, 30, 433, and 434. 
you can start there. 410, 409. I didn't write them all down. I just it was uh, page 30 of 31. Page this is the 30? page I was looking at. Some of the cul-de-sacs you may have that situation. I don't think they were in cul-de-sacs, but I might be wrong. Well, even there, yeah, there's still a even there, there's a, there is something there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're looking at that cul-de-sac, and it's where where it says phase two. I, I don't have my plan Maybe. open, but there's actually. Let me find it. You're right. There are a couple that do back up, but there's a there's an open space in the center of those lots, <laughs> like a there's a square in the middle on the particular lots you were talking about. I think she's also talking about the ones up a bit very in here that look like they're backing up to fa- future phases. Oh, the future phases? Yeah. Well, there's an open space right there too. It just looked like they were backed up. One to another, and you had that in your report. There may be a couple of cases where, you know, necessity dictates that they do, but for the most part, there's 90% of them are within, uh, there's some kind of open space behind them, some kind of access behind them. I'm going to ask Tim Glass to come up and go over um, stormwater management. Good afternoon. Uh, for the record, my name is Tim Glass, Lane Engineering. I'm the engineer of record for the project. Um, as Steve and Barry both told you, obviously there are, there are full-blown sets of engineering design plans ready to go to construction. I've been through review, been through the county, been through critical area, and so forth. You've heard that a few times. Uh, our goal and, and really our directive when it comes to uh, design specifically for stormwater, which is I'm going to highlight to you today, stormwater and sediment erosion control, is uh, to have held the 2004 design, which you've heard uh, us mention before, and then incorporate and really uh, intermix current ESD practices into that design without fundamentally changing the orientation or the intent of the original subdivision. So we were able to do that um, throughout the, the entire design process. And Oh, you guys are going back to the beginning, right? Here we go. I think you're going Okay. So... What you can see before you hear, um, what we were able to do, the prior design uh, with pre-ESD really consisted of, of uh, practices such as shallow wetlands, pond wetland systems, and extended detention wet ponds, which are all from the prior um, requirements back in Chapter 3 of the Stormwater Design Manual. 
And what we did was look forward into the Chapter 5 current ESD practices, and we're looking at different strategies to address uh, stormwater quality requirements under the current regulations by essentially retrofitting this subdivision prior um, design into something that met current requirements with, for uh, stormwater management compliance. So with that, we, um, we wound up uh, uh, integrating all sorts of different um, ESD techniques, including submerged gravel wetlands, rooftop and non-rooftop disconnects, uh, microbioretentions, and bioswales throughout the project. And the slide in front of you kind of summarizes um, uh, the, the, uh, the yellow uh, diamond shape represents all of the submerged gravel wetlands. And those, it's important to note that those, those locations are consistent with the original design plans from a drainage and outfall perspective, so all those elements were uh, maintained throughout the design. There was a, a feasible way to simply convert those to a current technique, which is a submerged gravel wetland to meet ESD requirements. There are 12 of those facilities throughout the entire Phase Two project that total over five acres of, of floor area to actually treat collected stormwater uh, that runs off to those facilities. And then in each one of the drainage areas uh, are intermixed with thin various locations therein, um, microbioretentions, which are, are demonstrated by that blue star. You'll see them scattered throughout the project in various locations. Uh, they're particularly with the, um, the condominium site. Those are located out front as, as landscaped amenities to catch water runoff off the front side of those roofs and treatment prior to discharge into the submerged gravel wetlands. And then finally, you'll see um, the, uh, I guess that orange asterisk kind of talks about where, where all of the interspersed micro, um, or the bioswales, or I'm sorry, that are linear, linear facilities that are collecting runoff from behind houses and various tucked away places to treat water before it's, it's dumped into a collection storm drain system. So <clears throat> the uh, bioretentions consist of about a half an acre of surface area treatment, and there's over a mile of bioswales uh, in the facility. Um, and to summarize the, 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 what was replied, if you look, look at that first column where it says ESD volume required, that's actually the MEP test. There's a, an environmental site design volume that's required for all these developments, and that's a calculated number, which in this case totals 351,000-plus cubic feet of storage. The second to the last column talks about the total <clears throat> that has been provided throughout the various drainage areas on Phase 2 of 362 uh, thousand cubic feet and some and some change, which is which is essentially about a three percent overage of meeting MEP. So the ESD volume required and what's been provided is in excess of the requirement for this project. <clears throat> Similarly, um, with the Critical Area Commission review, there's a requirement for uh, what's known as a ten percent rule, and the uh, there's a there's a phosphorus removal requirement associated with developments in the IDA in the critical area. And through, uh, by implementing the ESD practices throughout this project, being the submerged gravel wetlands and all the things I mentioned, each one of those has a, has a, um, a value that, that represents the phosphorus removal provided by that specific ESD treatment. And in this case, you can see under the first yellow column, our requirement was just over 76 pounds of phosphorus removed, and what was provided was over 100, was 122 plus pounds, which is a 60, 61% increase over what is required by Critical Area Commission law um, and what we were able to achieve by the um, practices that we were able to uh, intermix in this project. Sorry, Mr. Glass, I'm going to interrupt. That's an annual reduction? Yes, sir. 
Um, one thing that's also important during construction particularly is um, managing stormwater runoff and uh, sediment erosion control runoff. What this slide shows you is, is the totals. In the second column, there's, there's, there's ultimately storage that we have to provide to capture runoff from construction sites, detain it, treat it, filter it, and release it. Um, and we'll talk more about that filtering later. Um, uh, but uh, essentially what this is trying to get across is during the, the way the grading was done for this project, above and beyond the minimum requirements for the Maryland Sediment Urge Control <clears throat> Manual, is that we've provided, if you look in the last column where it says 298, that's a percentage increase in volume that we've provided to capture and hold that stormwater before it's released um, from a capacity standpoint. So 196, 200 cubic feet of storage is required. Additional storage provided, the second to last column, over the required is 388,924, which represents 298% of the required value there. <clears throat> Sediment rose control design volumes obviously exceed what is required. It allows for a lot of different flexibility during construction to manage and capture that runoff for extreme storm events should they happen, so more flexibility in how to deal with that and for treatment before it's released overboard. So just in summary, the original design layout was, was, was um, held for the retrofit, the design, it's, it's um, avoid and respects sensitive areas. We maintain our outfall conditions, the locations of all the original approved um, um, stormwater facilities pre-ESD. We've converted those to meet the requirements of environmental site design under current regulations and have also exceeded the ESD volume and the sediment erosion control volumes for the project. And um, that's all I have for you today. I have a question. Uh, um, one, I'm sorry. I noticed in the critical area report that um, they were requiring at least 50% of the stormwater treatment to provide habitat benefit. Do, does this meet that requirement? And yes, ma'am, we believe it does. And, if, and the a couple slides here I forgot to kind of go through, and this, this kind of talks to your question. Um, I mean, a typical scenario for a submerged gravel wetland, this is a mock-up out of a landscape portion of the plant, and these are shallow wetlands that provide habitat. They'll, what they'll do is on the bottom of your screen, you'll see the couple of storm drain inlets that deliver water to that system. And on the left side is where that water would leave once it's treated. So there are going to be times where this system is inundated by water up to about 12 inches when it captures that first flush of runoff. And then it will settle back down, be filtrated through that gravel media, and released as, after having been cleaned. And these facilities are planted. Looks, you know, There's a similar example of one that provides habitat. Uh, there's landscape. It's a more of a natural setting. This one has a temporary water um, on, on you know, the surface water you can see. That will eventually drain back down to a drier sort of a wetland area, and then when it rains, it gets wet again. Um, this is a slide of a couple of actually the existing microbioretention cells that are actually have been constructed in phase one of Four Seasons currently. These are the um, microbioretention areas that I was talking before that are intermixed around the various landscaping and open space areas of phase two. Where are you in the slides? Yeah. Yeah, right. Mr. Glass, a couple more questions about stormwater while we have you, please. Sure. Um, with respect to the clubhouse, uh, excuse me, uh, submerged gravel wetlands that are on the water, the Chester River side of that facility, this topic was brought up at the last meeting, and I'd like to pay it some attention here. Uh, I've, I'm concerned slightly about the five-foot elevation of uh, 
storm surge and uh, in, uh, to uh, above five feet, which appear to have that water, that surge, uh, inundate your submerged gravel wetlands? Um, we don't, we've looked at the, uh, the outfall elevations for that. I have to look at the design plans. The outfalls are, are outside of the floodplain in all, in all cases there. Um, so the, the uh, one on here floodplain elevation has been avoided. And uh, the outfall, I'm going to go by memory for what the elevations are, but no, there, I don't believe there's an issue there. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking specifically to the projected increase in sea level rise, land subsidence, increase in rainfall events, etc. And that 100-year storm that you just quoted will not be that 100 years, right? It's predicted to become much more frequent, much more intense and um, in duration and, and, and severity. Uh, so my concern is the functionality of those systems if they get inundated with storm surge, right? Uh, those treatment facilities don't like salt water, uh, right? They're meant to treat freshwater runoff from your construction proposals. Um, so I'm curious as to how the design and elevations of the facility themselves as well as the outfall will not allow saltwater intrusion into short-circuit those systems. If we were to expect... We are going to. It's not if. It's a when we will receive that projected storm level rise and the increased severity of, of rainfall events. So my concern is those functional, the functionality of those systems will no longer exist or will be significantly diminished uh, if, indeed, we do get those increased uh, storm surges, tidal inundations, etc. Uh, and I would, I should have said it on the onset, onset. I'm very impressed with the numbers you just proposed for your phosphorus removal. Those that's a hard critter to catch, um, and, and so compliments to you and your team in designing that, but I'd like, to, 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 I'd like some more reassurance and comfort that that will be maintained throughout the project lifespan as we see increase in sea level rise and precipitation events. I think it, you know, it's a tough question to answer. I think it's, you know, the, the sea level rise issue has been talked about, obviously, on many different sides of that equation, but none of that discussion is really ground has landed with regards to Maryland state law or any 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 provision specifically requires to address during the stormwater management design. Um, the, th the thing I could say is, is, is these facilities, if they were to back flush, they would wind up taking water in a reverse direction and filling up the available volume that's within that cell to, a, to an elevation. Uh, above five or what have you, and it would simply just drain back out again. If that condition were to ever happen in the future, you know, a modification working with Public Works or the owner and a community association to simply swap out some salt-tolerant root species plants to accomplish the same thing could, could be a, a, a reasonable remedy if that condition were to ever materialize. But sure, but my understanding of, of submerged gravel wetlands is there are also uh, microbiota that are incorporated in that submerged, saturated system below the root zone of those plants that you just spoke of, and would the saltwater intrusion and inundation in that system not harm and kill those treatment facilities? I can't answer that. I don't okay. know. That's I just, and, and respectfully, I, I understand that there's no state law that says you have to do this, but you guys have far exceeded many of state law requirements and local requirements as well, and I'll just go back to my comment that there it is well understood and it's well expected that Parts of our communities, Kent Island specifically, Kent Narrows even more so, will be underwater soon. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'd like to be cautious in our approach to this that as, as 
sexy and appealing as these pictures are to me as a biologist and a stormwater professional, I want to make sure that they look just as attractive and fu even function um, to your specifications. Um, and so I, I'm, I need to hear some reassurance from someone somewhere that says, we have looked at sea level rise in this vicinity. Our elevations are outfalls. We have backflow preventers on them. We have skippity doodahs in place that will help mitigate whatever we are supposed to get and is predicted. Um, otherwise, we're, we're short-seeding ourselves uh, in this situation. As nice as this is and as, and as apparently as, as effective and efficient as it appears to be, and I fully agree with your assessment thus far, I'm looking 20 years down, 30 years down the road, that that may not be the case. And are we being short-sighted in installing these at a elevation X, which appears to be five uh, on the, specifically, I can't find the page because I'm in the space up here, but it's on your plan, I saw it the other day, um, that those facilities will not be, will not function as intended with that increased sea level rise. Subjectively, what that elevation could or might be in the future is, is I don't know, I don't think. Now I really can't see. <laughs> Somebody's leaning against the wall. Somewhere around five. But I'm sorry, you were saying. Um, as far as the design's concerned, I mean we've we've met we've met current regulations and exceeded those. Um, I can, from, from a simple flow perspective, you know, I think, I don't remember the number, but I think the floor elevation of that particular facility, 10-1, is, is at a 5 floor elevation, which is substantially higher than, than low tide, mid tide in that, in that regard. Um, so if there were, like I said before, if there were a back flush condition where that water could hold in there and then slowly release, there are simple modifications. If 20, 20 years down the road things change, these facilities can be retrofitted. I, I hear you clearly and respectfully disagree with in that that 100-year flood that you have designed for will now be every 10 years or 20 years, whatever that number is. Uh, it's coming, it's expected, and it's real. And there is significant evidence that says portions of our county, mostly the eastern side, excuse me, western side, will face significant flooding and more frequent, intense rainfall events. And... I, I, you have not, you're not providing what I'm asking. And if you need to get back to me, I, I'm happy to, 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 to hear that. Um, but as we just discussed with the library plan, um, this, you know, water quality is important to me. And it's important, I think, to a lot of, if not everyone in this room, right? That's a major reason why we all live and love our county so much. Um, and I want to make sure we have the best protective mechanisms in place that will um, respond or react to changing environmental conditions. Uh, that are that are coming, and so I'll I'll leave it there. Uh, but please know that's a major concern. Understood. Uh, and we appreciate that. I mean, the, the difficulty that that Four Seasons or anybody else has in doing this is that type of leadership really needs to come from the top down, and for individual property owners or who are doing projects. And like you said, they've already far exceeded the regulations in terms of water quality and so on. Um, to individually say, well, we will we'll do this and we won't do that in anticipation of of what you know is very real 
in terms of coming down the pipe um, is difficult. I mean, it really has to be a leadership from the top down. And if the county takes that leadership role and says to the individual property owners and developers, hey, we want to prevent these things from being at certain elevations because we, you know, and they have that authority regulatory-wise, and I, I, I don't disagree. It's just very hard to do individually. I, I, Mr. Stevens, I do greatly appreciate that, but I, I would also – um, respectfully put it back on the applicant to be the leader, you know, show the county, show the, the community that, wow, yeah, we might be underwater, and rather than go back 20 years and dig out this submerged gravel wetland and put in widget Y and to treat this change in elevation because our feet are wet now when we walk around our pond or we're not treating the stormwater to the degree that we're expected and it's supposed to, uh, to take care of the, the aquatic resources down gradient, then shame us, shame us, shame on this room for, for sort of spinning our wheels and, and coming to this point, right? Uh, it's a lot tremendously more um, economically beneficial to do it now uh, and, 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 and treat for the expected and the projected. Um, there's no question about that than it is to go back and retrofit when we go, oh, shoot, we got our elevations, our, our projections. Instead of every 100 years, it's every decade or whatever that number happens to be. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop kicking that dead horse. Uh, Mr. Glass, are you the person to whom I should speak about uh, the planting species, the landscaping? Um, no, sir, that's coming up. Okay, fantastic. I'll hold my next question. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thank Could you I all. just ask a follow-up to uh, Tom's question about stormwater? Um, is, is it feasible for you to model using the projections that we had dis um, described us in a – in a presentation by the Land Conservancy just a, a few months ago um, to model how your systems would work uh, in 2050 based on the, their projections of the, of the sea level rise and the stormwater increases? Um, yes, ma'am. I mean, if, if sea, sea level rise would, would essentially affect the outfall condition of these ponds. So uh -huh. it's, it's, a, it's more of what, what, is that, what is that number but there are people who've projected those numbers. What is that elevation that would affect our? I don't have the, all that's, the that's I do I think I might have the report with me, but I don't have all yes. the details with me in my head. Um, to answer your question, though, yes, we would be able to evaluate that if if the sea level rise were coastal flood vulnerability study. Have you are you familiar with that, yeah. Queen Anne's yeah. County? Um, I mean, that might be helpful. To the people buying your properties to see within their lifetime of ownership of those properties uh, whether or not these systems are likely to be to satisfy the need for drainage uh, and water quality, it might be helpful to us to, to know that. I, I understand Mr. Stevens' point about compliance with the law is obviously what, what's necessary for you to do, and this goes beyond what's the law requires of you, but I'm, I'm thinking it might be helpful. Um, it's just, just not a legal issue. I mean, yeah, it is. It isn't. It is, there's, there's a, there's, um, there is process in terms of these plans and what we're required to do. Mr. Okay. Stevens, we need you to speak up, please. Okay, I'm sorry. It's just not a legal issue. It's a process issue as well in regards to the, the review process that these plans go through, the regulators that review them all the way from the state critical area regulations and their staff, MDE, all the way down to county public works. And to 
if the county adopts provisions and says we want you to look at this then everybody's going to do it but for individual projects to come in and say well I'm going to take this study but wait there's a better study over here and we're going to do that and the commissioner say well we want you to look at this study that we have no idea you guys even looked at uh, it, it's, it's, it's not a feasible thing for us to do nor do we think it's within the scope of the development review of the project and we're not trying to belittle any of the issues we're really not and this project has exceeded their requirement in every other aspect and exceeds the requirements here we're out of the floodplain I, I understand that I understand that I, I recognize that it's a burden that is not uh, imposed on you in any regulation or law that exists I just and, and actually your stormwater man says it is feasible to do I mean, it may, not, it may not be. I don't know how difficult it is. I just thought it might be useful to know when we are approving 1,000 homes to know if we're approving um, infrastructure that's going to be um, useful to them in, their, in, in the first owner's lifetime in the home. <laughs> I, mean, that, I, I think we have some obligation as, as a government to look out for the people who are going to buy in the communities that we're approving. And if we've been made aware that there, there are these problems forthcoming that Tom has described so much better than I can, um, then I just thought if we had a, a mechanism to look at it and to uh, help guide our decision-making, that would, that would be useful. I agree, if there's a mechanism. But there doesn't exist a mechanism. It, it, pardon me? The mechanism doesn't exist, is my point. The mechanism should exist through you all and regulations that are put down in terms of what Four Seasons and those, those developers need to apply. So that's, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but that, and certainly we've looked at floodplain issues and we're out of the floodplain on, we, we are not, have any impacts on the floodplain overall in the development. Um, so I understand and and, and Mr. Uh, Glass just told us it was feasible That's to do. So, anyway, I'm not going to argue so the point. So, my, my question is um, conceptually, if there was the idea implanted, thrown out there about maybe installing some kind of backflow, um, a backflow preventer within the pipe, I know that they make some of these things that's a amenable solution. Um, to concerns that have been raised, is that something that that you'd be willing to address? And that's that's a that's a fairly easy retrofit to the existing design. Um, floodgates, there's a similar term for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, outfall pipes to the extent if if there was a um, let's say a projected future flood elevation 20 years from now that rose by a foot or two and started to show impacts to those lines of flood of. Uh, a backflow preventer type of a mechanism on the outfall pipes is, is certainly a, a reasonable way to, to get around that issue. Well, specifically on, I uh, found it now, uh, on C-102 of Lane's uh, plans, the um, store submerged gravel wetland cell number 13 uh, actually is in elevation of plus 5. So it, that's not just, the, that's well above the, the, the outfall. That's actually the facility itself. The floor elevation. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, when you say floor, that's that's not what I'm seeing. That's the ele- the excavated elevation. No, no, that that would be the surface that you would see. Right, right there, right. or okay. that one. So that's obviously well in, well well inundated by a plus three or even more. 
right? I'm looking not, at not, the sheet, and it, ha- it has your there's a well, flood zone AE and flood zone X intersection runs right through the middle cell 13, or stormwater gravel wetland number 13, cell 2. Um, I just, again, I go back to my earlier comment of, of questioning the functionality and the, and the lifespan of these facilities to, to react and treat runoff to the degree that you have uh, calculated and specified. Well, in those specific examples, all of the outfall structures where the floor elevation is maintained, similar to the picture in front of you, see that round dome right there? That's controlling the outfall. So in order for the water to be backflow from a high tidal surge event, that water would actually have to be at elevation 6 in that particular design because that weir wall controls the wet water elevation to from a 5 to a 6. So there, there's a, the outfall structure itself almost acts as that backflow preventer before that water gets back and starts to intermix with any gravel media or plant material that's behind it. Because you'd have to have that head pressure to push it up that pipe to, to that elevation. you have to have a water elevation higher than a 6 in order for anything to flow backwards over that weir. Unless you've got six inches of rain then on top of that but yeah i, I hear i understand what your concept of so those, those those backflow prevention sort of automatic flushes if you had an open culvert are not possible because everything has in the, all of these systems has to drain up and over an outfall down into a pipe and then out the pipe okay thank you i'm confused so the retrofit can work or that's a different scenario uh this almost is a backflow preventer the way it's been designed but the way i understood the question was in my mind as an engineer there are uh, other scenarios whereby a, a, a check valve or a floodgate valve could be installed on a pipe that needs to be retrofitted so that it would prevent backflush. In this case, all of our structures almost automatically act as that control anyway, up to at least an elevation six. Okay. And that would be the lowest elevation that that would be at? Correct. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thank Thanks. you all. Um, Ken Schmid on traffic from traffic concepts. Ken has done, and his company has done all the studies from the from two thousand from nineteen ninety nine actually when this was a uh, about a, a, a I think a fifteen hundred unit development with commercial component three hundred thousand square foot commercial component down to its most recent which is the um, uh, one thousand seventy nine actually phase two um, which is less than that. Uh, so Ken's going to walk you through that what he did, what he found during the APF. In 2004, when the traffic APF was approved by the county, then we entered into the development rights agreement with the county, and then what his most recent study in regards to phase two um, found and concluded. Um, and then also, you know, touching upon the Saturday and Sunday issues that we all have, you know, down in the Kent Island area. And now, you know, if we go drive down there right now and we try to go over the bridge with one lane, we got those issues. So, Ken. My name is Ken Schmid. I'm with the firm Traffic Concepts. We're located in Hanover, Maryland. Like Joe said, I've been involved in this project since 1998, when this was a much larger project and a commercial development and um, uh, a much larger impact. Through main work we did was from 1999 through 2004, when the adequate public facilities study was actually approved, and the DRA was developed to uh, identify what needed to be done to support the development. Uh, that we had proposed. Uh, tr- we do that by doing traffic impact studies, and traffic impact studies are basically uh, studies that are done to support the uh, county adequate public facilities law that mandates certain levels of service must be maintained at uh, intersections within the county and state control. 
nearby the development. We go through a scoping meeting with the county and the state and establish the criteria, establish the intersections we have to study. We establish the trip generation rates and the, the background or pipeline developments that are active in the area that we should consider uh, the impact of that. And it, it basically the scoping letter sets out the uh, parameters of how we put together the study. And the county gives you that scoping letter, right? The county gives you a scoping letter and identifies those key intersections. And in uh, this case, we've been pretty consistent on all the studies we've done. We've pretty much studied the entire island of Kent Island. We've we studied the Route 8 corridor through the interchange with Route 50 down to Pier 1 Road and up to Route 18. We studied the area around uh, Castle Marina Road in 18, all those intersections around that area, crossed the bridge to the south side and looked at Postal Road and Old Dominion Road and that side of the, the, uh, the island as well. Traffic studies are done in three phases, basically. The first stage is the existing conditions. So what we do is go out and identify what the peak hour traffic volumes are at these key intersections. Generally in the weekday in the morning, that, that hour of heaviest traffic occurs between 7 and 9 in the morning. And in the afternoon on a weekday, it generally occurs between 4 and 6 in the afternoon. So we go out and do traffic counts with people or cameras that uh, recorded the, the amount of traffic that flows through the intersection for that two-hour period, and we isolate that hour of peak hour of time within that two hours, and that establishes our existing traffic uh, volume conditions. Uh, Queen Anne's County, like many other uh, counties throughout the state, including State Highway, use a method called critical lane volume analysis with to uh, assign a level of service. And basically what the critical lane volume methodology does is it, it calculates the amount of people per lane that travel through an intersection that compete for the same space in that intersection. So if you're driving on Route 8 through the uh, airport road intersection and one person's going north on Route 8, route eight and one person's going south on Route 8, they can travel through the intersection without competing with each other. So they're not critical movements to each other. But if there was somebody making a left turn coming north on Route 8 and crossing someone going south, they are critical to each other. So that's two critical trips. And Depending on the number of critical trips and the volume and the number of lanes carrying those volumes, you come up with a grade, basically A through F. A being the best critical lane situation, F being the worst. Uh, Queen Anne's County has a criteria that says that some in all intersections have to work at a C or better level service, which is pretty stringent for the state of Maryland in the growth area. They do allow D levels of service at certain intersections if approved by the planning and zoning director, but most likely they, they look for C level service. So we calculate the existing level of service based on critical lane, based on our traffic counts, and we establish that first level existing conditions. The next situation is what we call background conditions, which it'll become more important later on when we talk about that, but background conditions are two things. What are the pipeline projects that are active? Are there active projects in the area that are also trying to develop within your traffic shed? And if they are, you should we we're required to consider their impact in our analysis. So the county identifies uh, a number of background developments. I think in a 2004 study, there was about 14 background developments we included in our analysis. But the second phase of that background development is what's called regional growth. And Regional growth is supposed to be the growth in traffic along the road system that occurs outside the island. 
So the growth in traffic in uh, Annapolis, the growth in traffic in Queenstown or Easton, that tr transit Route 50 or route are through Kent Island. And we factor in a growth for that as well. And that growth rate that we have to factor per year is a 2% increase in traffic along the uh, in regional growth. And for the four season study, we had a 12 year build out period in 2004. So we added 24% to the existing volume to predict regional growth. Now, we've had this discussion with the county many times. And we don't really believe there's a lot of regional growth along the Route 8 corridor. It, that ends at one end and that ends at the other. So we think we way overestimate because we do add this 2% growth rate to the Route 8 intersections in Carter. Same with Route 18. Um, the regional traffic on Kent Island is on US 5301, except for bad summer days. But any regional growth occurs along 50 doesn't necessarily occur along Route 18, that Route 18 core that we studied all along. So, but we did. We add 2% growth to all those those uh, volumes we did to, to account for some regional growth. And then the final stage is to do the future conditions. What, what are we anticipating to generate in terms of traffic, and how does that traffic affect uh, the intersections? And again, we calculate a level of service. So... Uh, I think you can look at the first slide you have up there. This is a slide that shows in 2004 the actual uh, volumes from the, that study showed the critical lane analysis uh, volumes for existing conditions during the AM. And then the second column over is the 2008, 2018 existing actual volumes that we counted in 2018 for this study. And as you can see, there are the, the, the volumes, the critical lane number did go up for every intersection, and that's accept, uh, accepted, expected because as uh, traffic has built out and developments have built out and regional growth has occurred, there has been more <coughs> traffic through intersections, so thus a higher critical lane volume. But you can see in the morning that all the critical lane volumes at these intersections, the study intersections we looked at, are all A or B levels of service, which are acceptable conditions. And the second column is... Oh, sorry. The second uh, set of columns is the PM peak during the weekday. And again, you can see that the 2004 volumes we counted were lower, such a lower critical lane volume. In 2018, we counted existing traffic again and found higher critical lane volumes because we've had developments build out. We've had developments that we didn't know about in 2004 come online and build out. So it shows a higher, uh, <coughs> higher volumes and higher critical lane volumes in 2018 than compared to the original study in 2004. Um, and that's expected. The, the next, next slide shows me what the 2004 background numbers were that we forecasted. Again, this is that existing volume we, we counted in 2004, plus all the pipeline developments, plus this 2% growth for 12 years. As you can see, back in the, the original study in 2004, predicted some um, C and D levels of service at the uh, intersections up at 50, um, I mean, 301 interchange with... Uh, Route 8. So, Route so eight. Th this, just to be clear, this was what was in the uh, APF study, the APF the first column. Study. The okay. first column under AM is what... And it said this, this is what the future condition is going to be. Without with, four with, seasons. Without four seasons, Before but with, we, with yeah. growth in the region and with uh, on the projects on the right. pipeline. Okay. And then the next column, uh, next to each one, AM and PM, it shows what we actually counted 
our existing traffic volumes we counted, which should match or not exceed what we had predicted at this point without four seasons. And as you can see, most of the predictions we made in 2004 were well over what actually occurred. And I think the majority of that has to do with this regional growth. I just don't think it occurs on Kent Island because of the unique situation. If the regional growth that's going to occur, it's going to be occur along 50, not 18, in Route 8. So I think we added that 25% volume push to these numbers, and they just didn't appear. They just didn't occur. The background's built out, but they just they didn't occur. So all our projections for existing volumes are much lower than what the projected background was from the 2004 study. And um, this slide you have up here is Four Seasons Phase 2 Future Weekday Intersection Analysis Results. So this is what we calculated with all of the Four Seasons Phase 2. Phase 1 is already in a, as a pipeline development. Phase 2 is what we're here today. And we added that up with our new study and, and calculated levels of service at the various intersections, and all the intersections are working at B, C levels of service, or A levels of service um, with our most recent uh, uh, study. So what it's telling us and telling me is that the, the study we did in 2004 over-predicted traffic were well under the, the amount of traffic and the levels of service that we had predicted in 2004, and that there hasn't been a significant change on the island traffic that would make us make the results of the 2004 study invalid. And the 2004 study did recommend certain improvements. A lot of them have been done. The roundabout's been re reconstructed. The Casmarina Railroad Road has been dualized, and the, hike, the, the, the hiker biker or the trail crossing has been updated and modernized. Um, there's been turn lanes added to Piney Creek Road by this development, and there's other contributions that this development will make towards future improvements deemed necessary by the county and the state. Can you take just a minute to talk about Saturday, Sunday, because that's just, you know, it's the, it's the elephant in the room all the time. Okay. So just take a minute. Well, the, the county had asked us this time. To, we, we didn't look at typical – we didn't look at the peak summer during the original 2004 study. It wasn't required. The adequate public facility law requires you to look at the typical day and typical weekends. You don't look at the worst days of the year. Nobody does that, and the state of Maryland doesn't do that when they do forecasting studies. So – but the county wanted to see the information about the summers, so we did Saturday and summer, Sunday non-summer. These counts were done in October and some in March, and they were factored up. And you can see that um, during the Saturday and summer non-summer months, we still have acceptable operating conditions along 18 and Route 8, and that's mainly because we're not having anybody divert off of 50 at that time because 50 is, is able to handle the traffic without it diverting off. During non-summer times. Non-summer okay. times. but. During the summer times, we went out and counted, and frankly, we can only count the amount of traffic that goes through the intersection. And I feel like this is we, – we discussed whether would, this would make any sense to do this analysis or not, but the county wanted to see the counts and the numbers. So we counted numbers and we calculated levels of service, but we know that those levels of service are, are not correct. There is um, – during our counts, we have cameras, we have people that are counting, and most of these intersections were uh, – we're not flowing freely. <laughs> Traffic was crawling through the intersection, so thus we didn't count many cars going through the intersection. Um, I'm not going to sit up here and say that summer uh, weekday, weekend time periods don't have congestion on, on the, that spell out onto these local roads. They do. 
but uh, that's a regional impact, and not a, we typically don't have to address regional impacts like the Ocean City traffic when we're doing a localized traffic impact study. There's really nothing you can do for that. No, that's really, I mean, that's, that's a responsibility of the State Highway Administration, the Federal Highway Administration, and right. we can talk about it, whether they've done a good job or not, but um, there needs to be some um, things done to help ease that summer traffic. So, so just to put that in context, because it took me a while to understand it as you were explaining it over the past couple months, but when you look at some... better because this is going to be on the TV, people are going to look at those numbers and say, no way. Right, that's exactly right. That's <laughs> that's the whole point of this, and we debated whether to put them in, but we we're like, we have to. How can we not Better talk about that? and clearly. Right. Well, everyone on 2018, every Saturday summer critical lane volume has an asterisk next to it, and that asterisk down below yeah, says, we're, we're, means summer congestion just Disrupts traffic flow and skews level service results. That doesn't explain it either. That, okay. What? The point is, is that you can only count so many cars. That, so many cars go through your counter in an hour because they're going five miles an hour. Exactly. That's correct. <laughs> exactly. And That's they, the they are they are they are not allowed to travel through the intersection due to right. uh, so it's clear latent latent demand from intersections down the street. Right. So and, and the Sunday conch they did in the late afternoon. So they, they, these were they're dictated by the scoping meeting. We did these between three and six on Sundays. And we know from a experience that weekends can be the the peak flow can alter from twelve to one if it's a crappy day down the ocean and people just want to get out of there or if it's a really nice day down the ocean they want to stay and stay as long as they can and they tend to leave at two and three and then the levels of service are uh the, the delays come much later in the afternoon um so we know that there's a problem in the summer no no, no development we've done on Ken island has had to look and deal with the summer regional issues and I, there's no reason to we didn't in 2004, and there's no reason to think that we should be responsible for trying to fix something that we could never fix ourselves. Okay. All right. Any questions, Sheila? Well, I'm, I mean, I, I understand that models are based on, and they have to be, based on assumptions and, and averages and typicals. Um, I question some of the assumptions in your model. I know you have to have them there. One of the things I question is I, I did look at, I did read your traffic studies. I went to the um, staff meeting and heard heard the talk about Jill, traffic studies. Could you get yes. Um, one of the assumptions that I question is the um, projected reduction in travel by people over 55 who would reside in this community. Um, we had a letter from someone who's planning to move into the community, and he, he gave a projection reduction in uh, tra travel by people over 55 from another state that was actually different from yours. And I'm, you know, I'm over 55, and um, it certainly doesn't fit my experience that we travel three and a half times less than, I think that was your number, than the average 54-year-old uh, or 53-year-old. But I understand you have to use averages, but but I do question that. But the other thing is the typical, you kind of dismiss that, that the weekend, um, and it's not weekend anymore, it's Thursday through Monday, phenomenon of beach traffic that, that uses Queen Anne's County as a transit. Um, 
as being something you can't control. It's not attributable to this development, per se, of course. Um, but it seems to me that if you, are in, if you are a county through which people must travel to get to the beach, that is a, that is a real factor in traffic. And the fact that it doesn't fit a model because you can't count the cars if they're standing still, it looks like, it looks like it's fine, doesn't change the fact that for four days a week or two days a week or whatever, depending on the week, um, you know, you may not be able to move around. And when we're considering communities, it isn't, I realize you're just ameliorating for the additional impact of your community. You can't ameliorate for Ocean City traffic, but you do have to consider, um, it seems to me, what the real situation is and whether or not it's going to be tenable to the people who are moving around, who need to move around on those roads. And people have to understand that, um, uh, we have to understand when we're saying, sure, put in a thousand homes, that you already have uh, a website set up that at 90% of which, uh, a Facebook page set up where 90% of the purpose of the page is to complain about the traffic <laughs> on Ken Island in Route 8 and uh, 18 and on Route 8, but uh, particularly on Route 18. So I, I find it troublesome that, the, I th I'm glad the commissioners ask you to look at the weekend traffic, but I find it troublesome that basically your result says it's A and B. And, my, and, I know, no, and you've explained true. why, or actually our attorney has explained why, I understand that. But I, I think it, it, uh, there needs to be a, another kind of model for situations where roads are, uh, don't fit the typical pattern that most of your traffic is between 7 and 8 in the morning on weekdays. Oh. It's a bunch of questions there. I know. Let me, let me try I, it was basically just when we, when we When we first started this project in 2000, there wasn't a lot of information on age-restricted large communities like this. Right. And what we decided to do with the county and the state is to count four of them. One was in Virginia, one was in New Jersey that KHOB had, and two were in Anne Arundel County, Heritage Harbor, and uh, another one. And we came up with trip generation rates that were higher than what the IT trip generation manual told me they would, but lower than a typical single-family home. Now, I'm not saying they don't – they generate about half the trips of a single-family home. What they don't generate is the peak hour a.m. and p.m. trips. Some of the people will obviously work when they're 55 and older. They may go to work every day, and, but much bigger percentage don't in the 55 and older communities. And, and if they're volunteering and they're going to go out somewhere, they typically don't go out at 7.30 in the morning and they're not traveling across the bridge. They may be going to uh, somewhere on Kent Island. And they tend to trip. Our, our data and our studies show that their, their frequency of their trips peak between 11 and 3 during the day. And then about 3.30, they went home. And so when you're talking about the two to three times impact. It's not daily trips. It's the peak hour trips. Will this community have a shuttle bus and, uh, and uh, public transportation like Heritage Harbor and some of these others that you've used for comparison? That question is better, probably better for Mike Irons, who's the company president. He'll be up in just a minute. Okay. Okay. And, you know, there's the summer weekends. I would think that might cut down on car traffic if, if you have public transportation, which we really don't. The... Um, to address the summer traffic again on Saturdays and Sundays, the, the state has been in a program for years to try to 
try to spread traffic flows out to try to educate people when the best time to travel the bridge is and not um they have the reach to beach program with from it's just been 25 years where they have state vehicles out on the road to try to assist a incident that occurs to get them off the road or somebody with a flat tire to get them back on the road. I think a lot of the problems along here, I think the study that the state did last summer in 2018 showed that during the study times that they looked at of the 22 Saturdays and Sundays, they looked at 17 of them had accidents occur. And the accidents lead to increased delay but again it's a selected time we know when they're going to be there they don't they tend to get a little bit longer in the spring a little bit more in the fall but generally the most of what about now but we can the, 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 i think the, the crux of it is for the purpose of this or any other development that, that you're working on in the area prevent if this doesn't happen if phase two doesn't move forward does that change at all what's happening in regards to the regional issues no and if we do build your the amount of traffic we're generating during that time is a drop in the bucket to compare what's out there today. All right. I'm not going to over exacerbate this. Any other questions? Thanks, Thank Dan. you. Um, Mike and uh, Lisa, Lisa first one up. Lisa. Let him finish. Right. So um, I have Lisa and I have Mike Irons. Can, Can they go together? Uh, no. Uh, are they separate? Uh, they're semi together. Okay. <laughs> we're going to do it separate, Commissioner. Okay. Anyway, I'm you, sorry. You haven't withheld your eight-minute promise for no, each client. There have been a lot of questions, too. Withholding our questions, they haven't maintained their eight minutes, Joe. I, so. mm-hmm. Self-imposed, which yes. I probably shouldn't have mentioned in the beginning. After, yeah. after Mr. Griffith spoke, well. I should have amended that. We know you very well. After oh, that. Oh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Ouch. I'll try and go quickly. Yeah, Please identify yourself and who you're with. Do you want me to do it? You want I can to do it. it. Okay, there you Thank go. You. My name is Lisa Biddle. I'm a landscape architect with Land Design. We're in Alexandria, Virginia, and we're the landscape architects on the project. And I'm going to be speaking today about the amenity areas of the project and the enhanced landscape features of this site. In particular, the Four Seasons Boulevard main entry, the new signage monument there, the Four Seasons Boulevard landscape experience, the landscaping around each of the condo buildings, and the Bayside condo buffer between the new condos and the existing community, and the Chester House, the uh, clubhouse. This is an illustrative plan of the new community entrance for Phase 2. It is on the west side of Castle Molina Road, directly adjacent from the Phase 1 entry monument. I believe Mike will show some images of the Phase 1 entry. This phase two entry shows two flanking ponds on either side of Forsen Boulevard with a tower to match similar in style and character to the tower on the phase one entry and a signage wall that wraps around uh, with extensive landscaping on the back side of it buffered between the homes. This is an elevation of that westernmost sign. So the character and style of this is consistent with the phase one. The same stone, the same stucco will be used on this um, kind of uh, mirror image of the phase one entry. 
moving along uh, long Four Seasons Boulevard from that entry experience. Um, these are the typical landscape plans for the intersections and median of Four Seasons Boulevard, approximately a mile long road. So at each of the intersections, there will be enhanced landscaping as shown in the middle plan with ornamental trees, shrubs, ground covers, and ornamental grasses. And then at, so there's 12 of those. And there are four mid-block medians along some of the longer median stretches of Four Seasons Boulevard, where there will also be enhanced landscape features. Moving back to the Phase Two condominium area, as uh, Barry and Mr. Cahoon have already mentioned, there's five condo buildings. Each condo building will have a landscape typical plan, which I'll show in a second. And this diagram on your screen also shows on plan bottom, on plan south, the existing bayside condominiums and the extensive landscape buffer between them and the condo building homes. So the landscaping at each condo building is a typical foundation landscaping with ornamental trees, ornamental shrubs, ground covers, flowering, um, flowering species in order to uh, enhance the, the users and their guests as they walk in and out of their homes every day. Um, of note, I think, on this plan is the extensive landscaping in the rear of the building that um, is there with trees and shrubs in order to enhance the views of people walking by in the community trail behind the condos, as well as the views from future condo buildings that might see the backside of these condos. So we've done extensive landscaping in the back of the condo as well. Uh, this is some graphics of the Bayside community buffer. So on plan south between the new condos and the Bayside condos, there's proposed a three to five foot high rolling berm with plantings. These plantings will be a mix of shade trees, ornamental trees, and evergreen trees. It runs for about 750 linear feet between the um, road and the end of the condos and is 40 feet wide. This is consistent with the preliminary landscape plan that was made in 2004. I'll now walk you quickly through some of the amenities in the Chester House, the main clubhouse of the community. The design of this clubhouse is all about maximizing the great natural setting that is here on the Chester River. Um, it's the extension of the Four Seasons Boulevard, gets you into the clubhouse area, and we've maximized views to the river at each of these locations. And uh, I will now walk you through some of the main feature amenities. So on plan north is the clubhouse building itself and the amenities that are tied to that. And the immediate environs of the clubhouse include most of the amenities for the Four Seasons residents. There is, on plan south, a small auxiliary parking lot and sport court facility and community dog park and playground, which I'll talk about in a second. But there are two areas where the amenities sit within this parcel. Um, moving back to the clubhouse, some of the main amenity spaces are for community events for the residents of Four Seasons at Ken Island. 
And those include a formal events lawn, amphitheater with stage, outdoor kitchen and dining terrace, fire pits, grills, designated golf and golf cart parking. Sorry, designated bike and golf cart parking. Um, A yoga lawn, outdoor pool with infinity edge, outdoor spa. And then um, on the plan south, the sport court area, there's four pickleball courts, two multi-purpose courts, about a 0.3-acre community dog park that's separated into large and small dog park areas, a small playground, and a small parking lot area as well. Lastly, along the shoreline buffer, this is a landscape plan showing the 150-foot shoreline buffer, um, the plantings within it of native shade trees, basescape shrub mix, sorry about that, and warm season grass mix. This plan is consistent with the approved um, buffer management plan, and we have worked with the Critical Area Commission to review these plans and they're in agreement that these are in conformance with the 2004 approved plans. And that concludes my portion. Oh, I'm sure you have a question. Yes, Ms. Biddle, beautiful landscaping. Uh, you have a very, very good eye for that sort of thing. Um, however, I'll cut right to it in the excess of time in that I have difficulty understanding why certain non-native species were chosen for some of the plantings that were beyond the 150-foot shore buffer. Uh, we require in the county and all many areas that native tree species in particular be planted. They, they adapt best to our climate. They, they're of immense um, habitat value. Their carbon sequestration is, is greater. Uh, and, and I would like to see only native plant species and shrubbery and grasses planted throughout the community, in short. And when it's, I'm welcome to, for your feedback on why you chose Japanese black pine, for example, um, as, as one of your evergreens. Uh, but if, if you have a commentary, that's fine. Um, but I have a problem putting non-native plants in the critical area. Well, I guess in the critical area, the, are you speaking of the 150-foot shoreline foot buffer? Critical area. The 1,000-foot, okay. Um, yeah, we used a mix of... of Ornamental trees, many of them we tried to use natives. Uh, I think we have a lot of um, red maples, a lot of oaks on the property. Um, There are instances, especially around the clubhouse, where you do want something that's a little more ornamental in nature. And uh, so we've selected species that we feel like are appropriate in this climate for those areas. Um, Yeah. Is that a cost uh, decision? Uh, no. You know, native, I think one of the biggest issues with native species right now is, is the sourcing of them. Uh, and, and sourcing. sourcing. Sourcing of them. and yeah, the, They can't buy them. The ornamental qualities of them. Um, and so we've used species that will be four-season interest. They flower in the summer, spring, long seasons. They have color in the fall. They have nice branching patterns in the winter. Um, so we've prioritized plantings that have, can live all four seasons, live well. First thing problem because everybody's requiring native plants now. <laughs> I'm looking to purchase or to build a nursery business. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? 
Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Right. Now, finally, Mike Irons, who is the division president for K of Nanny. Shortest, right? Yeah. And well, Mike has. I'm going to ask Mike right here. That I know you got quite a few uh, slides, which are really great. But yep. if you could not speak to everyone, maybe, and move through the ones that you don't feel like you have to speak to. Absolutely. And we have the transportation question from Ms. Tolliver as well. Absolutely. Good morning. Good afternoon. My name is Mike Irons. I'm the division president for K of Nanny Homes. I'm Queen Anne's County resident. Been involved in four seasons since 2003. Been waiting for this day for a long time to be before you here with phase two. And a lot has changed since we've been at the planning commission in 2005. A lot has happened. And specifically, four seasons is now a community. It's a community. It's a community full of, of uh, residents, active adult residents, and right now we have 39 families who proudly call Four Seasons our home, their home. These families are excited to see their community grow, excited to see a world-class amenity being built, as well as welcome new neighbors. And we have a good portion of them here today. I'd like to show a quick hands of our, of our Four Seasons residents. Please raise your hands. So you can see you know, a lot of them here are in support of, of what we're doing at Four Seasons. Um, most importantly, what's in front of you today, obviously we have a subdivision, a site plan for some condominiums, but most importantly is our amenity. This is a world-class amenity. Um, we build Four Seasons communities across the country. Four Seasons is our brand name for an active adult community, a 55 and better community. And what's, what's special about those communities is lifestyle. We call them an active lifestyle community. And it's a community, it's a, it's, 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 you know, it's a, it's a community that has events. They have, you know, they, they become great friends. There's, there's lifestyle directors. They have clubs. They have things like that. And I'll show you some more about that in a minute. But that's what makes a Four Seasons community great is, is its lifestyle. And it's an active lifestyle for people who are similar age. Kids are gone. So first class, it's um, this, this facility that's in front of you today is unlike any other in the Mid-Atlantic. This is going to be the premier uh, waterfront destination amenity that's in the mid-Atlantic area. Um, here you can see a rendering of what that facility, that community center is going to look like from the water. Um, obviously, like Lisa said, expansive views, pier. Uh, she went through all the great things that's going on outside that amenity. I'm going to go through real quickly what's going on inside that clubhouse. Here you can see another rendering of the pools perspective view of what that looks like. Lisa explained a lot of it. I won't waste any more time with it. Here's a picture of the front elevation of the, of the building. It's a 24,000 square foot community center. Extensive high ceilings. I'm going to show you the floor plan real quick. Like Lisa said, it does have an indoor pool, a large lounge and club room area. It has a ballroom that can support 200, 200 people for community events. The exercise and yoga um, rooms are also uh, prevalent. You know, it's a big part of our community is exercise. They'll bring yoga instructors in, all those type of things. We have billiards and card rooms, meeting rooms, demonstration rooms. It goes on and on. This is a world-class facility, and we're super proud to be uh, putting it in front of you today. So as I mentioned, here's a picture. So right now we don't have a clubhouse, but all of our residents, you know, have that life want to see that active lifestyle and we have a full-time activities director and we've started having classes yoga class here's a you know picture in our sales center 
of many of our residents uh, doing yoga. So this is starting to show you a little bit of the lifestyle. We have a walking club that the residents are currently using the Cross Island Trail and other trails in the county, but they're anxious to have the trails that Barry and the team described earlier as part of their uh, route. You know, we have chicken cook-offs. This is all part of the lifestyle of Four Seasons community. And lastly, we just had a fall festival a few weeks ago. We set up a tent behind our model homes and had a great turnout of our, of our residents. So I'm going to go over real quick. Um, Steve, Mr. Cahoon, and Joe mentioned earlier about our DRRA, the Developers Rights and Responsibilities Agreement. And that agreement had many specific things that we were required to do, some responsibilities. I'm going to go through some quick photos of what we've completed from that agreement. And there's some significant infrastructure improvements here that we've built for the county. First one um, is the Route 18 and Cass Marina Road roundabout. There was a roundabout there before. It was much smaller. It was a smaller circumference and diameter and radius. We've, we've enlarged it significantly to accommodate uh, additional flows. And here you can see a picture of, of that facility. We've also built another roundabout at our entrance to phase one. Here you can see a picture of that. This is a, a county facility, a county road. Our phase two entrance will come off the bottom of that picture. You can see what that roundabout looks like. And you can see also, just real quick, I want to point out, you know, what the rough, rough costs of these facilities are that we've, that we've, already, that we've already incurred. You know, the roadside trail that, that Barry mentioned, this goes from the Cross Island Trail all the way down to the Bayside community. It's been heavily used by Bayside, Queens Landing, all those facilities. Now they have pedestrian and bike access right up to the trail. Also at the trail where the trail crosses Castle Marina Road, we put in a flashing beacon and installed safety enhancements to ensure safe crossing for people on the trail. Other improvements to Piney Creek Road in Route 18, there's a right turn lane off 18 that we built and a right turn off of Piney Creek Road onto 18 that we built. Those, those uh, improvements were just completed. Obviously, our water tower has become a new landmark on Penn Island. This, this uh, water tower is connected to the county water system, provides you know, peak hour capacity for the county and Penn Island uh, water system, as well as it also increases pressure. See what that cost us. We built a, a significant sanitary sewer pump station that serves not only our community, but it serves Bayside, Queens Landing, and, and the Castle Marina communities and takes our wastewater directly to the wastewater treatment plant. The next slide shows a force main that we built across the island, three miles of off-site force main that takes our wastewater, as well as Bayside's, Queens Landing, and Castle Marina's, across the island. On the way, we pick up Cloverfield's wastewater, and they're using our, facil our, uh, our sewer force main that we constructed as well. And you can see the cost of that, $2.6 million. That's also complete. All these things that I've mentioned are, are completed and in use today. The water tower, pump station, all completed, functioning, and, and serving not only our community, but all the other ones I mentioned as well. One of our more significant improvements that we're in design on is a new water treatment plant for the county. We're designing it right now. It'll be complete by the end of phase two. It's going to be on the county property where the county has a water treatment plant facility right now close to the uh, um, Stevensville Middle School. Um, and you can see the cost of that. And it also includes a significant commercial well. This will drastically improve 
the capacity and uh, ability of the, the Kent uh, Island and uh, County's water system. But that's in design right now, and it will be complete by the end of Phase 2. As mentioned before, the 131-acre park, um, we signed our deed for that to the county. It's going to be an eco-park. It was done to satisfy only a 27-acre requirement. We're satisfying it with 131 acres. Obviously, a great location for a park surrounded by creek, the Cross Island Trail. But what's most significant about this is also we, we, we uh, gave up 271 homes that were part of our preliminary plan. It was 20% of our original preliminary plan. We gave up, and we're giving it to the county. Yeah, that, That's, there, was a, there was a DRRA requirement for 27 acre of parkland that we acquire, and, and it's being satisfied by this. It's been satisfied because we've deeded it to the county. Our cross, we're also required to build a Cross Island Trailhead Park, and that, that's under construction. It's six, close to six-acre property. We're going we're gonna to build this park. It's a parking lot for people to get on the Cross Island Trail. It also has a restroom facility with running water, heated. People can park there, get in there, get on a bike or walk. It's a great access for the, for the county residents to access the Cross, cross Island Trail as compared to using the ad hoc facilities that they have now with porta pots and, and poor parking. That's under construction right now and likely to be finished in the spring. Oops, sorry about that. Uh, so our DRA also requires contributions to the Kent Island Fire Department. It's 430 out is a requirement. To date, we've already contributed 338,000. Next year, we'll donate the last 100,000. In addition to that, each of our residents, as part of their HOA dues, will pay $10 per month per home to the Ken Island Fire Department. Works out to be almost $130,000 a year when we're built out that the, the fire department will get from our residents. And they, we've already started collecting that, and like we said, we've already paid 338 to the Ken Island Fire Department. Here's a... We just paid our most recent payment here in 2019. It was a $1,000 check. Here's a, a picture of us giving that check to the president of the fire department. Other payments. We paid the county $1 million when we got our phase one unconditional approval. $1 million. We also, as mentioned by our Ken, our, uh, our traffic consultant, we're going to pay 350000 to the county for future road improvements at Maryland 18 and 552. Overall, all these DRRA commitments are $27 million, $27 million, of which we've completed over $9 million of those improvements with you know, more to come as we continue to build the community. What I think what's most important here is 35% of that commitment has been satisfied, and we've delivered 4% of the homes. So we've constructed a considerable amount of upfront off-site infrastructure that not only serves us, but it serves the, the whole Ken Island as, as, as well. So that was my point there. Um, I'm going to move on. Another uh, important thing I want to point out is right now we're doing, as far as for our stormwater system, Tim Glass mentioned how we sized our sediment basins during construction 300% larger than required. Right, 300% larger. And that, that came from us. We instructed him to do that because we take great pride in our compliance with stormwater. And 
our stormwater system is our stormwater practice is to capture as much water as we can and let and and treat it before it runs off. And how we treat it is through what a system called rain for rent. And what rain for rent is is it's a it's a filtration system. We literally filter our stormwater through a mechanical filtration system before it gets discharged. And that's to get the turbidity out of the water. The soils on Ken Island have a lot of clay, and that clay never settles out. Doesn't we we run it through nine treatment a treatment train of nine steps, fill self fence, ponds, blah blah blah. Nine steps, and it still doesn't get clear. We've implemented this system. It's a filtration system. All of our water gets filtered through it. Um, water basically gets pumped out of our basins. We inject some flocculants into it, natural flocculants that help to coagulate that sediment and drop that sediment out of the water. It goes through these big blue tanks that you see. Inside those tanks are some baffles that allow that sediment and that flocculant to work and that sediment to settle out. Lastly, it comes out of those tanks and goes through a, a filter system, a micro filter bag that takes that one left step out and then we discharge it out our outfalls. And when it comes out, it's clear. We have technicians on site when they're operating it, they're testing it, making sure that turbidity, all those things are reported to the state. We've had um, a full level of compliance from MDE for the last year and a half. We've gone through the wettest year in recorded history, and we have a perfect record with the state of compliance with our stormwater system. So... um, Lastly, I have some more photos of our community, you know, looking at some ponds, looking into the phase one, just to want to show the quality, the level of quality of, of what level of quality of Four Seasons community is. You can see significant landscaping, entrance monumentation, fountains in the ponds. Here's our entrance that Lisa spoke about earlier. You can see a photo of that. The phase two entrance will be very similar in, in material and in scope as that one. You know, we have five fully decorated model homes. You can see a picture of them here. They use them as our sales center. Their demonstration models are fully furnished. We staff our sales center seven days a week, eight hours a day. Here's a quick aerial view. Like I mentioned, um, we have 39 um, residents, families that call Four Seasons their home. We have... uh, another 20 or so that are under contract that we're building their home and, you know, actively selling all the time, um, pursuing more. So a couple quick pictures of our, our single family homes. We have three series of homes, a smaller one, medium size. The smaller ones are about 1,700 to close to 2,000 square feet. They're designed specifically for 55 and better uh, uh customers and residents you know slab on grade there's no steps Um, everything's one level generally the middle size series are more 2,000 to 2,100 square feet a little wider Um, all of our homes you know in this series have 10 foot ceilings Um, all the maintenance for these homes yard maintenance Mulching, things like that, it's all covered by our homeowners association. They have no maintenance uh, in their yard or mulch or anything like that. After saying more. 
Um, lastly is our biggest series, the Island Series, a little bit bigger homes, you know, 2,400 to 2,600 square feet. Have some interesting courtyard entries, we call them, which is kind of like a side load entry. Um, so they, these are homes that are all consistent with the plans that were in front of, you know, uh, part of the preliminary plan. Our condominium buildings is a it's a 14 unit building. It has garages, one unit, uh, one garage per unit on the side. Obviously, four stories, has internal corridors, has elevators, stairs, internal storage units. Um, the units range in square feetage from 2,000 square feet to 2,600 square feet. Here's a picture of the rear. We have balconies, extensive landscaping around them. Kind of go through this. Our first building is under construction. Here you can see some of the framing, stair towers and elevator towers that's under construction right now. Here's an aerial view. Looking back on, you know, this is a, a shot, a digital image. Um, looking what the community is going to look like. So we're, we're in the north end of the community up near Cloverfields, looking back towards phase two. You can see the amenity and the pier on your left. Um, you can see the pool and things like that. Just kind of an idea of what the, uh, the community is going to look like when it's fully built out. Lastly, um, you know, we've won several awards with the quality of our homes, um, and we're really super proud of what we've done to date. And we're really proud of, you know, what we're proposing here in front of you today. And it's a, it's a community of, of high quality. Um, and uh, we're very proud. Of, I'm very proud of it as a Queen Anne's County resident to bring it before you today. Are there any other questions? Yeah. yeah, Ms. Tolliver, you asked about public transportation. Right now we do not have any plan. But as our community continues to grow and if we see a demand for that, um, from our residents, we do have a lifestyle director. She organizes trips and things like that, that they will definitely use buses and to take groups of people to a ball game or whatever. Um, but if, if there's a demand that we see that our residents uh, want some public transportation, we could certainly arrange and, 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 and put some kind of bus stop or facility in there. But right now we don't have any plan. I was just curious about that in relation to the traffic study. I, do, I have two other questions, and I don't know if you're the right person to answer them, but you're the one sitting there, so... Okay, I'll and do my the, best. You're the last one, and these are my last two questions. Um, uh, one is a very specific thing. I noticed the parking at the clubhouse had 244 spots, and it looked like there were just five that were marked handicapped. I think the ADA standard is bigger; is requires seven for a commercial property of that size with that many spots. I don't know. Uh, are you? I'm not. Is that going to be that. ADA <laughs> compliant? I mean, all I can say, I mean, our engineer could probably step up and ask, but the county has done a full review of our, um, of our plans, and uh, perhaps the county could ask, answer that, but I would assume we're in compliance because here we are in front look, of you. look at ADA compliance on the parking? I, I can double-check that. Okay, okay, because we would want them to be compliant, of course. And, of course. You know, in a senior community, you might actually have yeah. greater-than-average yeah. need. The other one is a more global issue, and um, I guess this is also – probably more Steve than you, but I, I know you've probably thought about this. Um, the last, the people born in the last year of the baby boom turned 55 this year, 2019. And the demographics are demographics. Uh, the aging population begins to decline. Uh, you're, the population who are buying this kind of home 
after this year. And, and we've noticed in other parts of the state as close as Two Rivers and Arundel County that communities that were designed for people 55 and over are beginning to uh, ask for exceptions in the later phases of their developments because they're not finding that they can sell uh, as many homes as they had planned to build to that age cohort and have asked to be able to have market-priced homes for any age as part of the community. And uh, in other places, people who have bought these homes and want to resell them are finding that the market is more limited because they are limited to a particular age cohort and have begun to ask for exceptions. I'm just wondering, I know this project predates my time in Queen Anne's County by a lot, what kind of protection is built in for the county because the county's uh, AD, um, APFO requirements are all based on the premise that there won't be any school-age kids. What kind of protection is built in for the county to ensure that given the foreseeable demographics, uh, you know, we're not birthing 55-year-olds anymore, um, what protection does the county have to ensure that this will remain a 55-and-plus community? So all the approvals um, are premised on that, everything back from growth allocation, APFO. Right. Um, DRA. DRA. The and they were in, they were in uh, Anne Arundel County for two rivers as well. They were but then things changed. Conditions well, of, um, two things. They would have to g start all over through the process. To, to change those provisions and those approvals. But I think more importantly, um, there and, and show compliance with what has changed. Um, more importantly, I think there was a, um, restrictions put in the, in the covenants um, that, I don't know if there Chris, are, Chris can speak they're to. They're in there. Um, they have to be for Fair Housing Act purposes. There, there, there were two provisions. Number one, um, what Chris is speaking to, to be able to restrict the population of 55 and older, uh -huh. there are specific requirements that need to be in there. There was also specific requirements um, about um, the community at law, their, their entire community would have to vote to remove such a restriction and uh, in the covenants. That's correct. I, That's correct. I, I mean, can't. I don't think it's 100%. No, it's not 100%. But there are several levels of protection. And I think the most important level is is that anything, any change that would have to occur to that would have to not only be approved by you, but the county commissioners, because it's in every approval we have as a condition. So if we just said, or in phase four and a half, you said we want to change that, they couldn't do that without this body's Going consent and problem. without the commissioner's consent and without a reevaluation, as Steve said, of all the premises that we put forth based on the fact that we're 55 and older. That's in addition to the covenant restriction and the other restrictions that are out there. So that's the safeguard, really. I mean, the well, it's up, it's up to the county. It wouldn't could, be up to us solely. It would be up to the county. But could you elaborate on the covenant the restriction? The allocation was uh, predicated upon over 55 Critical Area Commission signed off on the growth allocation on that premise. Uh, there'd be, um, well, that was part of it. Uh, there was, uh, can you imagine uh, what the county would hit this up for, for um, school impact fees, which they didn't have to pay because it's over 55? It would have to start over completely. Okay. Thank you. I'd like to clarify one thing I said. Just oh, the, and the traffic, all the traffic counts, as you've heard, are premised on no kids. 
Well, they're all A and B intersections, so that wouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> they may not be when there's a bunch of kids at school bus. They may not be now if you try driving on them. <laughs> yeah, is that one clarification I'd like to make with regard to our stormwater system and our compliance? There, you know, um, my statement that we've been in full compliance is, is for the last 18 months. There was a flood that flooded Ken Island, and we did have an incident there. But since then, going through the wettest year on record, we've had a full compliant uh, report from MDE. I just wanted to clarify that. Any further questions? Thank you. Any other questions from the commission? All right. Um, At this time, the Planning Commission is going to take a 20-minute break, and we will resume at 1.30. Thank you. Correction, November 14, 2019. Uh, at this time, we will entertain public comment. So I have an extensive list. Um, the Planning Commission would respectfully request if you would like to be heard. Oh, thank you. Uh, the Planning uh, commission would request if you'd like to be heard. We would be, I'll call you by name. Um, we're also requesting that, uh, in the spirit of repetitiveness, if you would just like to say you're in support of the project, that would be welcomed. But we don't, we, kn- we understand who's in support and who may not be in support. Uh, so if we don't have anything to add, uh, we'd appreciate if you could limit and just say, you know, in support and not support. But by all means, everybody is welcome to come and speak uh, as it is public comment. So with that, we'll start down the list. As I call your name, um, public comment will be strictly limited to three minutes uh, as we have roughly 40 people on the list, uh, which could carry us here till about 4 o'clock today. So Joshua Willis. Uh, uh, for all public commenters, please state your name and where you're from. Hello, I'm Joshua Willis, a uh, lifelong resident of Ken Island, currently live in Stevensville, grew up in Chester. I have notes here, so if I'm not looking up the whole time, that's why I don't want to forget anything. Um, I am against it, the further development of it, with multiple concerns. So many people don't realize the significant history of Ken Island, founded in 1631. It's the third settlement in America, side next to Jamestown and Plymouth. I'm currently making a push to have that recognized as such and have more people understand the significance of the land and the history. One of those things being the John Benton farmhouse that was on the property until recently. It was a 19th century farmhouse with an 18th century foundation. Um, it actually burned down at the beginning of the development of this project. Um, but it was there for 150 plus years and I strongly urge others to look back there and see if there is anything else back there if this project does go through before we lose any kind of historical value underground. Regarding the surrounding waters, being Cox Creek and Maycomb Creek, as well as the Chester River, I understand the studies have been done, but I find it impossible that these further, the, the further building of these houses will have zero effect on the waters. It's one of the largest developments in critical area in the state of Maryland, if not the largest. I haven't done all the numbers, but I do understand how large this is in a critical area. 
Adding more housing and residents to an island with limited road infrastructure is simply irresponsible. Traffic is already noticeably worse in the Four Seasons area as well as the entire island and will only get worse with additional residents. Aside from that traffic study, a free study is it's an area surrounded by water with an infrastructure limited to the area surrounded by water. If you add more residents to that, the bubble gets bigger and nobody has anywhere to go. So it is an anomaly outside of the bridge. I did hear that somebody mentioned that the bridge traffic was an anomaly or the construction of that being an anomaly, which is untrue as well. The bridge will always be worked on and it will always need maintenance, and it happened about 15 years ago. So for that to be excluded from the traffic study, I feel like that was an irresponsible move as well. I also heard something about Route 50 not being considered in the regional growth study because or Route 50 being the only thing considered in the regional growth study because it is the main highway through there. However, multiple times I've heard that Route 18, the secondary road that crosses Kent Island, is not, it is not, or it is not legal to say that it is only open to local traffic. So that immediately becomes Route 50 after Route 50 stops. So that being excluded from the traffic study, I do find that as being irresponsible as well. I think that should be looked at again. I've lived there my entire life. I currently still live there. I see it every single day. It's not just Saturday and Sunday. It's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the summer. And if this traffic study was performed when I think it was, if I looked it up correctly, which was a Sunday in February with snow on the ground, that is one of the least traffic days on Ken Island. So just something else to consider. Now, that was a 2004 study. I don't know about the most recent, but nothing's gotten any better. Um, let's see. Uh, I would also like to question, I don't know how this is regulated, but how will the 55-plus neighborhood be regulated to stay 55-plus? Who is to stop somebody from having children or grandchildren live with them and go to school? I don't, I don't understand all of that, so I, I'm not going to speak towards that, but I just feel like that's something that should be questioned as well. Thank you, Mr. Willis. We appreciate oh, no problem. Thank you. Uh, please forgive me if... Please forgive me if I mispronounce some of your names. We have Mary Jo uh, Jamatis. She had to leave. Okay. Jay Falstead and Tracy Haas on deck. Hello, everyone. Jay Falstad from Queen Anne's Conservation Association. And just a couple of things that uh, I'd like to add to the record. Um, the renderings that you all saw and all of the photographs that we've seen were impressive. And I have to say, just looking at them, they all look great. But they are missing uh, something that I hope you all will take into consideration. And in fact, uh, the council for the other side invited you to do it. One thing that's missing is the county has a sea level rise and coastal vulnerability assessment um, and implementation plan report. And if you all, and if everybody in this room, especially those people that have bought properties at the Cahovanian site, would look at that summary, you'll see that in about 20 years, there's gonna, going to be two feet of water uh, lapping up against this property. What that means is that um, we had a, uh, an independent engineer evaluate the stormwater controls, stormwater plan, and it shows that most of the outfalls on this project will be underwater. And so when you start to factor in storm surge and some of the other things, in our view, 
We believe that this proposal in the Four Seasons Project is a very poor and costly long-term investment for anybody that's bought a house there, costly to Queen Anne's County, and, in, and an environmental mess for the Chester River. Um, I have a document that I want to submit for the record that was prepared by our lawyer um, for you all to look at. I think that's enough for everybody. And lastly, commissioners, I just want to point out one thing. The um, applicant's president said that they have been in compliance with MDE, and that is just a flat-out lie. Uh, back in, I think it was 2017 or 2018, they had a huge uh, stormwater event there that resulted in a $30,000 fine from MDE. And to say that they've been in compliance all along the way is just not accurate. Um, along those lines, if you go back into the record, Kovanian entered into a settlement agreement with the EPA that resulted in a million-dollar fine on over 570 projects across the country. 79 of those were in Maryland alone. So to somehow think that these guys have learned their lesson and that they're good on stormwater management, the record at both the federal and state level tells a whole different story. And I urge you to look into that a little bit before just automatically approving these guys because eventually this is something that we're all going to have to deal with. And when, we, when you all were um, looking at the stormwater dimensions of the library, this thing is 100 times bigger than the library. So I'll leave it there, but I hope you'll look into it a little deeper. Thank you, man. Thank you, Mr. Falstead. Um, I would have one, I guess, challenge for you. Uh, if you and the Queen Anne Conserva Conservation uh, would maybe reach out to Four Seasons and offer grant money as you guys are offering to protect the bay, you know, maybe if you went out of your way to help them uh, increase for the sea, uh, you know, for the rise in the sea level, um, maybe you could help fund as part of a grant to help this. I think that would go a long way in extending the olive branch. Can I respond to that? Certainly. I will allow you that opportunity because I brought it up. So I don't have my calendar right in front of me, but a number of years ago, uh, I think when Mr. DeCiceris was uh, part of Kehovanian, we did have multiple meetings with them. So, well... Uh, we're here today. I'd like to move forward and, and grow. If we want to reach back into the past, we could talk about many things. We could talk about photos that were submitted here and then in Dorchester County. And well, let me places. finish. Let me finish. Okay. The point is, is that we left the door open with Kehovanian to have those discussions. We're willing to have um, that dialogue as a means of trying to find some solutions. However, as things stand right now, we still have major concerns, but we, the door is open. Wonderful. Thank you for extending that olive branch. <coughs> so, no Ms. Haas. We have uh, Tom Tumultry, Garrett Timbaro, Doug Scheip. So, you are? I am not um, Garnet Timbario. She had to leave. 
I'm Carol Conrad, and I'm going to read her statement, if that's okay. Did you sign up later on in the... I did, way at the end. But I'm not okay, going to say... Wait, you, you, this is Garnet speaking. You're going to come back the, the, up later and say your own piece? The, if it's not already been covered. So that you, you'll have to wait for your place. You can submit that into the record? This is Garnet's place. Okay, that can be submitted into the record. Okay. Okay, thank you. Doug Scheidt? On deck is uh, Macintosh. Mac Macintosh. Yes, Hello. Uh, I'm Doug Scheip. I'm the community manager for Four Seasons at Kent Island. I thank all of you for your service to this county. I'm going to I'm gonna just say that I am strongly in support of approval of this plan and allow our, more of our homeowners to speak. I think you really want to hear from them. Thank you. Mac McIntosh, next on deck is Tim Glass. Good afternoon, all. I'm Mac McIntosh. I'm a Queen Anne County resident, 30 years, live in Stevensville, Maryland, uh, Tower Gardens. Um, I come today, obviously, in support of the project. I've spoken on behalf of the project uh, many times in the past and written articles about it. Um, you know, I think you can look beyond the pictures, uh, the graphics that were shown today. You can ride through the community, and I think it speaks for itself as someone that's something that's very attractive. On Ken Island, um, you know, my concerns in Queen Anne County are tax base, you know, and a uh, lack of ability to grow it. Um, you know, we just lost a Kmart store, um, you know, and things of that nature. So, you know, I view these residents as uh, a good ad for the county. I think there are intelligent people that don't travel during peak travel times, you know, and uh, to that end. Um, so, you know, I'm for it because it doesn't burden the schools. It adds to our tax base. Um, you know, many parts of this country are building assisted living facilities that people are moving into. Um, those aren't paying real estate taxes for the most part as individuals. You know, they're serving another need uh, for people that needed assisted living. Finally, I want to say that my wife works for Chesapeake Hearing Centers. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd love for her not to have to leave the island. They have an office in Stevensville. They also have offices in Annapolis and Severna Park. So she has to go to Annapolis and Severna Park often because they didn't have enough clients, customers, uh, patients on the island. They've added about a half dozen patients just in the time that uh, the residents have been moving into uh, Four Seasons. So good for local business. Uh, hopefully it keeps my wife off the bridge in the future, which would all be a good thing. So uh, that's what I have to say today. Is I'm just in support for a lot of reasons. I see a lot of positives. And uh, to say that anyone is automatically granting them permission for phase two or phase one or whichever phase, I see a everything but that. Nothing's been automatic. You know, they've, had, they've been tested every step of the way, and I think they've measured up well. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Mr. McIntosh. Uh, Tom Bavino, Bavesio, <coughs> Gene Judge is on deck. 
Good afternoon. My name is Tom Bavino. <clears throat> My wife and I have been um, residents of Queen Anne's County for just about 20 years now. We lived in Stevensville. We lived in Graysonville. We now live in Four Seasons in Chester. And I would just say that we really love Queen Anne's County. We love this community. Uh, our house is awesome. The people have been great. But you know, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I look at the roads and I look at the landscaping, and, and I've got to believe they're doing everything that they're supposed to be doing. It to me, it's the nicest part of Queen Anne's County right now. And to just um, speak to what the previous gentleman said, you know, I know a few business people in the community, and I and I just have to believe a thousand families of my demographic has got to be good for the tax base. It's got to be good for the restaurants. It's a little tough at happy hour, but we can deal with that. But besides that, I mean, I think it's – I am very, very much in support of this community. Thank you. Gene Judge, next on deck is Don Castellano. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Gene Judge, and I'm a 20-year resident of uh, Queen Anne's County. I presently live in Bayside, which has been referred to many times today, and it is abuts a uh, the Four Seasons. I've been a supporter of the Four Seasons for probably 15 years now, and I've followed a lot of it. Um, I'm pretty active on the island. I'm a, a board member of the Yacht Club and uh, an active uh, parishioner of St. Christopher's. So I do get around on the island pretty much. And also, I traveled back and forth for 13 years that I first lived here. Now I'm lucky enough to be retired. But um, when Mr. Falstaff talked about um, Four Seasons. He made it sound like we burned, the Four Seasons burned the house down. That was burned down by a local resident. So the historic house had nothing to do with Four Seasons whatsoever being lost. In the, and also the storm warning event was taken care of a long, long time ago. And um, I, I've been listening to him now for probably 15 years, and some of the things that he says are so biased. And, of course, I am biased because I am presently waiting for the um, condo buildings to be built so that I can be one of their first residents there. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you. And for, for the record, are you going to address that? Uh, Ma'am, you may blame Mr. Falstead for a lot of things, but he wasn't the one that said that the house got burned down. <laughs> I, I was going to make that. That was Mr. Willis. Oh, okay. So okay. I was going to make that same I, correction. I stand to be corrected. I'm sorry, Mr. Falstead. <laughs> Don, Mr. McQueenie, on deck. Hello, my name is Don Casterline, and I'm from Crofton, Maryland. I am a sales consultant at Four Seasons Ken Island. And I am very, very much in favor of the community. A lot of the people that we do see live in the surrounding area and want to stay within this area with like-minded people who are looking to retire. I thank you for your consideration. Thank you. Next on deck, Edward Presley. Pearsley. Good afternoon, Commissioners. My name is John McQueenie. My address is 1 Queen Victoria Court. Chester, Maryland. I live two blocks away from uh, Four Seasons. Um, I'm the one to blame, along with George O'Donnell and Marlene Davis, for, si for signing the Developers' Rights Agreement. 
Uh, we studied that for three and a half years. It's the most lucrative de developer's rights agreement ever signed on the Eastern Shore. It was 17 years ago. It is still, to this day, the most lucrative. Um, some people might think that we just signed it uh, haphazardly in the last few months of our term, but we studied it for over three and a half years, met with uh, all the communities. Uh, we got rid of the um, commercial part because some of the communities didn't want it. We got rid of the storage facility because of Face Bayside. Uh, and Four Seasons was in agreement with all of this. And uh, we reduced, at, at one time, uh, at, we got rid of the apartments. They didn't want apartments there. And um, we've had, uh, went from 2,300 homes down to 1,300 and some. And for that, we signed the agreement with 30-some options that also gave the, the counties 30-some million dollars worth of what we called extras. They've lived up to their agreement 100%. In fact, they've gone over it. Um, I'm impressed that they're giving 130-some acres to the county. Uh, they're only building on half the property. And um, I like the section that they gave the Cross Island Trail. For everything I've been blamed for, the Cross Island Trail was my idea, and it's been my, my, my baby ever since. But um, you got to look at the facts and don't look at the um, fallacies, I, I guess is the best word to say. Th th there will not be any children. You'll never see a bus, school bus ride through four seasons. There won't be kids stand there for an extended time. They might visit their grandparents for a couple of days. Who's going to take care of it? The people right behind me. They're not going to allow it. Uh, all you got to do is go up to Symphony Village. You won't see any of this happening. And it's not going to happen at Four Seasons because that's their baby. Um, I guess the last thing is uh, you, you hear Four Seasons, well, I don't know, they're on shaky ground. Any builder back here, not, not one of them is going to tell you that they don't get paid right on, right on schedule. Um, so what, what I really ask you is just look at the facts and don't, don't look at the fallacies. Thank you very much. Just for clarification, Mr. McQueenie, that 137-acre gift that exceeded the requirement that you set forth, wasn't that, uh, if I remember right from what I read in preparation for the meeting, wasn't that a result of the state having denied a wetlands permit for a bridge to access that land? I was only involved in the developer's rights agreement of 2002, and that, that wasn't part of it. That is the uh, but, but 137 yes, you, acres, you are there was an yeah. access? Yeah. Okay, yeah. thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you are correct. Edward Presley, Persley. Ray Smoot, Vicki Smoot on deck. Good afternoon, you must be weary after this long morning. My, actually, my name is Roy Smoot. My wife, Vicki, um, actually went home. We are residents of Four Seasons, have been for the last five months. Uh, my wife is a multi-generational resident of the Eastern Shore in Talbot County, Somerset County. And we recently moved from St. Michael's because we love the shore life. But there are a lot of things that happen when you reach retirement, and that is there are a lot of things that we didn't want to take care of in an older home 
and we were in search of a community of like-minded individuals, and I'm surrounded by them. <laughs> we're keeping the Eastern Shore lifestyle <clears throat> alive. Um, we came in, we were one of the first five homeowners in the community. So a lot of the things we bought as sort of a, a wish and then a dream, and what we have seen over the last five months, as far as I'm concerned, has been proof in concept, and that is that they've delivered on what they've told us. Um, we anticipate we will move forward with the next phase, um, and we couldn't be happier living where we are, continuing to enjoy the Eastern Shore lifestyle. And uh, I would encourage you, again, to consider the facts as they've been presented and uh, we look forward to uh, your continued monitoring of this and their compliance, but thus far they've exceeded all of our expectations. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Hilly Summers and Nancy Jensen. Lynn Semen Semenak. I don't see her anymore. David Matrinko. See him either anymore. Tammy Holden. Willie Comagies. Marie Dion. Doyen. Had a fifty fifty chance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Marie Doyen, and I live right now in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, I have, was the first buyer of the new condos. I'm looking forward to moving in in March, hopefully, if it's finished. I come and view the buildings about once a week because I love watching the construction. And I can't wait to live here. Um, I've always loved Kent Island and the history and the amenities and everything else. And I've been watching the Four Seasons development here for quite a few years. And uh, I'm very much in favor of it proceeding. Thank, Thank you, you for sir. your time. Jonathan Irons. Jana Boyd on deck. Oh, oops. Oh, on here? Oh. You can call my name. I just couldn't get in here fast enough. That's oh. Okay, you are. Okay. Ms. Holden, please. Hi, I'm Tammy Holden. I'm going to keep this short and sweet. I live in the Cloverfields development um, on Kimberly, right where it backs up to. I am in favor of the Four Seasons Project. I am also a businesswoman, and I have done business with the Four Seasons um, and their residents. I find them very charming. Um, I am very surprised at what I've seen just in the last six months when I went back in there probably 30 days ago. Um, it's a gorgeous development. I believe they've lived up to everything they've said they would. They've been fighting, I believe, since 1999. The roundabout is amazing. Um, I just see they keep coming up against hurdles, and it's to stop the project or to delay the project. Here's how this works. I get that they have 
to, they have rules that they have to abide by. However, they bought this land. When they bought this land, it was no surprise to Queen Anne's County what was going to happen. So for us to stop, continue to have these hearings, continue to um, prolong um, is just utterly ridiculous. They are business people. Um, there's people waiting to move in there. Like they said, there's going to be no kids, no buses. Um, traffic, that traffic's been a mess since I've lived here. I've lived here since 1990, 1997. Um, the bridge traffic, we're going to have to deal with that for a couple years. That's another we must deal with. It has nothing to do with Four Seasons. Their project is not going to add to the, the mess that we have with traffic. So to bring that up is just, I know they have to do a traffic study, but you cannot um, throw the bridge traffic in with the Four Seasons traffic. And they did not have to donate the part that where they couldn't put the bridge over, they didn't have to donate that, but they did. It's I understand it's wetlands. They could have kept it for themselves. They didn't. They just could have just kept it and said, "No, I'm keeping it." Bottom line, um, I think they've given a lot. I think they've given given a lot of money, and I think that it's time for everyone to understand and maybe stand behind them with the project, and let this project move on, so people like Miss Jean Judge can move into her forever home. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Oldham. So, Mr. Jonathan Irons and Jana Board and Peyton Emerson on deck. Hello, my name is Jonathan Irons, and I'm a resident of Queenstown. I enjoy fishing on the Chesapeake Bay, and I'm an avid bird watcher and nature photographer. I've identified the highest number of different bird species in Queen Anne's County in the past two years. Right now, I'd rather be dressed in camouflage out bird watching, but I felt it was important that I speak up for what is right in our community. I've done some research about the pollutants that contaminate the Chesapeake Bay, and here's what I learned. The Chesapeake Bay Program website quotes, agriculture is the single largest source of nutrient and sediment pollution entering the Chesapeake Bay. An article from NASA Earth Observatory in 2016 about the Chesapeake Bay stated that farmland is the source of 58% of the sediment pollution that reaches the bay, 58% of the phosphorus, and 42% of the nitrogen. The article also states that buffers can significantly reduce how much nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment flows into waterways, particularly if the pollution is flowing in surface water. Four Seasons was formerly farmland right up to the water's edge with no wildlife habitat and pollutants discharged directly into the bay. The Four Seasons property has preserved a 300-foot buffer from Cox Creek and a 150-foot buffer along the Chester River. The critical area requires only 100 feet and many older waterfront communities don't have any shoreline buffers. Have you visited Four Seasons lately? The buffer is fully regenerated with native vegetation and is ideal habitat for our bird population, both resident and migratory. This buffer is helping prevent any sediment or nutrients from entering the tributaries of the bay. Also, I am grateful for, to Four Seasons for donating 130 plus acres to the Queen Anne's County for an ecological park. I look forward to using the park for bird watching and bird photography in the future. 
Hats off to Four Seasons for creating valuable habitat in a growth area and helping preserve the Chesapeake Bay. Thank you. Jonathan, it takes a lot of guts to come up here as an adult. You were probably one of the most eloquently prepared and deliverable public comments, regardless of the situation, the scenario, and your parents should be proud that they're raising a very valuable member of this community. Jenna Boyd, Aiden Emerson, Steve Donovan on deck. Afternoon. My name is Peyton Emerson. I'm with Rain Ferent. Uh, Mike Irons did a really good job explaining what Rain Ferent does uh, with our system that's currently on the Four Season Project. Uh, we're a liquid handling solution provider. I, I specialize in stormwater. Um, I've been with the company I'm with for 12 years now. Prior to that, I was an environmental consultant specializing in stormwater. Um, the main message I'd like to get across is I do support the project. Uh, from my perspective, I've always cared about the environment. I'm an outdoorsman as well, growing up around the Chesapeake Bay. I have never seen in 12 years in this business a contractor take uh, stormwater as seriously as this one does. I mean, we're, we are basically the stormwater pollution prevention plan with regards to stormwater ponds on this project. Uh, since we've started this uh, solution on site, we haven't had any out-of-compliance water that I'm aware of. Uh, so I'd like to see that continue for the life of the project, and I'd like to see other contractors in Maryland uh, take the environmental responsibility as seriously as Kaobnanian. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Steve Donovan. Next up, Steve Layden. Thank you. Uh, Steve Donovan. I live in Centerville, so 237 Burton Air Drive. Uh, up near Centerville is a place called Symphony Village, about 600-some-odd homes, fully built out. I have never seen more than two cars ever. Early morning, late night, never seen more than two cars at the stop sign trying to come in or come out of that place. So uh, there's my traffic study for that. <laughs> second, uh, it's, it's insane. Uh, second, I want to thank that young man. He was fantastic, and he did a better job than me so far. Um, the numbers that uh, they read out in givebacks to the county, $27 million, I just want to highlight that again, all the things that they've done and changes. Uh, we talked about the 131 acres and why it was given back. I'd like to look at the 271 homes they're not profiting on in that. Uh, in that. But uh, the $27 million, the water tower, I'm not going to read the whole list. I want to let these residents back here talk. And finally, I want to thank Mike Irons for saying over and over and over, 55 and better. Sure sounds better than 55 and older. Steve Layden, David Cooper. Hello, folks. Uh, my name is Steve Layden. I work with McCrone. Uh, I was the lead engineer on Four Seasons beginning in about 2003. So I've got 16 years' experience with the, the project and the developer. Uh, I wanted to, to basically weigh in on the fact that... Um, Kavnanian puts out a good product. They stand behind their work and they do the right thing. 
And they're, they're, the best example I can think of for that is the, the stormwater event that happened in the spring of 2017. Um, uh, Mike Irons had referenced that in his testimony. He basically said um, that there was a, a significant storm and there was some release of um, cloudy water from the site, and that, that resulted in a violation. Um, I think Mr. Falstead might have missed uh, that Mike mentioned that because um, that it, Mike said that since that event, there have been no further releases, and that's true, um, just as Peyton um, from Rain for Rent just mentioned. But what I wanted to talk about is, is Four Seasons' response to that event. It was a, a five-inch-plus rain event. Um, that's a 10-year storm. Sediment controls are designed for, to, to contain volume from a one-inch storm, so it's five times what the sediment controls were designed for. So you would expect there to be a release of cloudy water. So their response to that was to have me go back and revise the sediment control plan to enlarge a pond, add a trap, reevaluate re the, the stormwater discharges from all of the ponds, and implement the rain-for-rent system in co um, cooperation with, uh, with Peyton's uh, designs. And so they voluntarily stopped work during that time while we were modifying the plan. We got it approved from the state. We worked with the state and local authorities. We got all the ducks in the row. Then they started up construction, and since then they haven't discharged a drop of water that hasn't been filtered by the rain for rent system. So that's over and above any contractor in Queen Anne's County that I've ever heard of. So I have the greatest respect for them for that. And it, it's not only in the site improvements. Um, I heard uh, one of the residents moved in and a sidewalk was built per plan next to his house and he thought it was rather close to the house and asked Kay Avnanian, would you move this farther away from my house? And they said, sure. They had no reason to do that other than they wanted a happy client. Um, from what I understand from all the clients I've interacted with, uh, they have nothing but the best, um, highest praise for, for Kay Avnanian. So I think those two stories uh, basically give you the comfort that the Kavnanian is doing the right thing and that they're going to make a community that we can all be proud of. And I ask that you allow them to move forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. David Cooper, Chris Tolan, Mike Laney. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Chris Toller, um, flooring contractor. And we do the flooring for KHOV out at Four Seasons. Um, I've been a resident of Queen Anne's County for approximately 20 years. Um, I've lived around Chesapeake Bay my entire life. Um, I came to the Eastern Shore because of the fishing and wildlife and hunting and, and so forth. Um, I've worked in local tackle shops. I tie parachute lures and bucktails that are on a lot of the boats today and are still being pulled around the bay. Got a call a few weeks ago about because no one could find three-inch spoons. I guess they thought I'd keep them in a safe somewhere. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, you know, since the uh, project started, you know, I had to travel across that bridge every day, and I no longer have to do that. Now I, I work locally. We've brought on installers now that 
are local. We have field people that uh, work on the project locally, so that helps out. And I just want to come here today and show my support for the project. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Toller. Mike Laney, Kevin Polacek, Jesse Parks, Hi, I'm uh, Jesse Parks, uh, 504 Perry's Corner Road in Graysonville. Uh, I am the uh, current chairman of the EDC. Um, so I uh, just wanted to come before you guys. The EDC, it's kind of been a longstanding uh, project that the EDC has formally uh, supported. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to come and reaffirm that support. Um, I am also uh, senior vice president of KRM Development in the business park. <clears throat> We have a lot of businesses that have opened there because this this uh, uh, because of Four Seasons. We have a lot of businesses that will, uh, like Chesapeake Hearing Centers, like Max said, uh, will continue to um, to uh, support the community, and the community will support their businesses and allow them to grow. Um, and then uh, also. I, I didn't know if you guys were still going to do the uh, text amendment, but uh, we are, and that'll be a separate conversation. If you'd like to do public comment on that, well, I was just going to say that we're going to have a separate, uh, uh, formal kind of uh, review of that, and then uh, at our next EDC meeting, and then put forth a formal recommendation uh, after that. So, uh, thank, thank you. you. Carol Conrad, O.J. Kim, my name is Carol Conrad and I live at 107 Ambassador Lane at Four Seasons in Chester, Maryland. Um, I'm here to support Four Seasons. Why did we move to Four Seasons at age 70 to look for an active lifestyle? Um, this is my dream for the rest of my life, my last chapter. Probably, I love this here because um, for the same reasons that the natives live here. I grew up in a small town. I love that lifestyle, and I find here what I value most. Um, I summered on the bay in New Jersey with 30 years of sailing. I lived for 20 years um, near and sailed on Narragansett Bay and watched that bay go from pollution to to light to alive. It was a great turnaround. I hope to contribute to the Chesapeake Bay. Um, I personally need to be near water, and I love the nature and the sunsets. I am married to a historian of the American Revolution. I myself um, was a 40-year teacher of high school history. Um, I value the history of place. I see that here. I am a trained um, master gardener in Maryland. Um, I hope to be a voice for nature, native plantings. Um, one of the things that really impressed me, one of the first things I saw when I came to the sales, they pulled out the landscape plan, and I sat there and went through the list to see how many natives they were planting. Maybe not every one, but absolutely a huge majority. Um, I care about biodiversity. Um, 
we have consciously used all local vendors, um, contractors, hardscape, glass, carpenter, window treatment, hairstylist, new bikes, Club One, the farmer's market. This is a great place to live. And I just am so happy that Four Seasons have given this us this opportunity. This place and the people here make me sing with joy. Literally, we have joined a church choir. Um, <laughs> I hope to become a great contributor to this community. Um, I think I value and the people that I've met in the community so far and the standards that Four Seasons sets um, is what I value. Um, I value what is here, the people, the place, and the history. Thank you. Thank you. C.J. Kim, J. Kim. Any other public comment? Something to add that has not been said? Please. I got inspired a little by the other speakers. Uh, my name is Tom Newberger. I am a over 70-year resident of Anne Arundel County, and I am now a prospective buyer in Phase 2 of Four Seasons, if, if it's approved, as, you know, which I hope it will be. Um, I, I, uh, I, I, want, I want to make uh, two points. First of all, I have searched ad nauseum. Uh, um, my wife and I want to downsize in, uh, into a more suitable home for retirement. And uh, I have searched ad nauseum for 55-plus communities throughout the state of Maryland. I have family roots in Maryland, including family that has property in Queen Anne's County. So I have already spent a lot of time here, and I love it here. But beside, aside from that, I can't find anything out there in the state of Maryland. I can't leave Maryland because my family's here. And I can't find anything out there that comes close to competing with what Four Seasons has to offer. And so I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about that opportunity. The other thing I want to simply say is I have a son who's been with Ryan Holmes for over 20 years. He's a senior manager. I won't name him, and I won't uh, say where he, where he operates, but when I first visited Four Seasons the first time, I called him. I said, okay, Havnadian's your competitor. I said, what can you tell me about them? He said, Dad, they built a great product. They build great communities. He said, I have nothing but positive things to say about them. That's a, that's a strong competitor saying that. So that's, that speaks very highly. I just wanted to make those two comments. Look forward to moving here. Thank you very much. Public comment is now closed. Oh, oh. Oh. oh, Mr. Schultz. Minute and a half. You did last time. Mr. Schultz, please. So Jody Schultz, President, Callan Volunteer Fire Department. I'll be short. I just want to acknowledge and thank Four Seasons for their contributions to our fire department. They've been a wonderful, I don't know what I'll call them, a partner, but supporter of our fire department uh, with the $437,000 that they're going to be contributing. A lot of it's already been. And, you know, one thing, that's a lot of money, but we just uh, ordered and, and are going to place in service next year a new heavy rescue unit, which we probably would have struggled to do if it wasn't for their contributions. And, and that new unit was cost us a little over $1 million. So this equipment's expensive now, and they've been wonderful um, contributors. And uh, 
we've adjusted our uh, annual our uh, homeowners association contributions because of the delay so they kind of stepped up to the plate and, uh, and made that adjustment for the i guess the 10 or 15 years Did, we've lost. didn't they go from seven dollars to ten dollars yes yeah everything he said <laughs> so, uh, thank you thank you any other public comment yes sir Good afternoon. My, my name is Eric Boone. I'm a project manager for Gaines & Company Incorporated out of Reicherstown. Um, we're the site contractor that was awarded to Phase 1 site development work. We're hoping that we continue on with Phase 2. Um, several of our main crew leaders reside in the, uh, well, we, they call it the shore, but obviously in uh, Goldsboro, Denton, and Chestertown. Um, so several of our employees who have typically been traveling over the bridge for the past decade are very happy to be working in, you know, in their home, you know, home counties, home area. Um, we feel we bring a lot to, the, not to mention the project, but the local businesses, what's dealing with the local resources. Um, you know, the hotels, our guys stay in hotels throughout the week. Um, you know, obviously our work is over the course of a year, so we feel we bring a lot of extra revenue just with the, the delis, the restaurants, the, God forbid, but the bars at late at night. But the... Um, but it's very important because the, the utilizing the local resources with materials and suppliers and vendors, and it's just, you know, we feel it's a benefit. And it's a big part of our revenue as well. And KF Naney, we've been working with them for well over a decade as well. And they're great people to work for, honest pay, and, you know, it's just good, good working relationship. We feel that we've worked with the, you know, the, pub, you know, the public works inspectors. You know, I think they're very pleased with the project and, and the contractors that are chosen, the trades that are chosen. So I couldn't ask for anything better, and I you know, strongly support the approval for Phase 2 and looking forward to co- continuation of the, of the job. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment? Something that has not been said. Please, ma'am. My name is Rebecca Mazzullo. I live. Um, Can you Ken- speak up and into the microphone, please? Sure. Hi, my name is Rebecca Mazzullo. I live um, in Kent Island. I've lived there my whole life. I'm a sales consultant at Four Seasons, and I'd love to continue to work and live in Queen Anne's County. Thank you. Last call for public comment. Hearing none, public comment is now closed. Thank you, everyone, for your comments for and against. Open it up to the floor for comment or the commission. Mr. Chairman, during the brief break, I spoke with uh, county engineering staff to sort of further clarify and, and get some resolution, perhaps, uh, or at least clarity and comfort in my previous commentary and, and concerns over the functionality of some of the submerged gravel wetlands based on sea level rise projections. And I'd like uh, the commission's uh, support behind a motion to have the applicant work with county staff to alleviate some of those concerns. I think that some of us have up here as well as uh, beyond the, the, the podium here um, with some scenarios some projections of sea level rise with, um, you know, a storm surge and rain events uh, that not only are we protecting the downstream resources, right, the public trust of the rivers and the water, 
uh, but also the success of the project. I'm not at all against the project. I think this is a tremendous support. All of you are very respectfully uh, representative of your community. And um, my, my main concern is about the stormwater function because when salt water inundates a submerged gravel wetland, that submerged gravel wetland dies. It's not as simple as replacing some plants that are inundated. Uh, right There's microscopic organisms that live in that medium beneath those plants uh, that really do the heavy lifting of the pollution reduction and, and sequestration. Uh, and that, those are not inexpensive to dig out and replace uh, every time it floods or when we get a, a significant rain and flood event. Uh, so in order to give me um, the ability to get behind this project fully, uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to make a motion that we ask the applicant to meet with County Department of Public Water, uh, the Public Works staff, predominantly Mr. Porter, who apparently is the stormwater um, uh, voice within that department, to then return to us when that um, process is over and explain and give more confidence that these required practices. Uh, stormwater practices will function over time uh, based on projected models of sea level rise and, and stormwater inundation. So uh, I'm in support of that. Can we provided that um, we can we add that as a condition to the final subdivision approval? How do, how do we see that again? Well, uh, I think we place that in Mike's so, hands and make sure that they comply with that. That if they're not complying with it, then it falls back on. I think we have two things here. Just to uh, to comment, um, the project before you complies with the stormwater regs that are in place. Um, the the um, the project has been reviewed. We we have certain regulatory standards, and the ones um, critical area floodplain zoning um, it complies with. And so, you know, this this um, review of sea level rise is above and beyond any type of regulatory requirement um, that, that the county would be able to impose. I, with all respect, Mr. Kuhn, we, this board and others similarly uh, assembled, can ask for uh, things above and beyond. We can suggest, uh, you know, changes in architecture that may not follow what um, what's regulatorily if I just made up a word uh, required um, and I and I I'd also like to suggest that this this information these modeling and and projected storm level uh, storm surges and, and rain events are um, more much more well understood now than they were historically um, and I see Trey now comes to the yeah. microphone <laughs> uh, don't mean to put you on the spot uh, Mr. Porter but I, is, I'd like to, my motion stands, and, and I'll. hasn't got a second yet. Uh, Could I just ask for a clarification? Uh, does your motion intend to table the proposal until yes, until this we comes hear, back? until my confidence is improved. I would second the motion. Okay. Now it's on the floor. Yeah, you didn't second it. I don't think formally second it, but go ahead. Okay. So we now have a motion and a second to formally table uh, pending additional uh, sea level rise documentation and modeling. Is that correct? Correct. 
I think we have to discuss okay. with Mr. Well, Porter. It's a little bit more specific than that. Okay. Isn't it? I would make how the how the designed stormwater management system how the currently designed submerged gravel wetlands uh, will function under I don't know several one to three scenarios that are used traditionally to predict stormwater um, increase in stormwater right increase in precipitation events uh, predicted sea level rise and or storm storm surge. So that we can have a better understanding of whether or not those stormwater projects will function over time, so based on those. With and with that, didn't ask that of the library. With well, and, the library's only that concept. Okay. That 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 was to Mr. Drummond's point. A, a countywide study to to evaluate how storm current stormwater management practices may respond to sea level rise is um, not a project-specific study. I mean, we have submerged gravel wetlands at all different types of elevations in many, many different locations that have been approved by this board and by the county. Um, if it's an informational um, um, study to evaluate that, I think that's um, very different than a project-specific approval. Go ahead. Where it did... I had something. Would, they've invited comment on the motion that's before the floor. So, uh, Mr. Porter, you as a subject matter expert for the county, we'd welcome your thoughts and opinion. I am a stormwater management reviewer for the Department of Public Works. Um, I re reviewed this project. Um, my comment – is this picking up? My comment um, basically is that we have MIA's maintenance and inspection agreements that do cover – um, basically rebuilding a submerged gravel wetland in the event that it is uh, saturated with, with, uh, with salt water, which I, I would agree would affect the biological growth of the bacteria that's necessary for it to function. Um, however, uh, our, our recommendation stands just because we do have uh, – our recommendation for, uh, for approval does stand based on the fact that we do have the MIA, we do have – uh, inspections and inspectors that can go out and evaluate any type of post-storm damage or storm surge or inundation that, that occurs. Um, however, we are equipped to evaluate a uh, sea level rise uh, consequence or um, tailwater condition uh, in the event that the Planning Commission would want further clarification of that. Um, however, again, our recommendation stands that, that we recommend approval at this time. Uh, no, we're done with that. I'm asking permission. No. So we we do have a motion on the floor and a second. Um, can I weigh in? Uh, clearly the Planning Commission has authority um, under the zoning code when it comes to site plan approval to be concerned about health, safety, and welfare. That's a, a broad sort of catch-all um, standard for discretionary authority. Um that language does not exist in connection with subdivision approval, though um, I think um, we could find any number of examples in either the code or in the comp plan uh, that would um, more likely than not support uh, concern about subdivision approval along the lines you have proposed. Um, what troubles me, though, a little bit is that 
you're asking for a study about an unknown um, and, and about which there uh, are um, scientific debates. Um, that is to say, we'll see level, sea levels rise by two feet in 50 years or 10 feet in 50 years or no feet in 50 years. Um, how would a project what would it what would a project not this one but anyone do to to have reasonable assurance of approval by the planning commission when it is being asked to study something about which there is about something in the future about which there's scientific debate again uh, Respectfully, Mr. Drummond, the 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 okay, debate I've is. I raised this not, sure. not to have a political argument, but in the context of acting, um, um, not acting arbitrarily, okay. capriciously, or otherwise. Sure. Well, so there are scenarios that are used to predict and forecast, right? Quantitatively, scientifically. Uh, sea level rise combined, and and then that that's one. One layer, and there's rainfall, precipitation modeling. That's another layer. And then storm surge associated with storm events, weather events, hurricanes, full moons aligned with the stars and the moons and everything else. Um, there are identified ranges, 0 to 2 feet, 2 to 5 feet, 5 to 10 feet over various years. Those are narrower, more narrow, um, quantifiable uh, potentials for um, this facility, the stormwater facilities, to fail. So, in the, I'd like to understand better what, how often those forecast, those facilities are forecasted to fail. Is that a, is that a policy matter, um, or is that a project approval matter? I don't know how to answer that. Well, it's very important to answer that because that will define whether it's whether what it might define whether the planning commission is acting arbitrarily and capriciously or not. Well, if 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 hypothetically, if I may, if it comes back that this these stormwater management facilities, specifically the submerged gravel wetlands, will fail every five years, I cannot get behind a project as beautiful and as as well supported as it is because it. It's irresponsible of, of us as a governing body, decision-making body, to, to insult the public good, meaning the rivers, right, the common good that we all own and, and enjoy. That would be irresponsible of me and this body. I thought that the, correct me if I'm wrong, that what has been designed will predictably handle predicted events. Am I right about that? Stormwater management is designed based on rainfall uh, and certain hydrographs that that uh, Maryland Department of the Environment passes on to the counties. Is this, um, a, is this based on some sort of historical data? It is yes, but it's historical, based, not it's based, based not on anticipatory. Correct. It's based on rainfall, which is a important to, important distinction to be made between a rainfall storm versus a storm surge versus sea level rise. Very different components, very uh, similar um, flooding may occur, but they, they could be from, from different, different levels. We 
the uh, the sea level rise study that was done with the recommendations has has three different uh, ways of looking at it. It has has a two-year rise by 2050, a four-year rise by 2100, and then a two-year rise at 2050 that includes a two-foot storm surge on top of that. So those he's designed is what in these plans designed to handle all that? No, and, and stormwater management works independently. Stormwater management review works independently of that, so that is not a consideration. Um, sea level rise, sea level rise is not, and um, neither is uh, storm surge. It's independent of stormwater management. Whether it, it should be or not is a policy decision, but as far as the regulations that we review at Department of Public Works and basically throughout Maryland, as far as, as, far as I know, stormwater management is isolated to rainfall events. What, what happens if what happens if what you are saying is not true or doesn't come to fruition? In other words, let's say that we have some unusual rainfall and storm surges and all the things that Tom's talking about. Can your department go back and review and and recommend or, or force four seasons to make changes? That's a legal question. I, I, we operate under the regulations that we currently have. Uh, whether or not we can, to answer your question, I would say no. Uh, but it's more of a legal question that needs to be. It, DPW I guess is is, the answer is no until the law changes. Correct. Well, would it, I, I, I just want. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Let I'm me sorry. just finish, no, uh, Miss Tolliver. I have a. A problem with uh, we're interjecting something into the equation here that uh, I, I'm in favor of the project. I think the the community. The, I listen to all the people that are in favor and all the things that's done for Queen Anne County, and and it will do for Queen Anne County. And I just I, I don't know that it's uh, morally right. I guess is maybe the word I want to use to hold this thing up. Uh, for any given period of time to make this study on an unknown because that's what it is. It's really an unknown, Tom. I mean, I know you have facts and figures. <laughs> and that's just my opinion at the moment. So I, I, uh, I, I don't know how to address this thing. I don't know. Uh, well, I'll stop there. Two, two things before, with respect before, to Bob's point Before about Sheila gets started, folks, you were asked to be respectful to, at the beginning. Please let us let the Planning Commission deliberate without the interruptions. With respect to Bob's point about projections being impossible, we do projections as a limitation on development all the time. That's why we discussed a traffic study at some length with respect to this. It's a projection of what the traffic will be um, <coughs> based on certain assumptions and certain standards. So it is. this is a different context. I mean, it's a different measure, but it's not a di different in, in, uh, in its nature of being a projection. And I, I think maybe what we need to do, um, if, if, if Tom is agreeable, is put some boundaries. We are calling this a study, which sounds like it's something long-term. I think what, what I would be satisfied with, but it's your motion... Um, would be to have to use existing data, existing county approved or federally approved or state approved um, projections, 
such as the one we had uh, uh, were briefed on a couple of months ago from the Land Conservancy, uh, which is a Queen Anne's based on a Queen Anne's County study, um, and use those as the standards, and then have them model the storm the stormwater management system and produce maps and or tables showing how it would respond under the assumptions in those studies, not to try to restudy or reproject or, or develop new standards because none of us really has the capacity to do that. But there are project, those projections are available. And I, I mean, maybe Tom can identify what standards. It, maybe that doesn't satisfy what you're after. I don't know. But well, first, here, didn't we just hear that stormwater management and all the calculations that go into it are premised upon rainfall? not upon sea rise or storm surge. So even if you supply that information to the folks that do all the calculations, they won't know what to do with it because that's not how you calculate an effective stormwater management facility, if I correctly understand what you just said. We, we can evaluate a, a design that shows a tailwater condition, and we can... What, it was, we, what is a tailwater condition? So that condition? would be basically water coming up at the outfall so that it so that the stormwater doesn't have anywhere to go and there's a potential for backwater backing up into the system. We can, we can look at that. It's just that, and I think it was discussed earlier, um, there, there's no mechanism for us to do that. However, as engineers, it is a hydraulic equation. It is, it is something that you can, you can calculate. Um, but, but as a stormwater management reviewer, and that's our responsibility, there's no mechanism to add in there's no solution in the regulations for that calculation. Is that what you're telling us? We can calculate it. We know that the water will back up this away every six months or whatever the heck it is, and it'll create this much backup pressure, and it'll blow out the weir that we saw in there. But there's no regulation that tells us what to do with that information. Correct. And there's also no regulation that establishes a, a certain benchmark storm or storm surge or sea level rise upon which the calculation should be based on. So it's sort of a moving target until policy establishes that those numbers. Uh, the consultants, you know, they, they can they can go different directions, but until 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 there's a regulation that establishes the uh, what's acceptable what, what's acceptable and what's not, we we can evaluate it and we can, you know, we can see, okay, well, there's, there could be saltwater intrusion So, And with that, Mr. Porter, because we those are unknowns that we, we can't control at this time, it, there are studies and estimates, but we do have policy, a mitigation plan, that if we do have a backup and an overflow back into a, a, a retention plan, we have a mitigation plan to remediate that. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Okay, thank you. Mr. Wisnowski, you want to make a comment? Very, very, very quickly. Uh, from, a, <clears throat> from a planning perspective, uh, in the development community, in the development environment, we all have rules and regulations that we have to abide to. A developer comes in, he has to make sure his stormwater calculations work. He has to make sure he's in the proper zoning district. Many, many, many regulations that are clear-cut and the, the playing field is level because we all know what the rules are. My concern from a planning perspective is if we, if we now are going to have this issue come up of sea level rise, I'm not saying it's not important because it is. We've been studying this for the last two years. It's, it's an important issue that has to be addressed. But from a development perspective, when a developer comes in to 
to develop a parcel of land. Now, from a planning perspective in the planning department, are we to say to him, well, you meet all the rules and regulations, but you should be aware there may be this issue of sea level rise. To me, that's, that's not fair. We have, we have a set of rules that, we, that are established that any developer has to abide by. Zoning, land use, stormwater management, forestation, afforestation, critical area, all these rules. And so I'm uncomfortable now going into the future. How do I, how do I appropriately and accurately uh, advise someone that wants to develop in Queen Anne's County to say, oh, by the way, you know, the Planning Commission delayed this project because of sea level rise, where I don't have a basis uh, to, to require that because there aren't any rules and regulations established in the state that deals with this. And I'm not discounting sea level rise. I understand it. But there, there has to be rules and regulations that a developer can rely upon to solve the problem. And we're just not there yet in the state. This morning we made, when we were talking about the library, we acknowledged that there are no design standards that apply in that district. And yet, we talked a great deal about the design of the library, and we included in our in our recommendation in our um, resolution a, a recommendation that they go back and look at the design and make some changes to make it compatible with the community. And I believe it was a unanimous vote to on do architecture. That. So it seems to me it seems to me that we could do the same thing here if we had the information available to us, which we don't have. We could take we could. If we find, and maybe we won't, that using standards that other people have already, or, or projections that other people have already made, if we find that it's likely that this is going to be, that this flooding is going to be a problem, doesn't mean we have the right to refuse the project, and I'm not inclined to want to do that anyway. But it does mean that we can make a recommendation about how to accommodate that reality now before the pro- before it's built, rather than ten years from now when people are, are coming into the county and saying you let them build this big project and I can't get to my house because I have to walk through muddy water. But, but I'm concerned about future development in Queen Anne's County. Well, and, me too. And if if Mr. Stevens in two months brings in a shopping center redevelopment project and it happens to be on the island and it's maybe four or five feet above sea level. Uh, is that project not going to go forward because the Planning Commission is going to require them to study sea level rise? I just said we might make a recommendation. I didn't say we could require And anything. what are the rules under which they, they have to apply? That, to me, I'm not discounting sea level rise, but there has to be regulations established so there's a level playing field. And to, to pick and choose which project you might... Inf- might question sea level rise and which projects you may not question sea level rise, I don't think it's fair. But this is a project that is in a very environmentally sensitive area. It's bounded by water all around. And it is, by their own description, the largest project in the state of Maryland, maybe, of its type. So it really is different in character from one commercial building on Ken Island that somebody might want to build in terms of the potential impact. I'm not... I think we. I agree with you that we need to have a standard. But I think if we do, somebody doesn't start someplace to find out just what the effects of of the 
things we know are going to happen. We may not know the degree, but we know they're going to happen. Somebody needs to make the recommendation to the people who make the laws in this county and in the state so that we have a, so that we have it and if we don't if we can't examine that in the context of a large environmentally sensitive project then where does that ever start if it's a public I policy not, issue I might not to put too fine a point on it these are state standards by the way but well the state standards. legislature is is can be responsive to us <laughs> But I, They're not obliged to be, but they can be. But if it's a if it's a public policy issue to be evaluated, how sea level rise would be incorporated into development regulations, or which zoning districts it would apply to, um, then it's a planning document that that you'd you'd look at it during a plan the time of the planning doc, uh, document being created. So during the update, well, of the comprehensive plan, right, which we're planning to do. And that's, that's, that would be the time to, to evaluate whether you're changing policy across the board and not project-specific. Steve, I agree with you. I agree with everything that's been said, actually, with Ms. Tolliver and, and Tom Lee. But I, I think that we – I don't just don't see how we can interject this into that situation of approval uh, – especially since this thing has been going on since 04 or whatever it was, and the fact that they have already spent millions of dollars of improvements, uh, a larger percentage than they have actually have built the, the homes, home sites. Uh, I, I just don't think it's right. I don't see how we can do it legally, quite frankly, to... to uh, uh, to hold so, this thing up. So, so let me ask another question. Were there similar submerged, what are these things called? Submerged gravel wetland. Submerged gravel wetlands in a five-foot elevation in phase one that was approved by this planning commission without this discussion? Does anybody know? We don't have submerged gravel wetlands in phase one. Too bad. No, I thought that might solve the problem. <laughs> <laughs> And other, you saw pictures of them. Water retention, biosphere. Can I offer a compromised approach? I know I'm not, if I'm allowed to speak. Come to the table. Spoke with Mr. Trey, Mr. Porter, outside. Our engineers did. We looked at our elevations. All our top level elevations are six feet. Mr. Mr. Excuse me, I don't have the microphone. Mr. Porter um, looked at, and uh, we discussed that we have a, um, a easements and agreements with the county that if something failed, we would have to rebuild. So that mechanism's there. There was some discussion about other mechanisms that might be able to be incorporated. Our concern is getting held up, not going back and doing an evaluation and a little more in a little more analysis with the Department of Public Works to see if there are things we can incorporate and maybe even coming back to you and reporting on those. And we have phases three, three and four, which are which more than double the size of the community to come back before you. So the compromised approach, and I spoke with, with Mr. Irons, is this, look, we'll go and make it a condition that we evaluate these things in the coming months, see if we can come to some um, mitigation, mitigation provisions that we can incorporate into the plan, but that it, it doesn't hold up the project. 
Okay, we'll go back and look at those, but we don't want it to hold up the project. They're ready to move forward and move ground and have done everything under the law, not to mention comply with the DRRA, which freezes the development regulations to 2002. Um, so that's what we'd like. Not the state's requirements. This, this, this is the, right, and we've met stormwater for the state. I understand. Right, so we're not. I'm not debating that. So don't you have some insofar as possible? No, uh, Mm-mm. we met completely. We didn't. We didn't do it insofar. It's completely ESD MEP, the site. So that's what we'd ask is a compromise approach, not to do this and hold it up, but we'll go back and if you allow us to move forward, make it a condition that we evaluate these we things. Do agree that in 2002, you're the holy grail that you guys hang on to. Don't change the rules on us. The rules in 2002 also said, particularly in the site plan, that the Planning Commission uh, may consider the health, safety, and welfare as a site plan criteria, hmm? right? Yeah. No, I don't disagree and with that. Health, safety, and welfare is not frozen in 2002. Health, safety, and welfare uh, I, might be that which is applicable today. I could get into a very long debate with you on that, Mr. Drummond, and I'm not going to, okay, because I'm offering a, new, a, a, a different approach. I, I don't necessarily agree, okay, well, but but I don't even want to go there. You, I don't started, you said that we've done everything we're supposed to do, uh, and, and right. by the way, you're frozen in time in 2002. You said that. Well, we're not asking for that, I, I was, and I, we can have that debate if we ever have to. And it, I'm trying the, to help Mr. Lee here. I think you know he's got a leg to stand on. I'm not sure I agree with it. I think this may be a policy issue, not a project approval issue, as I raised before. Well, but yeah. I'm very sympathetic to what you're trying to do. Okay. And I, I, too. I, I, I understand that. But I'm looking okay, at the, so we, we have a motion on the floor and a second. Is there any more discussion amongst? Yeah, could I commission? bring something? Maybe um, in the spirit of trying to work out some sort of compromise between the uh, – Okay, between the, the final subdivision approval and pulling a builder permit, there, there is time in between. So why don't we, we can proceed with the approval but not issue the building permit yet until we can rediscuss this and, you know, move forward on that? I, 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 yeah, I don't know if we can approve and not issue a building oh. permit. In the spirit of trying to find a, a ways of way of moving forward with this final approval, but yet still not going to construction, is there anything along those lines that we, we can do? I don't I don't see how how that no it would have to be a condition of approval, which is I think what yeah. So um, as I mentioned, we have a motion we and a, a mo second. The motion right now is to table pending. Not quite sure what it is, but pending uh, additional information for sea level rise in the shortened version. So, um, all in favor of that motion? Aye. Aye. Two. All against the motion? Three. I'm abstaining. Uh, right. Three. You're off the hook. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, two and a half. Yes. So, the. Um, that motion has failed. So now I will entertain any additional motions for a final subdivision approval. Now, Mr. Drummond, I do have a uh, question. The way the information was laid out from Mr. Calhoun, um, it lists a final subdivision approval and then final site plan approval for the condo buildings and the clubhouse. 
clubhouse. Do we have to do all three of those individually, or we may do them all at once? Did you do them all at once? Okay. It's all one application number, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it, it was all at one application. Okay, I'll, I'll make the motion. Okay, please. I'll entertain the motion. I would just make sure you get the numbers that go with each one individually as they're in your staff so report as far as the number of units and the... Okay, be it resolved that the Planning Commission grant final subdivision approval to Kevorkian Four Seasons at Ken Allen 2 LLC for 179 single-family lots and associated open space lots as phase two of the proposed uh, 1,079 dwelling unit age restricted community as outlined in application number SP 18-09-0014-C with the following conditions and to include the final site plan approval for a condominium building let me back up here. For 70 condominium units and five multifamily buildings as phase two of their proposed uh, 1,079 dwelling units. And also to include approval for a condominium building Of 20, consisting of 26,533 square foot clubhouse building as part of phase two. Boy, I really got that messed up. But <laughs> I'm trying to double read here. <laughs> Did you get all that down, Sharon? I got it. You got it all down? Okay. Um. Yeah, 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 okay. With the following conditions. <laughs> I'm sorry. Number one, all legal docu documents, including off-site easements, must be approved and recorded. Number two, all required sureties review and inspection must be submitted to the Department of Public Works. Number three, any outstanding minor engineering edits be made to the plan as directed by the Department of Public Works. And number four, all required signatures must be attained. That's it. Can we just, do, you want to, uh, do you want to them work on and what's the rest of it? <laughs> what we were talking about earlier. Right, that they just made an offer then to uh, review everything, whatever. Consult with the Department of Public Works regarding the... Uh, okay, the, the, the number five condition would be to consult... 
Department of Public Works. With the Department of Public Works regarding the sea level. Right. Assess functionality of uh, stormwater. Stormwater management as a result of. of of rising sea level, sea level or whatever, yeah, but that's yes. As long as we'll go back and have that evaluation, that discussion. So long as we don't have, it's not a holdup. It's not a condition we have to meet before the plats assigned. Well, I've got two good attorneys here, here today, and I, I can't. Get it. It's not a condition of approval. <laughs> no, no. Um, as I understand it, that you will consult with the Department of Public Works and its experts and your experts to assess the functionality of the uh, stormwater management system as shown on the subdivision and site plans. Um, um, uh, not in, the, in light of, but... Um, the word I with, uh, might regarding the anticipated sea level rise and, and storm surges. And climate change. And report back to the Planning Commission, but... As a, a and report back to the planning commission. Yeah, I mean, conditions of approval. We generally go down and check off prior to signatures of the plat. That's and not what we to This is just in the future. This is correct. As long as it's it's referenced that way, that the, uh, the evaluation is done, and we report back to the planning commission the findings, and and, and or maybe potential mitigation measures, and. That's right. Okay. I would also add, and then revise the, the microphone, David. Then also revise the submerged wetlands as, as you know, needed. Whatever comes out of the outcome of, of this study, then you would move forward and make a revision if a revision is necessary. Well, we'd, we'd agree to implement the reasonable recommendations. Are of we the complicating this thing? Yeah. Yes. I thought that the when the motion didn't pass the first time, I thought that was passe. I mean, we know we have this issue to evaluate. We got phases three and four to come up. I did not originally intend it, to have this as part of this motion, but, and, but yeah, I, we've done everything under the line. We we prefer it not. Hold a second. Everybody's it, talking at once, including the audience. They, the it, applicant, through its attorney, offered to engage with the Department of Public Works in a, an analysis of how these systems will work in the event of the anticipated sea level rise, not as a condition of approval or moving forward, but as a study item to then report to you and not holding them up. I think the telegraph that they should be receiving, Tom, tell me if I'm right, is that when they come back for phases three and four uh, and this study has produced some scientifically um, verifiable results, that future stormwater management f systems better incorporate some of those recommendations. Am I getting that, that out right? That, that I would agree with. Yes. So make that a part of the motion, if you will, Sharon. <laughs> Thank you. It's going to read very well, Bob. <laughs> I said scientifically supportable. I know. Okay, that's so, it. Sharon, uh, for the record, I think the first four conditions we pretty much understand. Can you clarify and read back? So in Chris Drummond language, the fifth condition, please. <laughs> and that's impossible. Uh, number five would be to consult with the uh, Department of Public Works to assess the functionality of stormwater management system as shown, I'm guessing, today. In the event of storm surge. We haven't gotten there. No, can I just 
um, the anticipated sea level rise and storm surges. And report back to the planning commission. Okay. Everybody understand point five? I would like to make uh, an, a number six, please. So, well, we have a we have a motion. I need a second, and then I'll we second. can do an amendment. Fair enough. I have a motion and a second. And Tom, you want to make an amendment? Yes, please. I'd like to add um, that the applicant um, developer uh, revisit their landscape planting plans to incorporate native plants throughout the development. Well. Where approved and supervised by our resident re landscape architect, Mr. Director, there may be cases where a situation warrants a non-native plant, but I'd like to see the native plants planted throughout the development. All right. So, it's 100%. Large percentage of them, not all. We have some ornamental areas. So we have a motion, a second, and an amendment. Um, on the amendment for discussion before voting upon the amendment, um, I believe the landscape architect has already talked about sourcing and that being a problem to meet size and caliber uh, for this particular project. Hence my comment that the director, at the director's discretion, if I'd rather see a tree, a non-native tree planted versus no tree. But I'd like all possible, I don't know what the verbiage is, attempts to be made to make this community native to the furthest extent possible. I understand they're already that way in the buffer, but there are, there are choices that have been made in the uplands that are non-native ornamentals. Shouldn't that be in the landscape? Wait a minute. The language we we'll use for this purpose is insofar as possible. Is that a good enough language for you? Yeah, correct, yes. Insofar as possible. Do I have a second for the amendment? Second. I have a second on the amendment. All in favor of the amendment? Aye. By voice vote. We have to vote. We have to vote for, on the just amendment. Just for the amendment first. All in favor of the amendment? Aye. Aye. All against? Aye. Aye. So that the amendment fails. So we have the motion. Uh, the second with the first five and the second. So, is there any further discussion? All right. All in favor, say aye. 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 Any opposed? Abstain. So, passed. Thank you, commissioners. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for being patient. We'll give one minute to clear the room. Uh, please note the meeting has not been concluded. We still have additional business, so we would ask it those who are leaving to exit quietly. Thank you. Okay. Next on the agenda is text amendment 19-17, urban commercial, 
use tenant space exemptions, proposing to identify specific conditions under which the expansion of existing uses of a tenant space in a UC zone may be appropriate. Ms. Murdoch. Welcome. Good afternoon. So I intended for this to be an easy item after your Please, last... Please, you're going to have to pull the microphone the and speak. Yeah, I intended for this to be a, an easier item after your long agenda, but I don't think it's going to be. So. Okay, so um, what you have before you is a proposed amendment to uh, the county code to the... urban commercial density um, intensity requirement and to the uh, supplemental uses and additional uses and regulations sections of the ordinance. Um, I have Amy, pull that microphone up a little bit closer to you if you can. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Sure. Um, in your staff report, you have um, a the full language as proposed, and you also uh, have the background as to how this um, proposed text amendment uh, came to fruition. I can go over that if you'd like me to. Could you ask them to move down, please? Hold on one second. Let's do that. Okay. Okay, so um, the county had become aware of uh, the threat of a prominent retail space being vacated in December. And so county staff reached out to the developer um, of that property and through dialogue with that developer um, opted to take a proactive stance in trying to provide some viable options so that we would not see a vacant and derelict commercial retail space uh, at the gateway to our community. So this amendment is an attempt to provide some flexibility to the code specific to the urban commercial district and specific to existing structures that exceed the current limit. So uh, what we did was we did not intend to open a can of worms that need not be opened but to address specifically a need to provide uh, for retail space in an existing location. So that is what you see before you. Um, I wanted to put that proposed uh, exception, which is what we're proposing, an expansion of a use and or tenant space that occupies more than 65,000 square feet of gross floor area in a structure that existed on or before January 6, 2004. Such expansion is limited to 50% of the gross floor area of the use and is subject to supplemental use standards outlined in Chapter 181-58-0. So that is why you see an amendment to two sections. I wanted to put that um, proposed language in context uh, here is the existing standard for urban commercial uh, density uh, intensity requirements. You can see it on the screen. There are currently 16 uses, which uh, are exceptions to the 65,000 square foot limit. 
and Q is the uh, proposal that you have before you. We modeled this proposed language on a uh, text amendment which you saw come to fruition today in the expansion of existing warehouses. So that language is a reflection of a text amendment that has just been approved uh, within the last year to provide consistency in plan review uh, in the ordinance. Also, um, before you, in any text amendment, you're charged with finding consistency not only with the uh, county code, but also with the comprehensive plan. So I've uh, put before you the uh, goals, principles, and strategies which are specific to increasing opportunities for retail and service through diversification, occupying vacant spaces, and adaptive reuse. So there are many um, sections of the comprehensive plan which are consistent, and you have them before you, but I wanted to, let, to illustrate that there are um, several strategies. Um, you're also charged with uh, making a finding of consistency with the land use article, which translates to a consistency with the local code. Um, so I put before you the district standards for the urban commercial district. The purpose of that district is intended to provide primarily for a variety of commercial and limited light industrial uses in predominantly urban areas along major highways. Stringent design and landscape standards within the UC district are intended to minimize impacts of commercial uses. Uh, that is why the district standards that are proposed um, in the supplemental uses do include um, supplemental review standards so that if a project does meet the criteria that it existed as of the, um, the 65,000 plus square foot um, unit structure existed as of the enactment of the current code, which is January 6, 2004, that that extension <clears throat> expansion be limited to 50% but also be subject to the town center and urban commercial design standards uh, for commercial and mixed-use development, uh, that they must be implemented insofar as possible. Uh, that design uh, guideline document is affiliated with the community plan for the um, Stevensville um, community. So with um, careful attention to consistency with a previous text amendment to the design standards, the purpose of um, urban commercial, and uh, the comprehensive plan sections that I've cited, uh, staff is recommending that the Planning Commission review this text amendment favorably. Thank you very much. Are there any questions for Ms. Murdoch? I, I have three three areas of concern. I guess the, um, the first area of concern, um, and I asked Ms. Murdoch a background question, which I think was uh, copied to you, um, relates to the singularity of this project. Uh, according to Ms. Murdoch, there is no other property in the county that meets the criteria for this change. Uh, and I do know that spot zoning um, which this would be, 
is frowned upon at best and illegal at worst. I, I have a, a copy, for example, of a case in Maryland, the uh, Huff versus, versus the Board of Zoning Appeals that was in the Court of Appeals of Maryland, and it says... When a zoning ordinance, this is the pertinent part, where amendment puts a small area in a zone different from that of the surrounding area, we have what may be called spot zoning, using the term in a descriptive sense. Such zoning may be invalid or valid. It is arbitrary and unreasonable devotion of the small area to a use inconsistent with the uses to the rest of the district is restricted and made. It is, I'm sorry, it is arbitrary and unreasonable to devote a small area to a use inconsistent with the uses of the rest of the district to which the rest of the district is restricted and made for the sole benefit of the private interest of the owner that would render it invalid. I'm wondering what it is about this particular project that um, makes it not vulnerable to a charge of spot zoning and possibly an invalid spot zoning. I can start to uh, respond, and I'll let Mr. Drummond uh, chime in where I might fall uh, and need some legal backup. Spot zoning is specific to uh, changing the zoning of a property and is not specific to proposed uses of a property. So we're not proposing to singularly change the, a property that had heretofore been a different zone. What we're doing specifically is within the context of the standing exceptions that are articulated in 18-1-22D, uh, um, three specifically, where there are 16 exceptions to the uh, limitation of the 65,000 square foot gross floor area. Uh, we are adding another standard to that list to provide for um, flexibility that we feel is consistent with that zoning district, but also consistent with the comprehensive plan. The literature that, that does is consistent with my legal advice to the department. <laughs> is what the we literature did does, does reflect, however, that an amendment to the use is no, actually can no, be that's not what you said. You said it was that's a zoning district change. I, I, I well, I, mis, I misspoke. Unless you're talking about the part I What's read. What's the name of the case? Pardon me. What's the name of the case? The case I read was Huff versus the Board of Zoning Appeals, Court Huff, of Appeals Huff. of Maryland. H U F F. Yes. I'm not familiar with that one. I have a copy of the pertinent piece of it. I didn't it, have it. If you are concerned that this is the so-called red-headed Eskimo bill, it absolutely is. Thank you. It is absolutely. I think, that should, I think that should be a part of the record because, and I think it should be part of our consideration. Well, there's been no, we're, we're totally transparent about that. Right. No okay. one's hiding that. We, well, nobody well, knows what this is There was nothing in the staff report. We're trying to fill a, a void, an anticipated dark center that it happens to be a big box retailer. And so in our discussions with Mr. Cordish, who owns the and, property. And so it's clear, I understand the planning and zoning. These two staff members are fronting for this. They didn't start this. However, they've been asked to front for it. So it's clear about that. I'm not, I'm not personalizing this or placing any blame that's at all. Beside the, point. Uh, the people that started this aren't sitting here right yeah, now. That's okay. No, that, that's just beside the point. But from a planning perspective, it makes absolute 
sense to, to, to do whatever we can with, within reason and good planning to try to make that building, that site, attractive to the development community. We have a long history of vacant uses along 50, and it, it hurts our economic development, it hurts our growth, and, and it's unsightly. And so the goal, the vision, is to, to massage the existing standards to make it more attractive to a developer that will quickly come in and make that use viable. And I think the safeguard in that is we're going to require good architecture, good land planning, good landscaping to, to um, infuse life back into that rather uh, worn center. And, and that's really the goal. And it's, it's just a larger version of what we did with Chester Storage last year where we allowed that use to expand in that zone by 50%. And if, a, if a cost is a Target or a Walmart and you're not willing to accept that, then you don't recommend it. But that I, I'm is not, the cost. I'm not, here to, um, I'm not here to evaluate a specific store. We all I, know or what to, this is about. But let me clarify. It could be or, any retailer that needs that amount of space. And, it could and, be from a Wegmans to a Dick's Sporting Goods to a Walmart. I mean, everybody keeps clamoring about two uses. They may be the most popular, and they may be what we've heard, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be some other major retailer that needs that much space. And that's what and we're trying to make, is a cost make it attractive. Of this amendment. I'm to sorry. Get that particular site uh, economically viable and revitalated. And that doesn't mean that a retailer would not come in and maybe take half the space and redevelop the property. I mean, it just gives him more options, that's all. We're trying to create as many options as we can so that that building doesn't stay dark for a decade. Well, the way the code is written now, it probably has prohibited. It's non-conforming. It's non-conforming. And if it goes dark for more than a year, uh, then it, its legal non-conformity expires. Right. And then we may not be able to refill it. Not by we. I don't mean Well, we. that's what I'm saying. That's probably why we haven't had any big box stores to, to even infiltrate the area. Probably it's because of the, the coding. Uh, is this? That code requirement. Yes, limits. It's, it's very restrictive, really. Yes. Yeah. And we're not trying to, you know, one of the suggestions was to make it all in the UC, and we're not doing that. We're being site-specific to this property. And, 65, how many, uh, how many other properties? square foot was picked back in the day. I'm sorry? The 65,000 square foot limitation was picked back in the day, and I've forgotten what year it was, because it was believed that there were some grocery stores that would be in the 60,000-square-foot vicinity. And the grocery stores, there was a, a – no one wanted to prohibit grocery stores. That's why 65,000 was picked. And, and that was done by referendum of the public, was it not? I believe that there has – I believe I yes, it, it was by referendum. And, and that's, my, that's my second concern, that we are, administ are administratively recommending a change, which would be adopted legislatively, that would overturn the public, not, not, a, not just a, a law, but the yes. public's will, at least at a given time, at, at the time that it was adopted. There was, there and was my, third, my third concern is with the clarity of the language itself. And um, – 
I asked, um, I was concerned about the 50% increase of what, because it says use and or tenant space. And I understand that the current store has 115,000 square feet, of which 65,000 is occupied by a tenant. I don't, what's the rest no, of it? That, that's, that's, that, that's the that's entire strip. No, oh, that's what makes more doc sent me. I, I think I, I think your answer your question ninety five thousand ninety five thousand square feet so it will be an addition of forty seven thousand five hundred. It's ninety five thousand. The gross yeah. square footage in the building or the no, tenant the Kmart. The tenant space. This language is specific to tenant space. The gross floor area of that use of so that you, tenant space of that use. So what you're talking about is a finished product of one hundred forty two thousand five hundred square feet. Possible. Possible. Yeah. Which also leads me to a question, too. Can that well, site accommodate that much more square footage given well, the, that's a very the, good question. the future roads that are right. planned there and the right. wetlands and everything else? And that would be evaluated as part of any site plan. Well, you uh, have to come before us. Right. That's yeah, right. And, and so we don't know. That's a very good no, question. I, because I, I want, it's going to be tight. One of the things – well, there, there's there, – there's property around that Kmart that's not used. There's a pad site that's grass. As an example of that, um, but you're right. That was one of the first questions that I had in my mind. Could that center accommodate that much square footage? Well, we'll evaluate that as part of a site plan application that would come before but this there's commission. There's some future roads right there, right. too. But, but let's start with the opportunity. That's what we're yeah. trying to do. And that's where the comprehensive plan and those design standards that are uh, – proposed to be required to be adhered to insofar as possible all come into play. We started with this language because it's consistent with the ordinance as it stands. It's, it's a viable proposal for your review that provides you a consistent jumping off point for this dialogue. Um, that 50% uh, a precedent has been set with the mini storage facility uh, text amendment, uh, I looked and I had you know, the same concerns that you do. What would an expansion of this type of use look like? Um, how imposing might it be? It would really need to come with um, some pretty stringent progressive design standards to be consistent with the comprehensive plan. And that's when I spent a good amount of time with the design standard document that was adopted in 2008. And it's quite good. Uh, the design standards are quite comprehensive, and I was thinking along the lines of making recommendations for your consideration that are already in existence, which is why I referenced this plan specifically uh, in this proposed ordinance, so that it's very clear, should an applicant come forward, if this text amendment does move forward in some form or fashion, that um, there are very stringent design standards that would guide how any expansion would look. And since we know we're talking specifically about that site, um, you know, we're, we would also be looking at, through the, or, through the comp plan, infrastructure upgrades and improvements so that um, what is there is in effect a big box store and our only one. How, how many square feet is there now? Kmart K store K is 95,000 square feet. The total footprint of the shopping plaza is 115,000. So that's where I was, I was trying to find out where uh, David 
God is 142,000 yeah. so, now, I understand. I, so, okay. the, so the existing Kmart space could be enlarged to 142,500. Yeah. Potentially. Potentially. I, I say potentially there are, because in, in our conversations, uh, and just knowing the market, there's probably not a retailer that needs that much space. Most of the, I think most of the Kmart stores, uh, a Walmart, I mean, uh, and Target, or in the 95,000 95, square foot. Hey, I just looked it up. The average like, Sam's Club store is 134,000. I was going to say 120 is pretty much it. 105 is the average for Walmart, and 105, and then 135 for Target. But we didn't want to try to create another set of standards. We, we, we wanted to use the language that was previously adopted last year. So there's consistency in the code. That, that's how and why well, we From an economic 50%. development point of view and the tax structure, I would think that we <laughs> we need a we need that participation by. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, you know, it's the, it's our front door. We want to be as receptive as we can for the economic development in the county. We have this box. It's not like it's a vacant piece of ground and we're creating a big, big box. We just want to fill the box. And we want to make it attractive so someone will come in. I think it's a great site, by the way. You come right over the bridge, bam, you're, you're there. It has access. It's, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful site. I think it would be very attractive. It'll handle, it'll handle the traffic, too. It'll, I mean, they, it's, no, it's an ideal location. Yeah, absolutely. And and we we are contemplative of the referendum, and a text amendment is a public and viable process. It is it is it is not dismissive of the of the referendum. Uh, Had we put forward something else that would um, open up for new development, um, or had tried to uh, span multiple districts, um, then yes. I would have um, the same agita that you're, you've expressed, but um, why didn't we, you just include the pos- potential for example for grandfathering in the existing space, which would ex- exceed the sixty-five thousand square foot limit that now exists, uh, instead of grandfathering that in and allowing a fifty percent expansion? Not as if we didn't consider it. Well, why did you decide on the 50 percent? I think this, aware that is there a particular tenant that is no. contemplating no. this site? No, no. Well, then why? I'm just curious why you. Because same market research that we just that discussed. We're aware that, much like grocery stores aren't 25 to 30 thousand square feet nowadays, they except for Aldi's, they tend to be 50 thousand square feet. These large retail spaces aren't under 100 thousand square feet anymore. And they're certainly not under 65,000 square feet. That's, and, you know, you could say they can't raise it more than 10% or 25% or 100%. We just picked 50 because that was the same as the mini warehouse. To go back to my question that I started with about use and or tenant space, can you, since, since the language that you're proposing uses the use and or tenant space, and you're saying... That what's the difference? That's the existing language. That's not that's not new language. That language exists. Well, what's um, the difference? So that, how would the, I know that the, if the if the use of the ninety five thousand square feet is for urban commercial retail, and Kmart is a tenant using sixty five thousand square feet of that space, how would I know whether to use the ninety five thousand or the 
65,000 square feet. You're, I don't understand. Okay, well, let's back up a bit. This language is exactly the language that created the 65,000 square foot limit. Okay. okay. So I'm still trying to understand what it and, means. And I thankfully and to I didn't see if write it's it. clear. I didn't write it back when it was written at 65,000 square feet. Okay. So now yes. we're going to be asked to parse the language that was created some 10 now, years ago. No, we're we're asked to adopt this language. Even if it exists someplace else, we don't write in Old English anymore, even though it's there. Um, right. So I just want to understand what, what's being proposed. And if if use and tenant space are different, which they must be because it says or, what is the difference? Uh, it could be that... And, and if we're deciding what 50% is, how do we know which one to... Which well, one I, to I, I think, I think the answer... Let's say Kmart built and owned the 95,000 square feet, then it wouldn't be tenant space, it would be a use. I, I, now, we happen to know that Kmart's a tenant. Right. But uh, I don't know if Target builds its own buildings and occupies them. I don't know. But we're using that language for expansion. I think this might help you a bit, um, Sheila. If we say basically um, the gross floor area of the tenant space which existed of uh, January 6, 2004, because that establishes what the specific square footage was ahead of time and then how much it can be increased. That's okay, but then they would only be increasing the 65,000 square feet, wouldn't Right, it? but the 65,000 square feet, I believe, ex- existed in January 2004. It's, so, it's but, what existed that is more than 65,000 square feet of gross floor area. So there isn't a question as to what number we're talking about, say, if we're talking about the Kmart, and we know that that use uh, that that tenant space, that the gross floor area is 95,000 square feet, that does not include the entire use of that Kmart facility. That Kmart also has an outdoor area that was a garden center. Mm-hmm. That outdoor area is not subject to additional expansion. Is that part of the 95,000 square feet? It is Doesn't not. Count as floor it, is area. it is not a, f- didn't a have floor a area. It doesn't have a roof. So, Correct. So that's kind of immaterial. No, that's the answer. Right. But, but getting back to what I said, though, too, if you don't specify as of a certain time, there are other, like, vacant spaces within that overall building. Right. You could, you, could, you know, enlarge the 65,000 square feet to a larger space and then do 50% of that again. So somehow you have to tie it in where you're basically limiting to how much you can expand. So That's you have to I, do, do the 65,000 square feet uh, as of a certain day. I'm okay with that, except that I think it doesn't clear. give I mean, you the square feet that you're talking about wanting to accomplish. Well, it does because... Okay, well, hold on. I think we're completely talking across purposes Maybe here so. because it may be that I think we're not understanding what you're advocating I'm not advocating, I'm asking. Okay, I won't use the word advocating. (laughs) We're not understanding what questions you're raising. Okay. And I don't think you're understanding what Amy's trying to explain. So maybe if you could write down how you think it should be written. I I don't care which way we go. We are advocating. I think, well... If we are adopting this language, I don't care which way we go. But if we are, but I think it needs to be clear 
because we're saying you can expand it, the gross floor area, by 50%. Yes, yes. Of the use, okay, of the use. So it's not the 65,000 square feet because that's the tenant's occupancy. That's the minimum. Fifty percent of, of that the number. use that is right. greater than sixty-five thousand, or in this case, it happens to be one that we are aware of. It's ninety-five thousand, so it's half of ninety-five, as you pointed out, is forty-seven-five, I think, offhand. That, and that that number is definable. Uh, it's definable through assessment records. It's definable through uh, the floor plan. And it would exclude and discount any areas that, it, that, that are used by a tenant that are not a part of that gross floor area. So as I mentioned in the garden center area, that area would not be subject to expansion under this provision. It's simply the structure itself. Uh, and, I understood that. And it, but in all likelihood, if this should be, if this language were adopted as presented, and if an applicant did not come forward uh, within one year, then it is likely that that outdoor area would be lost in terms of the area of use because it is not subject to this specific language. So the language would carry forward and only apply to that tenant space, that use that is calcul- calculatable through the gross floor area. But, but you've already identified that that outdoor space is not part of their gross floor area, so Correct. it doesn't matter anyway. Correct, but uh, if you're looking the for I the distinction between what number we're using and what would be excluded, that's what I'm trying to answer for you so that the lang- so that that's how that's how I interpret this language. I was distinguishing between the sixty-five thousand square feet and the ninety-five thousand square feet, not oh. not the under not the tent. Okay, I don't understand your question then. Let me ask you a question: How would this relate, uh, Mike, to the Wheatland Farms? If if uh, it doesn't, they're, not, they're, they're, a, they're, they're, they're a municipality. They're part of Queenstown. Town proper. They're this language this only line. impacts the Kmart Center. Period. It only impacts that one location. No other urban commercial. But, but, but the we did that analysis. Because there aren't any other uses or tenant spaces greater than sixty-five thousand square feet. There's well, only answers, one. I'm correct. Answer correct. Question, correct. Huh? That's one of the reasons it's not spot zoning. Because there's only there just happens to only exist to be one. It's not zoning. Right. Right. Well, that too. Right. Yeah. But it's only one instance. That answers your part of your question. Oh. Admittedly, that's no, what we're I doing. Understood yes. that point. For this one site. For one site. For one site, that's right. Yep. I, I understand there's been some emailing and or social messaging about uh, the planning staff not uh, trying to pull a fast one. And that is not what's going on here. This is as transparent as it can be. I haven't seen that email. I haven't seen any that's been reported to me. <laughs> I want to take news. 
Um, are there any other questions from uh, Ms. Murdoch or Mr. Wisnowski? Hearing none, um, we'll reserve the right to question you later. <laughs> uh, we will open it up to uh, public comment, please. I promise I'll be quick. Please. Put you on the uh, Jody Schultz schedule, minute and a half. <laughs> Joking. You, you have three minutes. Jay Falstead, Queen Conservation Association. Uh, I don't want my comments to come across as saber rattling. They're not. Queen Anne's Conservation has not taken a position on this matter yet. Um, and I'm not sure that we will. But I was involved in a limited way in the last referendum, and so that's the only reason I'm speaking on this now. But this has been an extraordinary discussion, and I'll tell you why. Because in the last hearing on Four Seasons, we were operating on, or at least it was raised, on what-ifs. What if this happened? What if that happened? And you all were directed to say that we can't operate on what-ifs. Here we are now, and we've got a, a building, and the staff and you all are saying, well, what if we can't fill it? That's not your problem. That's Mr. Cordish's problem. And I don't know why we're bending over backwards, because at the end of the day, this really is spot zoning when it gets right down to it. And then just very lastly, the county just hired a very capable, exceptional economic development director in Heather Corsi. We haven't given her the opportunity to go out and see what she can find for this, for this um, building. It may be that there's somebody out there that is interested in this, this building as it is, and it can be modified. But I think this board ought to take some, a little bit of caution before making these changes. Otherwise, it could find itself in a bind. It may not seem that, like that's the case, but I think it could. Thank you. Thank you. Then we'll have... Um, uh, if we take uh, Mr. Falstad's false equivalencies, um, we will have the uh, same situation that we have with Acme, which is a brewery inside a grocery store. It looks, well, I won't characterize how it looks, but you can draw your own conclusions. This suggestion will not end up with a brewery inside what looks like a grocery store. So I know we had one other public comment that was signed up. That would be Miss Bennett. Yes, I'd say this when I got here at nine at uh, eight eight forty five. Good evening. <laughs> it's been a long day. Um, I mirror a lot of what uh, Jay has was just saying. I so appreciated Miss Tolliver talking about the spot. And I'm sorry, it's Helen Bennett. Uh, Ken Island resident, um, EDC, fifth member, fifth year member, and um, citizen advocate, um, if I might self-appoint myself. Um, but it's funny, yes, we, I, I wrote that down, that we were talking about these projections and this dark for a decade, like, wow, it's not even empty yet, and it's been dark for a decade. And I happen to be a fan of cult classic. Um, I go there frequently with friends who this is their second home. And um, they've invested a lot of money to try to bring a restaurant to them. So I would, you know, it's, it's subjective. But when I asked planning and zoning if this text amendment, when I first saw it, and it was not mentioned at our last EDC meeting, which is interesting, I said, is this anything to do with just trying to fill the Kmart with the big box store? And I got a one-word answer back, yes. And that was disconcerting, but that wasn't my comments. Um, I have two comments, um, two fronts. I know no one wants an empty storefront, 
But does that mean we stick the first, easiest, most obvious thing that comes to mind? The acne may have been vacant a little too long, but Cult Classic was a thoughtful infill. With all the collective years of experience, wisdom, and creativity between the planning staff and the economic development team, I believe we can come up with unique options worthy of, in the words of one of our planning and zoning staff, the gateway to the shore. I suggest we let Ms. Tonelli, Jean Faby, and the economic team work with the building reps towards a solution that is actually supported by the comp plan and respect the vote of the people without a rush to infill. My second set of comments, empty storefronts aside, is there are plenty of points I would like to talk to in depth as to why this is a bad idea, but I won't. I'll do it briefly. Big box receipts are sent out of state. They're not poured back into the community. Big box arguably results in a net loss of jobs due to the fact that there's less employees per square foot. Again, arguably, they say big box brings great revenue increases, yet that doesn't seem to materialize necessarily into measurable additions or improvements to citizen services. The decrease of small business, it does go down, and they're the ones who actually support your community. If you've ever been to a fundraiser and have a feeling as a planning and zoning commission, you have been to fundraisers, you do not see Target gift cards unless someone bought one. You don't see Chewy gift cards. You don't see Amazon. You see baskets that were donated by your small business. They support your community. And the increase in square footage and the stormwater management modifications will result in reconstruction of that area right off the bridge at a time when our traffic is already untenable. And it destroys the character of Ken Island. But I'm not going to talk in depth. The only reason that really matters is that we, the people, voted against it in 2012. I was one of those people. A lot of good, hardworking people spent a considerable amount of time and effort successfully fighting this eight years ago. And without another vote, that should have settled it. Yet here we are again. And this current text amendment, designed to ultimately negate our vote, masquerading as a single exception in the UC district, is still against the voters. It was stated in a well-written article when this issue first came up in 2011, quote, three commissioners are accused of muscling through the legislation in the face of loud opposition from conservation groups and residents in favor of business interests, end quote. And it seems that that's happening again. At just this last commission meeting, we had a commissioner that said, we need a target. This text amendment hadn't even come up to you yet, and they're already advocating it at the commissioner level. This commission submitted a negative recommendation to the commissioners in 2011. I ask you to vote the same way today, just as the voters did in 2012. Thank you very much. Can I ask you a question? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, just a question about the Economic Development Committee. Mm -hmm. I, I would assume um, that if the big box person was, was going to come, they'd probably be looking for some sort of economic development package or something from the county. Is that something that you guys are going to de discuss and, and, and come up with some solution? We usually discuss all of that when someone comes before us. I think whenever a text amendment comes in, more than just even the developer, we just look at pros and cons and maybe unintended consequences and things like that. But, yeah, we certainly, especially with Gene Faby, very good about talking about the packages that we have available for new business, old business, um, enterprise zone, all that type of thing, yes. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you're liable then to uh, 
discuss it and, and offer something then to, to a potential future retailer then that would come there. We Yes, we do try to do that. But when we first look at text amendments, which is kind of funny because we didn't look at this one before it came to you, normally we kind of look at the text amendments and then Jesse or Jean will present a recommendation to you what the EDC thought, but it hasn't come to us yet. We won't have that until next week. But mm-hmm. Anything else? Well, Thank- let's be... There's been a rather irregular, uh, I'm using that, irregular channels in which, the manner in which this has appeared. Uh, uh, that, that the EDC, to suggest that the EDC, not Ms. Bennett, I'm not saying that, but that there aren't elements of the EDC that aren't aware of this text amendment. Would be- <coughs> Are we allowed to know what these irregular channels are? <laughs> well, are I will say, I mean, <laughs> let's say I, I have put out a video, but I have a Facebook page called Helen Bennett for QAC, and it's been viewed over 1,300 times since I put it up last week, which I think um, I'm waiting for my endorsements. No, I'm teasing. Um, but it's just I put information out there because that's, I think, why we have citizens' commissions is because we're citizens looking for input from citizens. And so I don't know if that – I do not know if that's your regular channels. I no, don't. No, no, I'm not but, talking about okay, you, no. I just, but no, I wanted no. to be up front. Yes, I, I, I meant put, the impetus of yeah. the proposal. Uh, just, I'm trying to keep. Uh, I know that these two have been taking some flack. Well, usually oh. that comes in the form of our staff report where it came from, and it's not in this one. So I well, say it's, there's, it, there's some some people some want cover and other people's don't. I did call the planning and zoning as well. I like to find out when a text amendment is first um, introduced, and I hear about it. I find that if I can ask who asked you to write it um, and when was it put, I just think that gives me a lot of information. And that's important to know because, you know, you'd like to think that everybody wants the best for everyone. It just doesn't always happen that way. So if I can find out who introduced a a text amendment um, and maybe why and get some background, it just gives me a fuller picture, uh, which I think I need as a a very – involved citizen to help me make a decision, especially as I'm sharing information, because I want to be fair to everybody. I really do. Yeah. There are some limits on who can just recommend a text amendment out of schedule. I have to say, I, even though I asked, I did not find out who, so okay. Okay. <laughs> it's a moot point. Neither Thank did, you very much. Anything I. else? Thank you. Is there any other public comment? Most Honorable Commissioner. Good afternoon. So apparently, Jim Moran, County Commissioner from Queenstown. First off, I don't know what all the hubbub is about where this came from. The Kmart's leaving. Mr. Cordish actually contacted Gene Fabey first, right, Gene? I contacted the There you go. And then Mr. Cordish had a conversation with the, the County Administrator, Todd Mon, said he'd like to come in and speak to us. Uh, about the Kmart, and uh, I think that uh, we were they were there. Uh, I was there, uh, and he asked the question about, you know, what are we going to do with this building? And we said, what are our options? What can we do? That's why this is in front of you now. So uh, I, I personally think that 200 jobs is important. I personally think that uh, our citizens that live down Route 8 and on Kent Island shouldn't have to go to Annapolis or to Easton to shop. So, you know, if this allows more flexibility for something to get into that store, so again, I mean, you, you, I think that what's been out on Facebook 
Some of it isn't the truth. Some of it is. But some of the responses are telling people are tired of having to travel to Easton or to Annapolis to shop. They want to stay here, and especially with the traffic. So, you know, this is something that I don't have a problem saying. I support this 100%. So, you know, if there's there's questions and you want to ask me, feel free. But keep in mind, and and I don't think Steve Cahoon, Steve, uh, the access road. There's an access road we're trying to get built. It's actually built now, but it stops behind Kmart that cuts over from Route 8 so people don't have to go up to the bridge, the overpass, and get on to, uh, to the shopping center. There's a back access road. And so we are trying to massage those channels to hopefully get that right away put in there so that we can connect Route 8 with the shopping center from the backside, not going around through where all the traffic is. So all this is in play with this. And uh, if you have any questions for me, I'd be more than happy to answer them. I'd like to thank you for being candid, hmm? one. Thank you, two, for... Uh, trying to uh, use the resources of the county to promote getting a new business in there, hmm. that, which is not to say that I necessarily will agree with the expansion piece of this proposal. Understand. But um, I, I do appreciate that the county doesn't want a lot of vacant space, and we have a lot of vacant space. We don't want another uh, Kent Narrows. I mean, you know, Jamal. We have a nice proposal for Kent Narrows. Well, <laughs> he's pulled the plug on that. We had a nice proposal. So, oh, is uh, it gone now? Yeah, it's gone. Oh, so, I didn't know that. And I think Mears is gone too. So, you know, unfortunately, well, you know, Mears both those projects are now gone by the wayside. So, you know, and, and, and to the answer to the, to the, you know, the small business portion of it, I mean, I'm a small business owner and I don't, I don't look for handouts. I don't look for, for help. I, you know, I just, I'd rather have government just stay out of my way. And with that being said, I mean, I can't tell you how many big boxes are in Easton. And they have half the population that we have. I mean, I don't think their small businesses are going out of business. I mean, Caroline County has, a, what, a fourth the population that we have, and they have big boxes. So, you know, I, it seems like everybody else can have one and draw shoppers there in employment. And, again, you know, anything that goes in there is probably around 200 jobs. And that's, that's I think, vital for Queen Anne's County. So. I, it's my understanding, and I, and I don't hold me to this because I don't have any privileged information, but um, you ask about a Waterman's property, uh, Wheatland Farms, and that's in a municipality, so it doesn't have the 65,000-square-foot uh, 65, limit. Um, my understanding is they haven't found any interest in big boxes and locating there. That's probably true. I haven't. I don't know anything about it. I mean, I, uh, I will say that they, they had. The mostly residential, that well, and, and, and big well, boxes feel that there's not enough population population here to support them, given that there are big boxes within 20 miles on either side, less than I, I that agree. from King Island. I agree. I don't, I don't disagree so with that. I, I will say you, though. market is there. We're creating a space for which there may be no market. Right. Well, we're not creating. We're, we're creating an option. You're giving we're, creating option. We're, we're creating an option, which you're right. If there's no market, it goes by the wayside, and it's over in a year anyways. So I, I don't think that that's... I, I don't think there's any harm or any foul to that. So, you know, for instance, if, 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 it doesn't, if nobody comes in within a year, it reverts back, correct? If a vote is given to it to, to add the 50,000 or 50 percent? No. Oh, it okay. stays in the if, law until we change we it. If we do not change the stat code as it is now, right. the Kmart building, or that portion, well, let's back up. <laughs> the Kmart space would be nonconforming. And would have to remain. It wouldn't have to remain dark. It would have to be split up into spaces smaller than sixty-five thousand square feet. Right. Okay. And that's possible that right. they, they could cut it up and that's put right. in small retailers. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything else for me? 
Thank you very much. It's been a long day. I appreciate your service. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. With that, with this amendment, if it's passed, in one year, if they have not done anything, then the zoning regulations say that it reverts or remains a non or it becomes me, a non-conforming. Let me yeah. just think that through. I don't want to be. That's what I heard you say. Uh, think that one through. Um, if Kmart closes and no one and this passes, let's say as is, and it takes two years to find someone to take advantage of this. I'm not so sure. I'd have to. That's a good question. I, I have to think that through now. Because it says occupies, it's uh, sort of present tense. Where did that wording come from? I've heard it a couple of times mentioned here. It's in the ordinance now. It's in the ordinance now. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, that's a very good question that I'm going to have to think about. I just want to—I don't want to say something that would—that's just shooting from the hip. Urban, the urban commercial district uh, has specific uh, intense density and intensity requirements, and uh, one of those requirements is specific to individual use and/or tenant space in a structure shall occupy more than sixty-five. No individual space shall occupy more than sixty-five thousand square feet of gross floor area, except for the following uses, and there are standing 16 uses. So that the, we did not change that language at all. And I, do, I just want to clarify uh, staff's role. I've been planning staff for a long, long time, <laughs> and staff often introduces zoning text amendments through a wide range of channels. Um, sometimes... Uh, when you just uh, process the zoning text amendment for the cargo containers. That was a problem that was identified by the zoning administrator, and so we collaborated and moved that through. Uh, there is also an issue with food trucks, which you will be seeing again before the season starts. We've gotten sidetracked, uh, namely with the comprehensive plan that I'll update you on and some other items. But that is also a staff-generated uh, amendment. So when we see problems, whether they are brought up by the, the zoning in, zoning interpretation and enactment, or by economic development, or by conversation on the street because we know something is happening, one of our jobs is to be proactive and to try to find a way to serve the community within the confines of the code. So the fact that an issue arose as to where this staff, uh, staff report originated was odd, and it was also answered very honestly um, when I was asked, and that was that it came from county staff, which is the truth. It's just we're the staff that has to draft it, make sure it's compliant, and bring it before you to work with you to make it, it work or not work. So I, I wanted to clarify that, that this is not unusual at all. This happens all the time. Right. I, 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 understand. I was trying to be trying to help you guys because I know you've been, you've been taking some unfair shots. 
uh, from certain individuals that I, I just think it's important that you are following some directions given by other county staff. So are there any other questions for staff? And so at this time, I will entertain a motion uh, for recommendation uh, to the county commissioners. All right. I'll make the motion. <laughs> I hereby... Planning, Queen Anne County Planning Commission face, makes a, a favorable recommendation to the county commissioners that based on the consistency with the applicable laws noted above as by the staff report dated 14 November 2019 prepared by Amy Mordock, Principal Planner um, and Rob Gunther, Development Review Principal Planner send a favorable recommendation to the Board of County Commissioners for Text Amendment County Ordinance 19-17 to modify Chapter 18 as outlined above. Specifically, the recommendations of the Planning Commission shall include the discussion of matters required to be considered by the County Commissioners. Therefore, we offer the following findings. The land use article uh, and the proposed amendment is consistent with the purpose of the UC district and that the standards for expansion are definitive and required and require adherence to the town center and urban commercial design standards, the commercial and mixed-use development standards. These standards were adopted by resolution in June of 2008 and more specifically addressed the conformance with the Chester-Stevensville Community Plan adopted on May 1, 2007 that the plan is also consistent with the comprehensive plan um, with many of the goals and principles and strategies identified within that plan. Specifically, the proposal is consistent with the goal of increasing opportunities for retail and service through diversification and occupying vacant spaces and adaptive reuse of obsolete buildings. Second. I have a second on the motion. Is there any further discussion? I'd like to ask uh, our counsel if he's had time to think through your question and whether or not caution is warranted on, on his advice. Still don't have an answer. That gives me pause. That's all. We have a year to fix it. Yeah. Well, and this is purely an opportunity that if someone wants to come in, there provides an opportunity for that to happen. If within one year something doesn't happen, uh, maybe it needs to be revisited and it reverts or the nonconforming use has to be addressed. But this provides an opportunity at this time. So that we're, we're back to the same place whether we pass it or not is what you're suggesting. Just making a statement. Um, <laughs> this is an option. Yeah. It, it. All right. Let me. All right when, when, when legal counsel needs to think about it, and I fully appreciate and respect Mr. Drummond's research and historical knowledge of these situations, it's just when they can't answer it. Understood. I respect. I want to slow down. 
because it's I'd be in favor of it if if we don't pass it and it reverts back to nonconformity, right? That's one outcome. If we pass this and it goes right back to that, then what's the harm? Other than we could get occupancy in there. Other than that, they'll come back again and ask us to extend the time frame or something. What's the what's harm if it becomes permanent? What becomes I, permanent? I, I'd like to know that. I'd like to know that, too. What is it? Nothing. It, there... There isn't any. It's an adaptive reuse of an existing property. Just giving more opportunity, that's all. It, I mean, to, to fulfill a vacant space. Right. Um, it's an adaptive reuse that, as a planner, we should all be excited about versus having a, a blank building. I, I, look, my head's spinning from all this. Where's Smith? Current size. Been through mental Olympics all day. <laughs> I learned my lesson not to say the table word again today. <laughs> Could you put up the amendment again, please? Put in there somewhere that it has to be the same use. Uh, sh let me show you the context, um, because no, they're in the amendment, isn't mm -hmm. it? In the no. no. Retail. So whatever the zoning allows. It doesn't really specify. Right. Uses that were operating on or before mm -hmm. shall be permitted only for uses that were operating. We did put it in there. Yeah. Well, that, that, well, that's so the language. If it's retail, it has to stay retail. Uh, I think um, I would be presently of the opinion that because in the Kmart is a legal nonconforming use of, I'm going to assume for the moment, a conforming structure, I don't know if it is or it isn't, I mean, um, if that use were to lapse for more than a year, I don't think this amendment would help them. That's my current thought. It'll be non-conforming. Oh, it would mean that the non-conforming, the legal non-conforming status of that 95,000 square foot retail space will have terminated. Additionally, if they so choose to change the use and go from a retail to an assembly, that would... Retail to a what? An assembly use. Well, that's one of the exemptions. That's under their... Pro yeah. All, they could go to those, any one okay, of those. So those, one those, of those right. Okay. And they right. couldn't be 95,000 square feet. Right. right. However, if the retail use, which is nonconforming, is stops, abandoned, whatever you want to say, for a year, then that use, the legality of that use is terminated. It can't go back. So I'm not, then you would be talking about expanding something that's not permitted, and therefore you couldn't do it, can't do it. Sheila, I think that's the question you were asking that I didn't process. 
the distinction between the use and the space. Yes. Oh, yeah. This may not be, now that we're thinking it, we're going to the next step, it may give the owners of that space at, came, the, at that shopping center a year to find someone else. And then the question is, what would the date by which, you know, they would have to expand? Nothing's going to happen within a year. You know, they're going to have to expand it, but, you know. So we may not have thought this through as well as we had hoped, because the reality may be that we, it, no one, even if someone wanted to come in and expand by, let's say, 20%, that may not be able to happen before the legality of the nonconformity expires. So you'd have to change the nonconformity law to yeah, allow, made, yeah. to allow that under some circumstance here? to be extended. Yeah, we have to think, think it through. That would be the, the logistics. We came in tomorrow with that. The gymnastics. It wouldn't happen within a year. year. Right. They could put a hot dog stand in it or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, the year starts when the building goes vacant. Right, but it's very unlikely that the, a larger retail use would, would be in place within a year. Define in place. Pardon? Define in place. Vesting. Yeah, what's the vested on, I don't know. on we, that? We, but now that we've, we may not have solved a problem. Say this is null and void now. No, no, no. no. It makes sense. We may have to put another bandaid on those in the in the queue. We have time to do that, right, Chris? Sorry, pardon me. We would have a year to do that. Yeah. And I would love that legal interpretation. No, writing, please. I'm sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so this could be step one. And it seems to me the process. resolution yeah. of that, if you're going to change Trickle the nonconformity law, would either, would either have to apply to a lot of nonconforming uses, which might invoke a lot of other problems that we can't even imagine today, or be specific to one property, which is also questionable legislating. To won't be a redheaded I know anymore. it won't be un unusual for <laughs> Queen Anne's County, but <laughs> but it really is poor uh, policy. So we we do have a motion and a second on the floor. If there's any other further discussion, so by voice vote. All in favor, say aye. 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 Any opposed? I'm abstaining. Abstention. So that's five to one. Motion passes. Thank you for favorable to county commissioners. Very, very quickly, Amy's going to give you an update on the comp question. So we have been meeting with our selected consultant, which is uh, Jenny Smith and Michelle King of Smith Planning and Design. We had a kickoff meeting with the Queen Anne's County COG last evening, and the result of that uh, meeting, other than to familiarize the towns with the fact that we're rolling now and are eager to work with them and especially work with their municipal growth element areas and uh, desired growth areas, is that we're starting the community outreach right away. We have Our consultants have used us as a guinea pig on a survey of um, residents of the, the county that's very broad, 
uh, but will give us an opportunity to take the temperature of the community in terms of its um, favorable or unfavorable feelings of the status of the existing comp plan and, and the community at large and other aspects of the community. We have paper surveys for citizens who do not have uh, Wi-Fi or uh, broadband, and we have distributed those survey boxes to all of the towns who were in attendance last evening, and we'll follow up with, I think only Millington wasn't able to attend, so we'll follow up with Millington to make sure we're covering the community. We have a survey box located here. Um, as well, and there'll be one in the commissioner's office, and we're going to extend beyond uh, those locations. But also, there will be an electronic survey. Our, serv our um, consultant is finalizing our specific comprehensive plan update website. So as soon as that website is available, we'll let you know uh, where that is, what the address is, and that is where we'll be making sure that we're pushing out meeting notices, um, the survey link will be there. Also, as you might imagine, we've already been receiving comments, questions, and applications for comprehensive rezoning requests. Uh, we haven't processed those at all, of course, or even officially opened up that process, but there's enough of an interest that I'm already collecting some forms, but there'll be a portal for that there, too. Um, we are working already with a technical committee, and that technical committee is comprised of county and state agencies who are actively involved in all aspects of um, project review and community services. Uh, they've been given their pertinent sections of the comprehensive plan for reassessment, uh, whether or not we're on the mark, whether or not there are strategies that have been achieved and can come out, or some areas that might have been problematic. They've been given a tight deadline of the end of this month, and that technical committee is meeting on December 4th. So they're really trying to get us up and running so that we have a full-fledged update process moving by the first of the year because they have a one-year deadline that I think we're going to make uh, just based on our initial meetings with Jenny and Michelle. So that brings me to um, a point that Sheila has raised with me, and that is, how are we going to meet? How is information going to be disseminated? And what does the subcommittee structure look like? So we're having, obviously, a technical committee of county and state employees and, and others, but also this body is the subcommittee, the processing committee, for the comprehensive plan. As this is an update, you will be, since you are the responsible party for drafting this document and processing this document to be handed off to the county commissioners, you are going to be seeing these draft sections uh, at regular intervals. We won't bombard you with um, a huge chunks of the plan at one time. We'll parse it out to you. We're Working on that schedule, for uh, as of now, um, Michelle and Jenny are intending to attend the, the Planning Commission meeting on the 9th of January, where we will brainstorm and discuss with you how you would like to see your review move forward. Um, so that's where we are.
And we will be conducting focus group right. meetings with each town, Stevensville, Chester, uh, the Kent Island, and Graysonville. We will also be reaching out to the Economic Development Commission. So it's not just this group, but we'll be meeting with those folks independently as well and bringing that information back to you. Can you forward us all the dates so that we can attend some of those meetings sure. as our sure. schedules allow? Mm-hmm. Um, We're still so. working on that schedule. So once we really get that nailed down, and obviously it's subject to change, but we're really trying to come up with a viable schedule. As soon as that's ready, I'll share it. And that's why we wanted you. them brought on in October so we can do all this <laughs> prelim so January 1 we can start focusing on real issues, not schedules. Yep. <laughs> Hold on one second. Okay. Are, are there any other um, miscellaneous staff items? No, sir. That's any other comments from the commission? Any other public comment? Hearing none. Mr. Prince. Motion moved. <laughs> Thank you. Motion to adjourn. Second. Second. So moved. Thank you.